Welcome to the Grand Theft World podcast hosted and sponsored by GrandTheftWorld.com. It's March 20th, 2022. Uh, this episode's titled something to the effect of Laptop Leaks Unleashed. There's a lot to unpack this week. First, we've got this uh, NATO no-fly zone is a no-go. We've got uh, TikTok, TikTok propaganda. I personally don't use TikTok. <laughs> I haven't seen TikTok Apparently, they use it to uh, propagandize the young children. There's also the Hunter Biden laptop story is now a thing. I've got the uh, got the book here someplace. We're going to cover the Hunter laptop book. It's being elusive right now. Laptop from hell is what it's called. And then also we've got special guests coming up tonight. We're going to hear also a little bit from our guest from last week, Richard Gage, who sponsored the 9-11 Pentacon conference. And um, last but not least, there is a lot of news this past week about Vladimir Putin and his relationship with Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and uh, other things that are probably in the next Johnny Vedmore article. But before we uh, get into tonight's deep dives and explorations of all things East India Company with our guest, who's not the author of these books. He's got other books I didn't get yet. Before we get to that, let's get to Luke Radowski's kickoff for this week. Let's get a little summary. Look at me looking at the wrong camera for that. Whoa, what's this show going to be like? You're going to have to tune in and hang on to this. Uh, Strap yourselves in. Let's go to Radowski for the kickoff. I'll compose myself with the many busy things going on around here in the studio, and uh, we'll kick off the show. We'll be right back. Right? What's today's Gutenberg Press? The internet. The decentralization of information, and then because of that, the decentralization of currency in the form of crypto is disrupting power because the way that after the revolution of the reformation the printing press control was still possible though obviously not to that level which is why we no longer have those absolute monarchies but control in a nation-state context was still possible to an extent because the money supply was controlled now what's happening is that the invention of the internet with the decentralization of information and in particular here the decentralization of currency in the form of cryptocurrencies is disrupting those power hierarchies and it's leading to this conflict now and we're in a moment when the printing press was invented the powers that be needed to try and hold on to that power as the 30 years war kicked off they eventually lost it but to hold on to it they became very brutal because they were losing their grip on power today to have the infrastructure in place that you can have a checkpoint charlie society so that when the central banking digital currencies are in place, that infrastructure is already there because people were so scared they voluntarily allowed you to put that in place so that you can maintain your grip on power because what's coming around the corner is the decentralization of everything, of media, therefore of narrative. And of course, remember, whoever defines the truth gets to define reality. Decentralization of the economy through crypto. You no longer have the power to define the story and control the money supply. So the powers that be who are losing that power need to clamp down. A cashless digital track trace and a database society. Total enslavement is what they want because a bunch of sociopathic, crazy old people want to keep their grip of power. Yeah, 
No, no, thank you. I prefer decentralization. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Lukradowski here of wearechange.org, and we have a lot of very important information to get into. As, of course, there's a full-scale conflict going on in Ukraine. We're going to be giving you the latest details of what's happening there. The possibilities of peace talks with Putin and Zelensky going to be meeting very soon. Will this disastrous conflict end anytime soon? Well, of course, we could hope so. But, of course, the long-term trajectory of what's going to be happening here is going to be a lot more complicated along with the consequences that the majority of people are going to be facing but before getting into that plus a lot more that poetic rant that we began in the beginning of this video was of course made by Mahid Nawaz who uh, essentially hit the nail on the head when it came to breaking down the current situation that we are all dealing with and of course the many troublesome years ahead as of course we're dealing with the situation and society that is absolutely absurd it's about to get a lot more absurd and of course, this only happens because of the lunacy purported by the corporate media that essentially does the bidding of this ruling elite. This, as there is a coordinated PR talking point of us needing to pay higher gas prices in order to defend a democracy with absolutely bewildering Orwellian-type style articles from Bloomberg literally telling you that if you earn less than $300,000 a year, it's time for you to take the bus, not buy a lot of stuff, replace lentils instead of meat, and of course, not have any fun. This is their elitist tips of your pound of flesh sacrifice that you have to give to the system that of course cares about you so much and is so generous to the rest of society. As of course, 98% of American households earn less than $300,000 a year. And, and telling 98% of Americans to, to stop using their cars, to stop having nutritious diets that are actually really good for them, to, to not have any pets, as the 1% of the world lives their lives, like they're some kind of gods and could do whatever they want is, in my opinion, peak corporate media hypocrisy. And let's be honest, there's been there's been a lot of it. There's been a lot of disinformation. There's been a lot of propaganda. There's been a lot of information provided to us that supposedly is unbiased, but absolutely either comes from an absolutely ignorant place or one that is carefully curated to have the outcome that a lot of powerful people want. This gem was provided to us by the editor of The Economist, who decided to interpret his events how he wanted to see them for, of course, political power. And when the corporate media is not spreading misinformation, fake news, muddying the water, creating more mistrust. Because, you know, if you actually cared about an issue, you would speak about it honestly and not distort it, not try to push propaganda, not try to lie to people, which absolutely does your cause a larger disservice at the end of the day. But when the corporate media is not doing that, they're also slandering and attacking anyone who deviates from the carefully curated talking points and larger agenda that they push against the majority of the public, as of course there has been an organized PR attack against Russell Brand that of course has been attacked by institutions like The Independent, a self-proclaimed media organization that of course has a lot of financial ties to Saudi Arabia, that are of course are calling for him to be censored calling him crazy and dangerous, all because he dares to have a conversation about what's actually happening right now instead of just believing what you're supposed to be believing at the current time that the establishment tells you to do so. Elon Musk had a very interesting piece towards this two minutes of hate PR propaganda bullcrap piece saying, quote, I watched some of his videos. Ironically, he seemed more balanced and insightful 
than those condemning him, going on and saying, quote, the group think among major media companies is more troubling. There should be more dissent. And even though we've been critical about Elon before, I definitely agree with him when it comes to these particular statements, as of course, these larger social media crackdowns are all about centralizing power and authority for the people who still wield it at the time that they do. And this is why. I think it's fair to say that the absolute crap show that all of us are involved in, that the world is involved in, is absolutely because of people's ignorance. Because of people not knowing what's going on, because of people just willingly going along with things, being agreeable, not deciding to question things, not deciding to challenge things, just taking the easier way out is why we're dealing with the situation right now where you are going to have to take the bus everywhere to go and not even be able to eat meat. This Bloomberg opinion piece sounds like it's a suggestion. It soon probably will be a way of life with the way that things have been going and with the absurdity of our current fiscal financial situation, which of course is spiraling out of control because of record money printing, record government spending, reckless borrowing of money that of course this country doesn't have. And what's the corporate media's response to all of this? Well, borrow and spend more money as CNN is now calling for more stimulus checks in order to deal with the soaring gas prices. Boy, oh boy, I wish someone would give them a lesson in economics and the money supply chain. And of course, a history lesson. What what happens with governments that print too much money out of thin air? And of course, a lot of these financial problems are being obfuscated with the conflict in Ukraine that, of course, the corporate media holds personally responsible for all of this. But as we know, they, of course, are trying to hide what led us to this crazy situation. And of course, it's only going to be a situation that escalates as, of course, the conflict in Ukraine also escalates as, of course, it adds to the larger problems that, of course, all of us are facing. And it is fair to say the more there there is conflict, the more there will be financial problems. And we have to acknowledge there are some individuals who want more conflict. This as 10 U.S. senators have just visited Poland, specifically on the Ukrainian border, and now are officially calling for a more direct U.S. involvement in this entire conflict, demanding more lethal aid to the Ukrainian people, with these 10 U.S. senators saying that the United States will need to constantly send military assistance to that country, as some foreign policy experts expect the situation in Ukraine to unfold just like it has in Afghanistan and in Syria. Long-term tribal limited warfare between the West and the East, using their territories as intermittent playgrounds for the military-industrial complex, as of course sectarian violence is very easy to start but very hard to end, and it usually lasts decades, as of course the wounds of conflict are deep and they do not heal very easily. All of this as the president of Ukraine has been asking the United States to set up a no-fly zone to send them more lethal weapons, risking the entanglement of the West, which of course would benefit his country temporarily, but of course escalate this conflict, which even the Ukrainian president admits could start World War III. Zelensky now is saying that this is a possibility if peace talks do not work with Russia. This as the Ukrainian president went on CNN saying that he is ready to speak with Putin in any format at any chance in order to try to resolve this conflict. It's also important to note that there have been a number of peace deals offered on both sides, the latest of which was turned down by Ukraine, which of course is looking for security and protection of its people and country in the future. How can Russia guarantee that? Well, of course, that is a complicated question, as of course, 
course, the conflict rages on in that country. And then these two men have the faith of their countrymen, of their citizens in their hands. And from my own personal perspective and opinion here, I could only hope that they decide to work things out and not endanger their people or the future of the world because of their political ambition. There's a famous quote from a World War I veteran who lived to the age of 111 years, Harry Patch, who specifically said, quote, I felt then, as I feel now, that the politicians who took us to war should have given the guns and told to settle their differences themselves instead of organizing nothing better than legalized mass murder. And I would have to definitely agree with the sentiments of Harry here, as of course we're dealing with corrupted politicians and institutions that are known for their dishonesty and them creating policies and using government for their own personal gain and monetary wins. Everyone knows Putin is, of course, an extremely rich human being. Some people even speculate and theorize maybe one of the richest people in the entire world, with, of course, an extensive amount of luxury yachts, hidden real estate, and money all throughout the country. We found out a lot about this through the Panama Papers and the Pandora Papers, which, of course, some journalists paid the ultimate price to tell the world about. And, of course, it's not just Putin who has to deal with a lot of corruption allegations. It's also the president of Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky, who was also found to have a lot of money in offshore bank accounts, according to the Pandora Papers that were released to the entire world. Now, why does the president of Ukraine have a network of offshore companies? Well, of course, he's a politician. And as most politicians, their corruption is forgiven and they're being promoted by, of course, the corporate media by individuals like David Frum from The Atlantic, who said, quote, Ukraine may be the first example in human history of a country that under pressure of war is becoming more tolerant and more liberal. This, as the president of Ukraine has just literally signed a decree combining national TV channels into one platform. He just unilaterally banned 11 opposition parties. There was also the execution of political representatives and there's also a lot of really bad videos out there showing human rights violations that are happening in the field of war by of course both parties that are involved here. Now, in the United States, I think it's very fair to say that we only hear the negative side of one story when in reality we are dealing with corrupted institutions and understanding that might help us find a way out of this total nonsense and insanity and lunacy. And I think understanding the situation from a full, complex understanding is a lot more important than just getting one particular point of view. You're dealing with dishonest individuals who a lot of people have put their full faith in. And no matter if it's Putin or Zelensky or Biden. I don't care who it is. I think it's fair to ask all of these individuals to be open, transparent, not corrupted, and to start acting like adults here and to try to de-escalate this entire crazy situation rather than, of course, escalate it and only endanger all of us and at the same time financially wreck the entire world. Will this happen? Well, well honestly, I, I, I'm not too optimistic for it, but there is an opportunity for this to happen as, of course, Putin has agreed to meet with Zelensky. As, of course, the Russian president is, quote, ready to talk with the Ukrainian president, as, of course, these politicians are going to be sitting down, allegedly at some point, and hopefully being adults here, working things out to prevent 
the further utter catastrophe that has been unfolding in that country. I think Bill Burr definitely made a very good point surrounding this entire issue, saying, quote, everybody should just quit the military around the world, and that's it. It's done. We're not doing this anymore. You lunatics, go sit down and solve your problems another way. There's no world where you should watch somebody of any nationality have to say goodbye to their kids because two rich people are having a temper tantrum with each other and have decided to have a war. And I would definitely have to agree with the sentiments here by Bill Burr. He made a very interesting point. And I do believe if this was the larger kind of understanding, belief, consensus, that we wouldn't have a lot of this nonsense that, of course, we are dealing with. There, of course, is another strategy here that is far more murkier, and that is you have to fight evil with evil. They have to match fire with fire, as, of course, this is the only way to stop future fires. And that's a future perspective that a lot of people are entertaining. That's usually the perspective of corporate media. But to me, that's the thinking of crazy people. And I might be wrong. And the other strategy might be right here. And I might have gotten some things wrong during this, of course, video report. But if I did, please let me know down in the comment section below. Of course, I don't always get things right. It's very hard to call things out, especially with the fog of war, especially with all the disinformation and propaganda out there. We're doing our best to provide you the perspective for you yourself to make an informed decision. More fine reporting from Luke Radowski can be found at wearechange.org and uh, his t-shirts. I don't even think... uh, his t-shirt that it's just, he has an amazing line of designs. Those are at the best political t-shirts.com best political shirts.com. Yeah. I got to get that URL, right? It'll be in the show notes for this episode and it's on screen because we have a control room with uh, happy fingers helping you out. All right. So uh, there's a lot going on with Russia, Ukraine. We'll be able to get into that later. I did locate Hunter Biden. There are passages about Ukraine in this book. Uh, it's called laptop from hell by Miranda Devine. We're going to talk about that later uh, with our guest tonight. We're going to talk about the maybe a little history of the Anglo-American establishment, uh, East India Company, things like that. Those are all coming up later. Right now, uh, if he's available, uh, we have a guest who has uh, appeared here recently on the show. In fact, I think he was the guest last week. He recently had a conference yesterday. I just finished listening to this conference a few minutes before the show. Like I made it through the 12-hour conference just in time. And I texted him during the last couple of minutes. And I said, Hey, could you come on the show for 10 minutes? I want to talk to you about some of the things I perceived during this conference. And uh, I wanted to encourage other people who haven't seen it, who weren't there for the live event. I think there was like 300 people there yesterday. I think once more people know about it, they're going to jump in. They're going to study these various hypotheses and we're all going to learn and be better from this process. Richard, are you, uh, are you in the zoom room? Oh, you bet. It's so nice to have you back Uh, for everyone who hasn't seen last week's show. This is Richard Gage from Richard Gage 911 Unleashed. It's the new podcast he hosts. He's found at richardgage911.org. And uh, I tuned in yesterday. I missed the first part of the presentation. And what I appreciated is it was a 12-hour conference. (laughs) I already had a Saturday plan. There was a couple things I had to like tap out, couldn't listen, had to come back later. So I spent the remainder of my time today trying to like fill in the cracks and get through all these presentations. So I got through hypothesis or theory A and B and part of C yesterday. So I had to finish C and get through D today. Could you explain for the audience theory A, B, C, and D's presenters? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 9-11 con 
911.org is where you can go and learn about what we're talking about right now. Uh, 911.con, uh, con for con, uh, con for conference.org. Uh, Richard, it was incredible. We, we have assembled in one place at one time, live streamed, and, and you can watch it still, uh, you guys. Um, it, it, uh, it, we have four different theories, uh, people and ideas which have been clashing somewhat uh, uh, violently sometimes through the last uh, 10 years of the 9-11 truth movement, 20 years now, of course, since 9-11. And, and so I was determined to try to do something uh, to create a value for the 9-11 truth movement and maybe some healing. And that happened in the end to some extent. I mean, wait till we talk about what happened in the end. You, you, you're not going to believe it when you see this. The final Q&A is the session where they, we brought all the speakers together in the end. Let's go through who they are. Theory A was Barbara Honiger, who believes that a large plane, but not a 757, was blown up outside the Pentagon. And, uh, and, over the helipad, about 200 feet from the point of entry, uh, according to the official story. So uh, she had an hour and a half to present, and then she took questions from the other uh, two, uh, three speakers. Well, Thierry Maison uh, is theory B. He, he couldn't make it for the, for the later questions, but he um, presented uh, uh, on the evidence for a missile hit the Pentagon. And went into some very interesting uh, discussions about his personal history uh, before and after 9-11, mostly after. And uh, so I was shocked to learn there that uh, there was a Russian general who provided public information about a missile being fired from a U.S. naval ship, one of which went into the sea and one of which hit the Pentagon. That was very interesting. Uh, most of the other more common 9-11 uh, 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 researchers at the Pentagon had dismissed a missile uh, as a three. So we wanted to bring Thierry Maison back from uh, his uh, absence in the 9-11 truth movement since the sensation that he started with his book, uh, Pentagate, uh, which was translated into eight languages and created uh, quite a sensation and really got the 9-11 truth movement going uh, early on uh, before the rest of us woke up. Um, well, uh, then uh, theory C is uh, Craig McKee, Adam Ruff, and Xander Arena, who presented uh, their evidence to the theory that uh, there was a plane, but it was not on the south path, south of the Sitco gas station, but over the annex and then into banking and then into the Pentagon. Uh, excuse me. I'm sorry. I, that uh, over the Pentagon. Don't um, get it wrong. Uh, that, oh my goodness. I discovered there's a little drama over such things. And it's like, we'll talk about that. Oh, yeah, you, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You can't get it wrong. I mean, that was a major faux pas. My apologies to the theory C folks. Um, they spent a whole lot more time uh, documenting the uh, direction of uh, the, the path of the plane as per the witnesses 
that show it going on the north side of the Sitco station than they did uh, documenting that it went over. Well, it could only have gone over if it didn't go in. Uh, so uh, some of their own witnesses actually are witnesses that it went into the Pentagon, which is interesting uh, discussion. Anyway, uh, then theory D is uh, David Chandler and Wayne Costa, who have been researching uh, uh, six to 10 years themselves uh, about uh, the physical evidence uh, of a plane impact at the Pentagon uh, on the path, the south path, uh, south of the Sitco, south of the Sitco station. Um, and that there were, they, they, they suggest and claim that there's no evidence of explosions beyond the impact of the plane itself. So the elements of all of these theories, we're not going to have time to get into, I think, on this show. But I can tell you it was absolutely fascinating hearing all the details for an hour and a half plus Q&A each. That's two hours times four speakers. That's eight hours. And then they all came back at the end for a two-hour Q&A from the audience because before they were only taking Q&A from the other presenters. And I'm telling you, there was some very tough questions uh, from, from their competing theories. Uh, so uh, after they dealt with these questions from the audience, we had this moment where we're all kind of agreeing that we need a new investigation, that 9-11 was an inside operation, uh, uh, if, if not an outside operation also, uh, with complicity from the inside, um, although there wasn't much uh, focus on that. But the 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 we agreed to disagree essentially in the end. I mean, we all were there waving all the panelists together to the audience, thanking them for showing up as I was thanking our presenters for, you know, working so hard. They, they, they didn't just come and flash this together and, and present on the wing. They worked very hard for weeks on these presentations and uh, it showed, I mean, they, they were very polished, all of them. And there was new evidence from Xandra Arena, for instance, uh, about the angle of view from the two cameras that were released from a FOIA request showing uh, what did or did not hit the Pentagon there. There's some interesting phenomena and whether that film was faked or not. Uh, he did a very technical analysis, which David Chandler and Wayne Costa really appreciated because that was new evidence. They've got something now to work with that's subjective, that's scientific, that's forensic. So they're all looking forward to working together on, on that evidence and what, see what does it really show or what doesn't it show. Uh, I was very impressed, tickled pink, and uh, feeling like, my God, I did something of value for the 9-11 truth movement coming out of my uh, new status, uh, having been discharged from AE 9-11 truth looking for my own ground to stand on <laughs> with Richard Gage 9-11. And here we have it, 300 people signed up for this conference and networked with each other and um, got to see all the different science from all and witnesses from all these different, uh, four different theories and come to their own informed conclusions. 
Yeah, I agree. I, uh, as a viewer with a high amount of interest in this topic and I'm undecided, I'm ready to learn, show me what I don't know. Uh, I was very impressed with the, the caliber acumen and presentation skills of all four theories. <clears throat> I think, um, you did a great job of creating a realm of excellence for them to come together. And it's kind of like peace talks. You're having like a mini summit. These people don't necessarily get along in the real world. And now it's like, let's, let's honor the victims and let's honor our own history and let's get to the truth of what's going on here. And how can we fit these pieces together? And I think, yeah, your role as peacemaker <laughs> and facilitator, negotiator, peace talks, negotiator. That's how I kind of saw it. I think that's very yeah. valuable to the music, um, to the movement. <clears throat> and it shows mm -hmm. a lot about, the contribution that you had here to give that wasn't getting unleashed when you were with AE 911 truth. Mm -hmm. And it, it, there was a little bit of uh pot shots going on and, and yeah, there's I a lot those. of attitude. I didn't, well, <laughs> I heard like, um, you know, I'm familiar with all of them in their individual, right. A little bit. Right. But I remember like when I came across Barbara's work, I was like, oh, who's this woman? Oh, she worked for LBJ and she's like, you know, a professional investigator at this point. Like she's been around. She worked I think for she was Reagan. Oh, Reagan? I thought she yeah. was. I thought there was something. Okay. But it's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time since. So this, all of this was kind of like refreshing things I haven't looked at in at least 10 years. So a uh, president's administration. Thank you for correcting me. And then um, Craig McKee, I'm pretty sure he had interviewed me at some point. And uh, so each of the theories, I had <clears throat> enough to be familiar with the theories, but I didn't have enough nuance to understand how they were kind of conflicting with each other. And so in theory A's presentation, I, I heard a couple things. And then in theory B's conversation, Terry, I didn't catch any of those because I was so busy admiring how you got the translator and all that to work. Because when you mm. got to his presentation, I'm like, how's he going to do this? I've never seen this go on. Terry speaks, Terry speaks French and you, we need to hear it in English and how, but there, you did it very, very well conducted, sir. And then by theory C, I heard a couple more references to like theory D says this. And then I got the theory D, which I don't know. I probably thought I didn't give it as much weight as I probably did by watching and considering and weighing, but still I see like layers of all, all four hypotheses as playing into it. So I think Everyone there was genuine in their curiosity, their interest, and their perspective that they're kind of trying to put forth. And that's why it's open for consideration. And then you figure out what are the contradictions and what doesn't match up. And this is where the audience has to engage in thinking because it's not between the personalities. It's not about, it's not about the messengers. It's about the message, the overall message and who done it. How did they do it? Why did they do it? What do we do about it? How do we mm -hmm. re recover the freedom that we've lost since 9-11? Yeah, and my opening message uh, was really strong about that. Hey, what we all agree on is that we've been lied to, we've been manipulated, we've been scammed, we've been made fun of, we've even been suckered to divide and conquer strategies that we that, that we uh, unwittingly uh, take sides and and hurl accusations um, at hominems at at each other. <clears throat> Uh, it's, it's, it's do, dive down to that level. And I'm saying, uh, Hey, this is, this is not nine 11, one Oh one. This, this is, this is not kindergarten here. Um, we're into the deep dive, um, of nine 11. So for you, 
know, it could be a value certainly to a newcomer, but it was um, an incredible opportunity to look at detailed technical analysis from many of these presenters. And uh, it, it was fascinating uh, to me. But in my opening message, I specifically made reference to, hey, look at the bigger picture here. Um, we've got a group of psychopaths who have taken over the world to such an extent that all of us uh, could have have clearly been um, manipulated to to support our troops and uh, support the troops in going and invading uh, two other countries in which a mil two million people have been murdered. Uh, we've given up our own civil liberties through the Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012. Any of us can be arrested. We can be tortured. We can be assassinated. That's where we are today. And if we don't come together as uh, individuals and uh, members of the 9-11 Truth Movement, particularly major researchers in the 9-11 Truth Movement, uh, and, and, and form some sort of a common stand, uh, we're going to be taken out individually. And I was concerned that that was what was happening. So you're thinking there's something to strengthen numbers of strong individuals banding together over freedom. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Finding solidarity. I mean, that's an incredible achievement. And that's all sort of like re recognizing the audience and finding a way to, you know, heal that or find bridges between each of their disparate pieces. That yeah, because as you know, an audience member, I didn't care that any of these people have a beef with each other. Like, I understand that. That's and that But the audience my... doesn't need to know or come up to speed on that because we, we got other things to figure out. So it's clever what you did because you kind of, I think, inadvertently set up a form of a debate in the classical sense of what a debate yes. was, where you actually mm -hmm. present your evidence. And then who wins in the end is the audience because you get closer to the truth rather than this sort of debate in the modern sense isn't based on the classical form anymore. It's more be it's it's more about the ego. It's more mm. about who wins, who who can show off more in a certain have a certain bravado or presence. Rhetorical skills. Yeah, it's all about sophistry essentially. Yeah, rhetorical yeah. skills. So finding a way to provide solidarity because that's I make this distinction all the time because I teach logic I teach uh, some many of the classical liberal arts and one of the issues comes down to de debate and rhetoric and also in logic it's in modern day debate there's almost no mention of evidence it's usually pot shots it's usually misdirection straw men ad hominems red herring so forth and so on but to actually get them in a position where they're not really debating one another but they're just mm -hmm. able to present their facts almost like they're in a court case or a pseudo that was leading that, into but, my next question which was do you have a plan for a type of public grand jury where we can introduce evidence oh, get great. it on the record and everyone involved recognizes this is evidence on the record this photo from this place was taken at this time we can interpret what it shows in that photo but we want the evidence in chronological order like you would have in a real court case because absent and i know there's thousands of exhibits and you need some software to organize these types of things and there's going to have to be what's the original source and what's the chain of custody, but like, what else do we have to do? Cause they're going to keep taking away our rights until we solve the problem they created when they started the yeah, soft the bullies don't three on nine eleven. Yeah. They don't stop. If we don't stop these bullies, like we, we didn't stop them at JFK. What did they give us? Vietnam and nine 11 and BCCI. Yeah, yeah. And I said to my wife earlier today, I said from one part, like, cause we were watching like the theory D I was like, I, I get all this, but at the end of the day, I zoom back to, so the people who killed JFK and built the, 
the Department of Defense, which is the Department of War, right? They broke ground on that building September 11th, 1941. On its 60th birthday, it has like a rising Phoenix rising from the ashes because they rebuilt it and they got stronger by invading two formerly British territories. Iraq and Afghanistan, which then, you know, might have satiated a couple of our allies out there. And that's what they wanted. And there's a whole chain of like motive, opportunity, funding that leads not only to the complicit people here in the States who were bought into that system and held to it, because there's a lot of ways they can be held to it, but also the international interests that have been shaping our country for a long time. Most of the 20th century answer your question. activities. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, regarding, uh, bringing this evidence into court this whole conference 911con.org was the was a benefit for the film that uh, i'm creating uh, in partnership with the lawyers committee for 911 inquiry uh, we are making a series uh, of films called 911 crime scene to courtroom and we'll begin that now that this conference is um uh, done. <laughs> it's been a lot of work and, uh, we're going to, uh, work, uh, full time on it. Uh, and, and over the summer, you're going to see a series of films coming out evidence piece by evidence piece. Now, Mick Harrison and I will be filmed in a courtroom, uh, giving this evidence directly to the grand jurors, uh, and bringing in expert witnesses as well, uh, specifically on the world trade center here at first. And then we, um, we will be submitting the film series to the attorney, U.S. attorney in Manhattan to be submitted to the uh, grand jurors and the special grand jury. And we're currently, we being LC 911, specifically Mick Harris and the litigation director has, has already given oral arguments in the mandamus case in which they are trying to force the U.S. attorney to uh, reveal well, excuse me, to, to, to reveal the evidence that he is in fact, or has in fact impaneled a grand jury. Uh, and that's the nature of the hearing in the second highest court in the land, the second circuit uh, appeals court. Uh, they are evaluating what is exactly the first amendment right uh, that we as Americans have to petition the government. Well, does it mean anything to petition the government as we've done when nothing's happening about it for two years. So this lawsuit is all about that establishing our right to know what's going on with our petition. I remember when the, the nine 11 widows like wanted to see the redacted documents on the Saudi connections and stuff like that and how they had to fight. And it's a long struggle, but if we don't undertake it, step by step at some point during the process, we're all going to find ourselves in gulags because we've seen what they, what they do to the world. So I'd like to see this succeed, but I heard a couple of things like us attorney in New York city. And I thought Louis free and Giuliani's crew that. So is there a way through the system to use the system while knowing that there's like a series called billions and there's like, I think a good example of how the U S attorney, like how they get to be attorney and what they actually do and what types of things go on. So I'm just trying to like make your plan solid for the reality. It's going to go up against. Have you had any thoughts on, I've got to write this down. Is there a different that movie called billions? Yeah. It's a series. It's, it's judicial corruption. Huh? I'm pretty sure that's the series. It's got, uh, 
I forget the actor's name now, but uh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, he's a character actor. He was oh, in the, that wine it, movie back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm bringing it up now. Giamatti. He plays Paul a great Giamatti. role. Yeah, Giamatti. Paul, yeah. yeah, Giamatti. Because uh, it's a classic. Like, it's it's a clash of big brained power people, and uh, one of oh. them's like a hedge fund guy, and one of them's the d- attorney who like moves up through the ranks in New York because of his connections and his cunning and his compromises and these sort of things. So <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll have a talk about this offline and, you know, uh, make a strong plan on a public opinion. live stream, but yeah, I want to see the evidence get registered someplace where it's actually a grand jury is going to be a legit thing and, you know, real things happen. And uh, I want your plan to work. That's what I'm saying. Thank you. Um, I hope it works too. You know, you, you, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry is dedicated to taking the 9-11 evidence, uh, not just the World Trade Center, but many other pieces and components, uh, sections of evidence and, and bring it into the court system. Now, the court system is largely corrupt. We've proven that over the last 20 years, just with regard to 9-11 alone. It's not completely corrupt, though. There are, there are success stories. Uh, FOIA cases that have been successfully navigated. In fact, there's one going on right now. We're a huge success for the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, uh, getting all the evidence from FEMA and NIST about Building 7. Uh, David Cole is the litigant in, in that, and they won. And, and the judge is forcing uh, FEMA uh, uh, to answer why they haven't delivered this evidence. And uh, it will have to be coming out now. Uh, how they, what, what evidence did they use uh, and all the correspondence they had with regard to <clears throat> their investigation of building seven and all the re the, the, the archives, the resources, uh, the, 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 the forensic evidence. So there's a success story. Uh, and we hope for another one as we may have to go to the Supreme court this time to get it. Okay. So you're observing the, the visible corruption of the system. And you're saying there's still some good people in that system who have given the chance could do the right thing. And if you find that legal way through to get certain things on the record, at one point, some of those people say, yeah, if you think you're right on your side, defended in court. Right. So you're giving the opportunity for freedom to emerge. You're like that, uh, that piece of grass that like cracks its way through the sidewalk, that type of metaphor. <laughs> Doing it Unfortunately, that's a, an accurate analogy. You're growing in the light direction. That's my point. All <laughs> right. So uh, where can people go to see this, uh, this grand tour of hypotheses that you uh, hosted yesterday? Yeah. 911con.org. Now, what if they're really skeptical? What's it cost to see this thing? Well, some people donate less than the suggested minimum of $25. Others donate more. So you can decide how much value you expect or hope for from the conference and donate accordingly. You'll get an email. There was, there was freedom in the process. I was like, this is, you know, it's like the antithesis of slavery. He's like, here, here's some choices. What would you like? And I got access and I was like enjoying it. It was a very easy process to go through. So, and know that it's a a benefit again, uh, uh, all the funds above our expenses uh, well, not all of them. Well, they all end up going toward the film uh, in one way or another. Uh, but 50% of them go straight into the film fund. And some of them uh, help me to uh, create the film because it's going to take a lot of time on my part. 
Well, and there's also the cost uh, so, of hosting the conference and marketing the conference and all these other things too. So people don't <laughs> yeah, realize there's $2,000 just in the Eventy app. So when you sign up, look for an email from Eventy. That's really important because some people didn't know how to get into the conference and or to watch the archive. In this case, the conference has already happened. Uh, look for that email and click on it. It's that easy. Yeah, I got two emails before I could check my email. So it was in the first one they send is the link to click in to watch live because I clicked the second one first and that's not how you do it. You click the first one. It makes sense. It works well, great. One's from Eventbrite. It can okay. be confusing. That's your receipt. Oh, geez. Don't click on that email. Confusing click people. on the one from Event E. So. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, well executed. Uh, I'm proud of you taking these steps. You know, I've known you since 2008. I've seen your progression. I've seen your consistency and your persistence and your dogged tenacity and your generosity and big heart. And you always have a good attitude of gratitude going on. You're bringing joy and value to people through doing the work that's necessary because a lot of people don't want to focus on these things all the time. So you're like the go-to guy who does it full time. You treat it like it's your job. So many people are like, thank you for, you know, and they support you. So if you appreciate Richard Gage's work, he's now over at richardgage911.org. In addition to the sites he gave earlier. Where you can see all kinds of evidence of, about the World Trade Center, for instance, which I specialize in. Actually, I'm I'm out of my field in the Pentagon, but I can bring the experts to you guys. Well, you're learning yesterday, just like I'm learning on my end when I'm watching it, you know. So mm -hmm. I appreciate that opportunity because otherwise I wouldn't have like sought out to see what the congruities are and compare and contrast those specific hypotheses together at that time, right? So you gave like a time and occasion and an easy way for people to participate in that important thought process. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for popping in tonight. I know it was late notice, but I, I wanted to uh, share the value that I was getting from the thing that you did yesterday and uh, right. make sure it gets to the time capsule for the future. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate yeah. it so much. Thank you, Richard. Have a wonderful evening. We'll catch you soon. You too, guys. All right, Tony, we've got about a half hour before we bring on our uh, special guest. We're going to talk about all things Anglo-American establishment -y type things. Uh, what kind of news do you want to cover before that? Should we do some Jimmy Dore Ukraine? Uh, I saw you a Jimmy Dore clip. You to, no, you want to do that afterwards. Um, I don't know if anyone catches him live, but I caught a live spot this week in this, uh, this comedy club in Houston. Won't sell VIP tickets in a singular. They want you to buy like six or eight at a time. And this guy was losing it for like 20 minutes. And I felt bad for him. Like, here's Jimmy. He's got no sleep. He's angry. Like, uh. but I also related, you know, because like, oh, it even happens to Jimmy Dore. These types of frustrating things of dealing with idiots who try and reinvent the wheel and be brilliant. I'll sell eight tickets at a time to an audience who's not buying eight tickets at a time. And therefore, Jimmy's not selling out a show. He could have sold out four times by now. So that's an aside. But. I didn't figure that was going to make tonight's clips. So <laughs> honorable mention, I hope he feels better. <laughs> hope he gets that resolved. He definitely almost, has that disposition though, right? I could see. I almost wanted to that. call that place in Houston and be like, I want to buy a single VIP ticket. Cause I knew there was probably other, you know, people with a sense of humor. It's like, Hey, let's, <laughs> let's call and see if we could do it. But, uh, I didn't it's already sort of a cynical and sarcastic individual, which I love Jimmy Ford, but yeah, I can see how these little things are definitely going to, he wouldn't be able to let it go necessarily, especially with all the shit he covers. Um, he's been doing a great job recently. Well, um, he's so far right. <laughs> yeah, him and him Russell, Russell Brand. Brand. Him and Russell Brand. Yeah, right. Yeah, super far <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. Um, 
as far as cover, there's this week was a very strange week just for the audience. Uh, we have a lot on the show card, but it wasn't compared to uh, pretty much the entire time I've been doing the show card nearly a year now. I'm only about a month away from being a participant or co-host now for a year that uh, it was not that crazy this week. Yes, there's a lot of crazy things going on, but the, the media talking points were I don't know, very eh. it's like the calm before the next COVID storm. Yes, you got it. That's the, what it feels like. Unfortunately, it's like when so. the surf goes out real far. Right before the title wave. <laughs> yeah, you got it. As far as uh, if we want to cover anything from the Ukraine, I mean, there's a bunch of different. We could maybe get into some Jimmy Dore clips. I don't know. There's a uh, U.S. bloody fingerprints all over the Ukraine. It's about 20 minute clip. 15 billion for Ukraine. Nothing for U.S. COVID relief. That's another Jimmy Dore clip. A couple of Russell Brand clips in here, as well as Tim Pool. Uh, there's an interesting one. Oh, that's an um, interesting parallel. I learned in the Aaron Melissa Dykes part five of the trust game last night that in the 1930s, I'm pretty sure we sent 15 billion to Nazi Germany for industrialization and stuff so they could have the biggest air force in the world right before World War II. It's no coincidence that they were able to build up their military. Just uh, like they broke ground on the, on the Pentagon before Pearl Harbor happened. Yeah. The September 11th Department of Defense, formerly the Department of War. Somebody's got a proclivity the irony dates, there. and yeah. it's not all just the beheading of Charles the first. There's other dates that they like, they have a proclivity with anyway. Uh, there's the TikTok thing. We could cover that just to get it. We did. Yeah. It. Cause I know nothing about that. Yeah. Edu- so, educate me. We have a couple, we have Jimmy Dore, we have Steven Crowder and we have Kim Iverson all talking about the same thing. Jimmy Dore has Jimmy Dore has the longest clip. Steven Crowder has the shortest clip in the middle. Middle term here would be uh Kim Iverson. She has the, well, it sounds like a fair and balanced view. So let's go door Crowder Iverson. We'll start with door. So it's about behind, halfway down the second like behind there. Jimmy door. Number one. Here's Jim Jam. I don't know if you'd like that one. That's uh, pretty funny though. Uh, so I don't know if you've seen some TikTokers talking about uh, some very popular TikTokers. She has great hair and a wonderful figure. And she's going to be talking about why is gas so expensive? I don't know if you've heard why that. Why is gas so expensive and why is the United States inflation rate at a four-time decade high? And how the fuck would she know? <laughs> well, guess what? Because the White House told her. She's one of those TikTokers who got briefed by the White House on uh, Ukraine. The White House on Thursday briefed over 30 social, around 30 social media creators covering Russia's invasion of Ukraine, according to multiple media reports. The news comes as users around the world, especially the teenagers and young adults of Gen Z, turn to TikTok to get updates from people on the ground in Ukraine amid war with Russia. The app has played a key role in bringing news and current events to its users. The TikTok creators were briefed on the strategic goals in the region, while National Security Council staffers and Saki answered questions on distributing aid to Ukrainians working with NATO and how the United States would react to a Russian use of nuclear weapons. According to a recording of the meeting obtained by the Post, the White House Director of Digital Strategy, Rob Flaherty, said that the Biden administration recognizes, quote, this is a critically important avenue in the way the American public is finding out about the latest. 
and they wanted to make sure that the influencers had the latest information from an authoritative source. Mm. Ukrainian-American TikTok creator Aaron Parnas, who has 1.2 million followers on TikTok, tweeted on Friday that, quote, I still cannot believe how blessed I am to have had the opportunity to attend a White House briefing yesterday to be armed with accurate information on how America is helping Ukraine in our European allies. He is blessed to have the opportunity to get propaganda directly from the White House. What a thrill. <laughs> Parnas, who is the son of Rudy Giuliani's former associate, Lev Parnas, told CNN that the White House allowed influencers to ask the administration officials questions about what people viewing our platforms cared about. Jury finds former Giuliani associate Lev Parnas guilty of violating U.S. finance law. Parnas was arrested. I don't care about that. I don't. So the White House briefing also comes as TikTok influencers in Russia are reportedly being paid to share videos that promote the Putin government's narrative surrounding the invasion. So we're both doing it. Isn't that nice? And so here's what she has to say about gas prices. You ready? Here we go. Why is gas so expensive and why is the United States inflation rate at a four time decade high? I had the opportunity to ask the White House why gas down the street is $7 and here's what they said. The obvious reason we're getting out of a two year pandemic when use goes up, price goes up. That's what they said. It's obvious. We're getting out of a pandemic when use goes up, the price goes up. It was always going to be $7 a gallon anyway, because now people are yeah. using it. <laughs> We got out of the pandemic, uh, you know, just ended with the uh, sanctioning of Russia. Yeah. Is that here, here we go. So that's one reason. Here's another reason. But the call is predominantly about Ukraine and Russia. So how does that relate? Russia is one of the top three producers of oil, and it is actually their number one revenue source. Now, with Putin starting this horrific fight between Ukraine and Russia, nobody wants to work with him and do an international trade. So uh, that's not true. Uh, looks like uh, Saudi Arabia, China are gung ho. Here we go. People being scared of war and limited resources. Prices are bound to go up as well. For the people who can't pay seven dollars for a gallon of gas, there's an app called Gas Buddy that shows you the cheapest gas near you, Aww. as well as a link in my bio to donate to the misplaced refugees of Ukraine. There you go. She got she she's going to tell you what the truth is because the White House told her. <laughs> I oh, can't make it up. This is driving me nuts. Okay, so I'm just going to get this on the record. This is from the Wall Street Journal of all publications. How much oil had the U.S. been importing from Russia? to about 7.9. U.S. still consumes far more oil than companies extract domestically, requiring it to import some supplies, but is less reliant on Russia's oil than Europe and only takes and takes only a small portion of its imported crude from Russia. I saw estimates as low as 3%. I just had to get that on the record because this is it's, it's tough to watch this without you know going to facts and finding out that, yeah, this is all just a narrative they're crafting that has no uh, does not pertain to reality whatsoever. Anyways, go go ahead. That's like one of many different. You don't have to think about it. You really don't got to think about it. That's right. It, there's, you want to see another one? Here's another one. So I just got off of a Zoom call with the White House about the situation in Ukraine. A number of other content creators in social media and myself were invited to this event, which was on background, meaning that we couldn't record or take pictures, but we can discuss what we learned from it. 
So unfortunately, there continues to be a massive amount of Russian misinformation on oh. TikTok. Oh. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, man, those Russians, they're all liars. Unlike us in the United States, we would never lie. Where? So I need to make a few things clear again. President Zelensky remains safe in Kiev, Ukraine. There is absolutely no evidence to corroborate the Russian government's claim that the United States is producing biological weapons in Ukraine. And Ukraine is not bombing its own citizens or committing genocide. Uh, so oh, he man, knows that. So and how does he know that? Because they told the government of the United States told him personally. That's how he knows this. So wait, so he's recognizing uh, the independence of Donetsk. Yes, because that because was, they were they, because the Ukrainian government bombed the shit out of them two days ago, killed 20 people in the center of the city. So they're not Ukrainians, according to this guy. So the whole area called the Donbass, which is the part of the Ukraine that people wanted to separate from the Ukrainian government, which was an overthrown government, right? Yeah. And Ukraine has been shelling them for eight straight years. So what that guy just said is, I don't know, is is a thousand percent. Is that a real number? If that's a real number, then he's a thousand percent wrong. And he's spreading misinformation, not only misinformation, he's spreading propaganda and disinformation. And it's pro-war disinformation propaganda. Mm. That's what that guy's doing. Russian government is the only one bombing civilians. Please make sure to call out misinformation on this app when you see it. Because unfortunately, the Russian government is paying TikTokers to create content for it. And that needs to be stopped immediately. Russia has bombed a building with an experimental nuclear reactor in it at the Kharkiv Institute of Physics and Technology in Ukraine's second biggest city on the eastern border of the country. There's no reason to freak out. We would know by now if there'd been a nuclear explosion. Oh my this God. just shows how far Russia is willing to go or alternatively, how careless they are with their bombs. According to them, one reason that this crisis is specifically notable is because of the size of the invasion, which is the largest since World War II. Second, they acknowledge that this coverage imbalance exists for crises throughout the world and encourage us as content creators to use our platforms to highlight different issues as they arise, especially when mainstream media fails to do so. Third, they said that just because something isn't getting mainstream coverage in media doesn't mean that the United States isn't giving aid, whether that be monetary, humanitarian, or military aid to other issues throughout the globe. And last, they said that they hope that this crisis at least raises the public consciousness around geopolitical issues throughout the world, and that even though Americans may not be proud of other things the United States has done globally, that they hope that we can look back on this moment and see how the United States rallied the West to stand up against Russia and be proud of that. And once again, that's what they said. <laughs> at least he put that in there. At least he put that in there at the end. Once again, that's what they said. Okay, so at least he did that. So good for him, at least. Uh, now you should go watch that guy. Should go watch this show and then do another TikTok video. Hey, it turns out what they said was all bullshit because I just watched Jimmy and Max tell me. Uh, TikTok Joe Biden slammed for using influencers to blame rising gas prices, inflation <laughs> on Russia. Here is uh, the White House told TikTok influencers who were invited on the Zoom call to blame the high gas prices on Putin, and they did it. So the White House is spreading propaganda and misinformation with which their TikTok buddies are now spreading. 
don't talk to me about social media and misinformation <laughs> if this doesn't piss you off and you say so publicly. So that's right. You're you're upset about Alex Jones. You're upset about the government doing this. Uh, I was skeptical. By the way, I was skeptical about the war in Ukraine until the White House called a special war meeting with the TikTok stars. Now everything seems totally legit. <laughs> so Max, how isn't this like? So they used to have to do this clandestinely. They used to do what was it called? Co- CoIntelPro. And um, but now they just do it right out in the open. Isn't that weird? Well, Operation Mockingbird was when the CIA covertly paid journalists throughout the 60s and 70s, mainly to promote the war in Vietnam and other CIA activities was uncovered by Carl Bernstein, who then became one of the biggest promoters of Russiagate. I know. (laughs) And, you know, the FBI and that whole racket. So. What was um, COINTELPRO? COINTELPRO was a dirty op waged by the mainly J. Edgar Hoover's FBI to infiltrate and disrupt uh, left-wing and revolutionary organizing in the U.S. For example, by sending poison pen letters uh, from one Black Panther leader to the other uh, in instigating, uh, you know, oh, okay. turf war, that kind of stuff, dirty tricks. Um but so and now, Mocking, you know, Mockingbird, that Mockingbird was the thing that was uncovered by the church committee, right? Now the left does it on its own without any FBI encouragement. Yes, like any, anyone who dissents from the Covidian regime will just be like, uh, yes, <laughs> castigated with and, you know, the whole left will be divided just on its own. Um, or, you know, during the Syria dirty war, you had a whole faction of the left that was just basically echoing the State Department but using like crude Marxist uh, rhetoric to do so. So I don't think they even need COINTELPRO anymore and they don't need to pay all these TikTokers because you just, I mean, one Department of Education after another is implemented, you know, many children left behind programs yes. where critical thinking is ruled yes. out. You only graduate if you have, you know, good test scores and, you know, they're in, they're incapable. I think most youth are seeing through this and what it really reminds me of, actually, is what the U.S. has done in places like Ukraine. This was how the Maidan so-called revolution of dignity began in many ways. This was how so many young people were brought out onto the central square in Kiev was that U.S. intelligence through its cutouts, like the National Endowment for Democracy or the Open Society Foundations, um, Omidyar was involved, this billionaire oligarch who's close to the Democrats, today owns The Intercept. They were setting up media hubs and media outlets to instigate regime change activity, and they would train youth, uh, you know, ambitious, tech-savvy, sort of middle-class, liberal-minded youth in Kiev in social media technology, how to get the message out. And then, you know, they would have them go on Facebook. Everyone get down to Maidan. It's going down. Then they'd give them ponchos that were all the same color. And, you know, there's, they'd, they'd have that fist that was omnipresent in all of the color revolutions that uh, took, a, took that saw um, Soviet former Soviet bloc states and their governments toppled and replaced with neoliberal technocratic governments. It all started with some youth getting out in the central square who had been trained in social media at the advent of the internet. So now it's all coming home in order to promote 
the next phase, which is, you know, they've done the color revolutions. They've got NATO troops on Russia's borders. They've betrayed all of those youth who went out and protested. They never got the liberal future they believed they would get. Instead, they got another autocracy with corrupt oligarchs in control who just happened to love the U.S., who pillaged their countries. And now we're moving towards straight up conventional warfare with Russia and the dumbest, most ambitious, most suggestible influencers are being called in to try to dupe the youth into joining along with this escalation war party and thinking and acting like neoconservatives while they, you know, they dress like hipsters. I don't I don't think it I don't think it's going to work. I think this backfired and it exposes the one of the fatal flaws of this administration, which is that the president and the vice president are incapable of speaking to the American people because they're incapable of speaking. I mean, Kamala Harris, did you hear uh, she was on a radio show, an urban radio show recently, and she was asked to explain the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And she said in this bizarre vocal fry that was completely put on, you got a big country trying to take out a small country. And the big country went in and ate the small country all up. And so the small countries needs us to rescue it from the big country. And that is the person that this administration sent to Poland and Romania to rally the NATO allies in this supposedly civilizational fight against Russia. This person who comes off as, you know, some who, who makes Sarah Palin look like next level genius. Then you got Nancy Pelosi. Do you see her in, in uh, trying to explain yes. the need to uh, take out the Russian convoy? Yes. I mean, I don't know how many brunch martinis she had before that, but she was talking about taking out the tanks. It seemed like she was tanked. Yes. I mean, the whole, the whole administration and its allies, their, their communication strategy is collapsed. Gas prices are going over $7. That, those young TikTokers, they will own nothing and be happy. Those are the people like in the World Economic Forums who will actually be happy. And that what, that, what they mean, by the way, in you know the, this whole Great Reset meme everyone's sharing is not that you will live in a socialist paradise where you'll own nothing, but you'll live in a communitarian utopia. It means you're going to be renting forever, living in your parents' basement. You won't be able to afford a mortgage. You won't be able to afford gas, so you can't even power your Uber working in the gig economy. And you're just going to be a serf in an oligarchy, just like the one that we have constructed, the United States constructed, that Joe Biden presided over since the 2014 coup in Ukraine. And those are our shared values with Ukraine, by the way. So that's the future for these young people that they're eagerly promoting. All the money that should go to their education is being sent to Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and a bunch of Pentagon contractors so they can build second homes in Vail and Aspen and get McMansions in suburban DC, getting rich off this giant arms shipment to Ukraine and the supposed great power competition with Russia and China. That's where their future is going and they're participating in it. And the White House, where are they? The one thing we saw Biden say today was he walked off stage after refusing questions from the press, and then he got pulled in by a reporter. And the one thing he said was disastrous. He said, Putin, I think he's a war criminal. 
What does that mean? Well, many people be watching, maybe you think Putin's a war criminal, maybe he is. What we need right now is an off-ramp so that Russia can de-escalate. We should be de-escalating. There should, it, and, and what, what Biden did is obstruct negotiations there. He upped the ante, as he did during the campaign when he said he looked into Putin's soul, he looked into Putin's face and called him a thug. Uh, you know, he's just he's just he's just thinks he's on the campaign trail, puffing out his chest before a bunch of voters. But this is serious stuff, and all they want to do is escalate. So we're edging closer and closer to conventional war, and the White House is speaking to the public through people with the collective IQ of a grapefruit. Max Blumenthal, thanks for being <laughs> oh, with us. Everybody check out Max. Looking forward. Yeah, that was a good ending right there. Yeah, that was a fantastic ending. I mean, I don't yeah. even know where to begin. But that'll, I'll be using that montage begin on of them, clips. Uh, using children now to carry the water for their message. Which it's not the first time the British State the, Department innovated that in the 19th century. Up until the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, I don't think it was legal in America for the government to pr- point their propaganda at us or for the CIA to point their propaganda at us even though implicitly they that always in 2012, right? Yeah. Right. Like I'm not naive about that, but it just seemed like they got the, the green check mark that it's okay and palatable and expected in this post-fact world that they would do things like what you're saying. Yeah. Post-fact. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'll be showing that montage during my logic course. Cause that there's so many fallacies. I can't even begin to name them all. Neglected aspect, ad hominem, ad ignorantium, non sequitur, petitio principi, uh, question begging epithet. I mean, my, it just went on and on. It's unfortunate because they're using the youth It's Hey, it's an old British model. We went over this uh, in detail, you know, uh, the British State Department in the 19th century. Yeah, right. Why, why change it up? The fact that they're not hiding it, though, to uh, those you know, kids. Jimmy, Jimmy's point, that the clandestine was done clandestinely in the past. The fact that they're just like out in the open, like, yeah, we're funding them. We're influencing them. Yeah, we, we're doing this. No one. Those cares. kids had answers to questions to which they never asked the questions or figured out the answers. So that's indoctrination. Yeah. They just that's the opposite like, of thinking. They, just, they got briefed. In a private way, and they're like, put your own words on it, you know. Automatons, they're just regurgitating like a computer what they were told to say. How convenient. That's not I good. Mean, no, it's not good at all. Not good. It's I not do want to get freedom. this on the record record about the color revolutions. Um, the first one that really manifested the orange one in Ukraine in 2004. Well, there's that one, but there's one even before that from 1998 to 2004, the Serbian one. Uh OTPOR was an or political organization in Serbia. This was Soros funded. So the original like model for this came from this like original Soros funded project in Serbia. And uh, you can see what, so when we talk about the videos and the fact that like handing out ponchos and the, the fist and the, uh, the organization, the, the galvan, galvanizing youth through Facebook and social media, Instagram, so forth and so on. This all stems from sort of this original uh, idea of re- resistance is the name, I guess, stylized Serbian acrylic. Uh, this means in English, it means resistance. So that. what year is that? This was from 98 to 2004. And this, right, and so Soros has a specific. So if we look at it here, October 5th, 2000, the bulldozer revolution movement funded partly by George Soros. So that Slobodan Milosevic from power. Slobodan Milosevic. Milosevic. Yeah. He got a Tomahawk missile sent to his house by Bill Clinton. Yes, he did. Yeah, that's right. So the LA Times report on Soros's role, noting the problems it would cause if he were to get too much credit for his activities by providing lots of money to already existing but struggling groups that Soros believed to be "quote unquote" pro-democracy, including the student group uh, OTPOR. Uh, Soros was able to topple that country, so they used the student group 
Uh, it kind of reminds me of this, you know, students for democratic society and weather underground. I don't know what underground student movement, but they're more, but much Globalist more infiltration but, of student movements to progress their or, agendas or just to young, make it look like grassroots. You can make it look grassroots. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's when they get that. Cause that's, and we go real quick. If we look at, for example, COINTEL PRO, I don't know about that. Strategies and tactics, take an offensive approach, understand the concept of power and numbers, develop a superior communication strategy. Create the perception of a successful movement. Invest in the skills and knowledge of. Sounds activists. like a bunch of Gene Sharp strategies from 1968. Yeah, Gene Sharp rules for radicals. CIA sort of to idea. overthrow yeah. many countries. Yeah, that's the same model. There is a there it, the Gene Sharp like manifesto. What's it called? Rules for radicals, or whatever. No, he did that. One. No, the movie about Gene Sharp is called How to Start a Revolution. Um, well, I'm thinking of Solowinski. I'm sorry. Solowinski, right. of course, yeah, Solowinski. Hillary Clinton's mentor. But they existed around the same time. Yeah, this came out in '71. Bills for radical Solowinski. Yeah, Hillary. That's great. Yeah, this is a whole. We could go into a whole deep dive just on this, but I think people. The, the anyways, the point is, this model has been around for a long time. Uh, we've talked about it quite a bit on this show about sort of galvanizing galvanizing the youth to foment sort of a revolutionary sentiment throughout history how long is that crowder clip five minutes let's play that crowder clip because then our guests should be here and we can uh switch gears get into some higher speed information thank you ld now we move on to a story here and i want to go through all of this so you guys understand how this affects you the macro because look russia of russia ukraine regardless of where you line up on what the united states should do if they should be involved at all I don't think so. I certainly don't want to see us go to war. I think you, I think it's completely reasonable. I think, as a matter of fact, uh, I'd think less of you if you weren't empathetic to the people whose lives are being lost in Ukraine. Of course, your heart breaks. That being said, it's one corrupt crap hole fighting another more aggressive corrupt crap hole. That's, that's my opinion on it. But that's irrelevant to this discussion. Okay. Um, trying to think of the best way. Let's start off with this. You may know that uh, Jen Psaki met with influencers, TikTokers, mm. to give them talking points uh, regarding the Russia-Ukraine narrative. And this is not the first time they've done it. And there's, of course, some subtext there that they decided to meet with TikTokers on a platform run by the Communist Chinese Party. Mm. So they feel safe. In other words, they feel safe. The White House feels safe enough in you know, handing out the talking points to people, these influencers, that uh, they may offend Russia, but not those in power in China. So that should tell you what kind of a risk they're willing to take here and who they're in bed with. Now, here is, for those who don't believe me, again, all references available at lotoscredit.com, here, uh, here are a few clips of these TikTokers repeating the points given to them, admittedly, from the White House. So I just got off of a Zoom call with the White House about the situation in Ukraine. A number of other content creators in social media and myself were invited to this event, which was on background, meaning that we couldn't record or take pictures, but we can discuss what we learned from it. Second, Russian troops are not happy with their own invasion, Dwight? and it's really <laughs> impacting Russia's yeah. ability Beats. to make progress in this war. Third, Russia is not <laughs> going to win in Ukraine. He's a star, folks. I had the opportunity to ask the White House why gas down the street is $7, and here's what they said. I'm glad to the see they place emphasis on authoritative sources. Yes. When goes up, the price goes up. 
Let's get an but ass model to talk about this. Ukraine and Russia, so how does that relate? Russia is one of the top three producers of oil, and it is actually their number one revenue source. Now, with Putin starting this horrific fight between Ukraine and Russia, nobody wants to work with him and do an international trade. So these are the people that the White House chose to meet with. Now, again, what's really important is we'll get to the view and what happens with legacy media. But this just shows you how low their standard is. Remember, they've always said it's about authoritative sources. Yours truly has been suspended from YouTube for quoting the CDC. My bad. They've said, well, hold on, you can't take anything from, uh, from Louder with Crowder because it's not an authoritative source. No, right, but all right, the right. references that we provide every single day are, we don't even provide conservative references. It's either from a neutral source, if it's a scientific paper or a journal, or from a left-leaning source. We just use Washington Post or Huffington Post or New York Times, just so you know that we're not the only ones saying it. So let's throw that out. The left doesn't care, and certainly this White House doesn't actually care about authoritative sources or accurate information. Do you know how I know? When you, got, you want to ask me, do you know how I know? How do you know? Because here are some of the other videos from these TikTokers. Did white Americans make clothes from the skins of black people? Welcome to episode nine of Hidden History, which is the only thing that can reflect American history. On March 17th, well, we, we can tell him yes, right? Yeah. A doctor wearing shoes made from the skin of Negroes. It says that the doctor had no sentiment about the matter and that he felt he shouldn't be described as acting to racial prejudice because he Dr. wasn't from Lecture? the South and he had fought yeah. to free black people in the Civil War. Oh, a hot girl who's terrible at dancing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's who you chose. Can I take this opportunity to, uh, this is a public service announcement. No more mom jeans. It's not flattering to anybody. I get that you think they're <laughs> ironic. You look stupid. SNL did the best. Like, it was like With Tina Fey, yeah. It was so funny. But now it's in style. Yeah, where Chris Parnell is just like looking at his wife disgusted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not funny. They're not ironic. I don't, they're not, uh, just stop. Yeah, that's just, yeah. that's a very, very attractive girl who can't even dance. Look, if you're very, very attractive and you just want to cut cut your detractors off at the pass, get good at something. Just learn how to do one dance well. Yeah. She can't even do that. You could but the White House has her on speed dial. Like, this yeah. is the person we want communicating to everybody. Look, I get people. I suggest become, being a mime. I didn't yeah, mean well. to interrupt you, but I just would appreciate it because she would not talk, and it's a skill. Yes. <laughs> it is a skill. We had a mime in the other day. It is yeah. a skill. Yeah. We would have preferred her to be in here. Well, it would have been mime. better. We probably yeah. would have had better guesses. Yes. Thing. But you're telling me the, the guy that's uh, – this is the, the next episode. We just talked to the White House, and then the guy that's like four on my list. Right. Really, these are the these are the people that we're, we're trusting for our news. Yeah, <laughs> the star of Asperger's Nightly, who's yeah. just like – and number five. <laughs> and number three, Battlestar Galactica. Now, number six. Goodness. My virginity. Gracious. Still intact. Still intact. The yeah. closet door opens. You just see someone fall through with a ball gag. Stop. Yeah. I have to cut. Watch. La- All right. So some of those clips we've seen before, but it's uh, it's an interesting uh, time capsule edition because in five minutes, you're getting to see a bunch of the idiocracy that passes for news or people being informed. And uh, I think it, we're like at a low watermark. It went from. Yeah, that's my point I tried to make earlier. Yeah, about the presenters like Cronkite, who might have been in yeah. on things, right? Because sure. he's got that whole thing at his award ceremony with yeah. the aforementioned Hillary Clinton. And he oh, says that famous, thing, yeah. right? So I don't trust him as far as I can throw him. 
but at least that guy was informed enough to be like trusted on the inside. These are people so naive and ignorant and dumb and numb to the world that they're just being unwitting pawns in a game, like human cannon fodder, making more cannon fodder with ill information. So yeah, I don't, fair analogy. I don't think that's good. That's not good for Nope. And like you see, it's sort of Crowder gave a little bit more context to the type of uh, information that those TikTokers put out, like the type of productions they do, in other words, for TikTok and like what they're into. And you can just, you know, hot girls dancing and or just like some dude talking about some false sense of history with shoes. Like what? Like it's it just shows you the quality is absurdly low, but it also shows you what the White House must think of the average American. I think that's it's more of an implication of their viewpoint of the average individual that's consuming this type, especially younger individuals that are consuming this type of information. The fact that we're so scatterbrained right now to take in TikTok videos that are what, 20 seconds, 40 seconds, a minute long, something like that. I know the youth love it. Like they, they just eat this up, but to not be able to sit down and have, I don't know, to take in information over longer stretches of time. I noticed, noticed this on YouTube as well, or BitChute or Odyssey, whatever. Um, 20, 15 minute clips, you know, it's almost as if we're so trained by media because before it's 30 minute sitcoms right on TV, but you had 10 minutes worth of commercials. So we're, it's as if we're like trained to take in 20 minutes and then we can't handle more than 20 minutes. I noticed that recently. I'm like, oh yeah, that's why, you know, they short attention spans are useful to control people, not for liberating oneself. You're going to need to expand your attention span. Speaking of which LD, are you keeping an eye out for our guest? I am, excuse me, and there's somebody of that first name, and if that's you, would you raise your hand? Because I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I see. Wait a second. There we go. He identified himself. It's all getting figured out right now on the fly as we do it live. This is exciting. All right. So um, he's here. Yeah. Using TikTok going forward. I've never used, like, I don't have TikTok. I don't have Facebook, never had a Facebook account, these sort of things, but I see people around me getting sucked into those things. And when I asked them like, Hey, what are you getting out of that? Like the questions could be answered with, Oh, I'm going to be famous or, or something like that. So it's like, maybe we need to aim higher too. Maybe that's why we have journalism at an all time low. Cause people accept it instead of aiming higher and saying, I want and deserve something better. Maybe that's it. For themselves and for the world, you would think. But, uh, you know, that's why you have to get to the youth at a young age. That's famous slogan. uh, Give me a child until he's seven. I will show you the man. Something of that nature. Sometimes attributed to certain Jesuits. Other times attributed to other individuals. It's it's been passed around by useful dictators through the ages. Jesuits. Lenin's got a quote like that. There's a whole bunch of quotes to that effect. And, uh, yeah, controlling the minds of the youth is uh, it just tells tells you a lot about your enemy that they aim like the the least among us, the youngest among us, the least defended, you know, and they seek to remove them from the house and indoctrinate them for long periods of time. But in order to undo that, you have to elongate your attention span. You have to point it at things maybe available for consideration in your factual, actual historical picture of the world. I like to do such things and enrich my mind on a regular basis. And I had been keeping an eye on, uh, Reiner Fulmick's uh, German lawyers doing this investigation and interviewing people for like the past year. And then they started doing the, the grand jury. And I woke up one morning and I had several emails to this effect. They said, you have to check out day two of the grand jury and you have to watch Alex Thompson's presentation because he talks about GCHQ and Kroll Associates in South Africa. And that's what got me there. But I didn't stop after I heard Alex's presentation. I heard the next presenter 
and I was even more pleased with this presentation. His name is Matthew Eret. I had no idea that he existed. And after watching that presentation, I was like, oh, we are all like going to be good friends in the future because we have identified from multiple perspectives, similar things, and we should trade notes and useful tools and resources. And do you know about this document? And, you know, I'll look at that one. And I just sensed like a great growth opportunity in those just first two presentations for the truth movement. And I couldn't wait to see what else is going to be in that grand jury. And I'm still trying to catch up on that as well. There's a lot of good evidence being put on the record lately. And I think that we not only need it now to make better decisions, but the future deserves to inherit a better, cleaner, truer, more factual, less propagandized history than we all inherited. And that's part of like the reward of the struggle we're going through is leaving it better for the next generation than we inherited it. Cause we got it in the world of JFK and all those things that Richard Gage just said, JFK, uh, Watergate, uh, Iran Contra, BCCI, uh, Waco, uh, Ruby Ridge, OKC, all the way up to nine 11 without anyone being held accountable. So I don't think we should let tyranny perpetuate into the future on resisted. And I think that more intellectuals like Matthew need to be Johnny on the spot like this and get their word out. So I wanted to offer this platform and uh, first meet you. Pleased to meet you, Matthew. How are you doing? Hey, pleased to meet you too, Richard. Uh, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Hi, Tony. Hi. It's a pleasure to meet you as well. Incredible Hi. work. I've been all over your websites recently. Um, a awesome. friend of mine showed it to me and I was the the cover the fact you cover so many different topics and you also get into ancient history as well from so many different authors like i just it's incredible i've been yeah. really diving into a lot of the articles uh, i had like 30 really tabs open it. from clicking oh i'm interested yeah. in what you because i didn't know so i, <laughs> I got, have it yeah. up here i have like a well, so it's one now. of these problems right when you start realizing that everything is connected and everything is just sort of different aspects of the same ultimate uh story then it kind of gets you onto so many different parallel paths that seem yes. very uh, different at first until you start picking away at it and you realize the source is the same. Yes. Um, Got it. So yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm glad that you guys are, are uh, responding well to, or resonating well to it. Yeah. And then I had this book set on my desk to remind me, cause I just got this. This is William Dalrymple's uh, the company quartet on the East India company. And I'd watched a bunch of talks by him. And I was like, I got to get that book set. And at the same time, I went to Amazon and I put all your books in my Amazon cart too. But then I asked the question, does he offer them directly? Could I buy them in a way? Maybe they get signed and you keep more of the money because you don't have Amazon in the middle. So what's the story with your books before? So I can take this off my desk. So I don't have to remember for the rest of the night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh no thanks for letting me plug my book that's a great that's a great intro for that you have many books uh, plug them all yeah yeah sure well you know um i i've got a like you said quite a few i, I did i originally started off with a series of books that were the culmination of about a decade's worth of work on a canadian history project because i'm here in montreal that's that's where i'm based and um you know, I got into some political activism for quite some time but it was a u.s organization with a, a small canadian outlet uh, without a strong sense of what the hell is Canada? Why are we a monarchy in, in the Americas? Why didn't we join the American Revolution? Like, wh what is the deep state in Canada? That was sort of a, a term that's obviously people have started utilizing more and more in the last few years. So to piece things together, we started a, a Canadian history project. And, uh, and that started by just answering the question of why did Ben Franklin leave uh, disappointed after five weeks of mobilizing here in Montreal in 1776. He was up here, you know, trying to get the 14th colony to join and say together with the other 13, 
we will declare independence and create this new type of government that had never been seen that rejects hereditary institutions. Um, so why did we fail to accept that challenge? So that was sort of the, the, the big question that kickstarted the project. And then from there, that took us into other questions like why did our rebellions, we had Republican rebellions in the 1830s, a couple in, in English speaking and, and French speaking Canada, both of them were subverted by, <laughs> I heard the reference to, uh, or the allusion to Bertrand Russell, or at least the, the Jesuitical reference, mm -hmm. and, um, and getting them when they're young. But Bertrand Russell's grandfather was in charge at the time at the British, British East India Company and the British, British Empire suppressing the Canadian rebellion. So what was that story about? Then what, why did Abraham Lincoln's allies in Canada, who, were, who, were, uh, who had found themselves in very high positions of power and influence in the Canadian government in, during the Civil War, why did they fail to achieve an independent Canada at the end of the, that Civil War? Why were they ousted? What, why, why was um, a, a confederacy, a, a, a British-run Northern Confederacy brought in instead of us becoming a republic when that was... Uh, everything was moving in another direction. So what was that story about? And then up throughout the 20th century, what was the role of the round table, these British think tanks, the Fabian society, how did they shape the, the, uh, the policies, not only of Canada, but of the, of the entirety of North America throughout the, the 20th century, using a lot of Carol Quigley's work helped enormously. I know you guys have, have also talked a lot about Quigley. Um, that helped piece a lot together. And uh, from there, answering such questions like, well, what is British Canada? Why have we been used to run assassinations of people like Lincoln from Montreal, which is where John Wilkes Booth was deployed to kill Lincoln? And what about the case of JFK, whose Permindex, I mean, Mortimer, the, the figure who ran uh, Permindex Corporation, which was identified by um, uh, Jim Garrison, the district attorney of New Orleans, um, who ran the only jury trial over the death of JFK, he wrote in his final book on the trail of the assassins, uh, he sort of compiled all of his 30 years of research and put together the picture that had uh, Permindex, a, a Montreal-based organization, which was formed during World War II as sort of an assassination bureau that grew out of this thing called Camp X. Yes. Uh, this is at the heart of a lot of assassinations, and this is what was at the heart of killing JFK. Again, Montreal. So what the hell is this thing called Canada? So we, we published these four books, uh, or I published three of the four. Um, those are available on my website. And then more recently this year, I published um, with my wife, uh, Cynthia, The Clash of the Two Americas from 1774 until the present. And volume three should be out pretty soon. If people want to not buy them on Amazon, you can get The Two Americas from me directly by sending me an email to um, info at risingtidefoundation.net. Um, I can throw a little signature in there if people want. Otherwise, unfortunately, Amazon just made it really convenient for me. And I, I feel a bit of disdain using them, but eh, that's, what I, that's what I did. No, I understand that. I understand that. And uh, I've got Permendex here. Not, I didn't do a whole lot of research on it, but yeah, the idea of, uh, I think, yeah, I was going to mention Clay Shaw. Was yeah. that someone Garrison associated with Permendex? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's on the yeah. board. He was on the trademark uh, board of directors and uh yeah he's definitely tied to louis mortimer bloomfield on permindex yeah. yeah okay so um the angle on permindex is interesting because you brought up camp x and yeah. i know about that, camp yeah. x 
And I had just listened to a really good interview a couple weeks ago on Camp X before I went on maybe Grimerica or one of the podcasts I did. They had just done this whole thing. And I saw, I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll listen to that. Cause I was like, what are they playing recently on the podcast? Let me check it out. And I knew a, a good bit about Camp X, but this guy was really in detail about that farm. And that farm is what was used to create the CIA farm training center, right? And Camp X was an assassin training camp, but we also have a camp here in America that was an assassin training camp called Camp David. It's called Camp David now, but prior to it being repurposed as a presidential peace type retreat, it was used for that type of uh, uh, mm. covert training, right? But Camp X opened December 6, 1941. The night before Pearl Harbor, it's ready to say, go and start training yeah. Americans to get into the war on the side of the British. And um, I had given this presentation a couple of weeks ago that showed like I have the, the memoirs of John Cecil Masterman, who was in charge of MI6 at the time. He's like, we were running Agent Tricycle and Garbo and these other agents. And they knew about Pearl Harbor ahead of time. And they didn't want to tell the Americans because it would it, like, it spoiled the the, the spawning relationship they were just getting back together after this long departure and if they knew they were running all if the americans knew that the british were running those spies and knew about such things it would have compromised their ability to keep spying on us like they like it kind of has been so um this spy ever... set up the situation real quick whereby yeah, which we set up the embargo for the oil situation that caused japan to be incentivized to bomb pearl harbor with the sort of inability for them to gain the necessary oil they needed to fund their war efforts. So like it was actually all sort of I remember that going back to Peace Revolution, like 84 or something like that. Yeah, but you went into you extreme about detail it, about how in which they helped to got, sort of develop the policy that FDR put in place that then, you know, well, FDR and his brain trust. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the way I see it is when America so I was I was really inspired to hear your perspectives, Matthew, because you don't live in the United States. And I was always looking at it as an American looking at the right. empire, but you're a Canadian looking at the empire. And Alex Thompson, he, uh, I believe that's his name. He's from uh, UK and he worked in GCHQ, which is like the predecessor and granddaddy of the, the NSA. So it was, it was really interesting and inspiring. And um, I thought this Anglo-American connection it does. It touches Canada a whole lot. And I really hadn't done a whole lot of processing on that. <clears throat> um, and that's why I found, that's why I wanted to get your books and get up to speed and be like, what's he know that we don't know over here and vice versa. What can we do? Um, where did you get into like the roads round table aspects? Did that show up in Canada too? Were there roads round table and Oxford scholars up there in Canada? messing with oh, you guys as well certainly yeah you can't understand anything about canada unless you zero in on the the yeah exactly now the the Rhodes scholarship the Rhodes scholars that whole hive of zombies who are indoctrinated and processed through the halls of oxford you know there's about 30 every year who are granted a, an indoctrination um fully paid for by the the ill-begotten gains of, gains of cecil Rhodes. um and, you know, for those who don't know or may not know listening right now, uh, Cecil Rhodes was a, a race patriot, rabid, uh, most likely pedophile as well as everything else that he did uh, sitting in Rhodesia. That's where the, the, the area of South Africa, which today encompass, encompasses much of South Africa, Zimbabwe, a bit, a bit more. That was called Rhodesia. He was the governor and he ran things like uh, De Beers came out of his um, empire. And he was, uh, he worked very closely with many leading race patriots. I mean, everybody who's higher up, higher up in the British echelons are considered race patriots. 
uh, so-called, in the sense that they would like the world to be exterminated of all impure races and only uh, allotted space for the Anglo-Saxon pure, pure breeds, uh, where maybe a few of the lower breeds are permitted to exist to do some of the manual labor, you know? So there's a lot of pictures of him being like carried around by, uh, by black Africans. Um, so he got, he made a lot of money. He had uh, a cup, Nathaniel Rothschild was a big investor as well, close collaborator with him. Um, and he was recruited to become, uh, to, to set up a secret society as he writes it in his will, which was, he wrote several wills, but his, his big one, in 1877 served as sort of the guiding manifesto for how this Rhodes Trust was going to operate when he died and how his, his funds would be utilized. So on the one hand, it was the Rhodes Scholarship System set up in order to, um, as he said, create a church of the British Empire, a form of secret society in order to recapture the United States. They, I mean, the British Empire, even generations after the revolution, never forgave the USA for creating a new precedent of rebelliousness um, in the world. I mean, this was the only one world government after all the, the sun never set for a very long time uh, around just this one little island. You're wondering how, how did this one little island control such a grand swath of global territory? And it's, it's because they had a, a very intricate multi-layered system tied to the city of London banking uh, complex, which just like today, even back then in the, in the 18th century, was still the world's center of finance. It had an outpost that it, it had cultivated in, in many or in all of its colonies. It had outposts, uh, financial hubs, whether it was later on Hong Kong in uh, the outskirts of China or whether it was Wall Street that it had set up in uh, largely 1799 with the Bank of Manhattan founded by Aaron Burr, uh, who used money he was supposed to spend when he was vice president on a water project. And instead, he used it to, to found the Bank of Manhattan that became the basis of Wall Street. Um, <clears throat> So you had this whole international tentacle system with a very developed intelligence agency, a capacity to profile different courts, kingdoms, and, uh, and personalities that would be targeted for dismantling or, or self-destruction. Um, if people want to get a sense of this, I, I always recommend read Schiller, uh, Shakespeare's Othello if they, for a really good clinical case study into the mind of the, this type of intelligence apparatus. And just look at the character of Iago and how Iago operates from Venice because Iago, this is all taking place in Venice and it's, it's a little segue, but I'm going to get back to the round table, but, but Iago's character is somebody who everybody trusts is honest Iago. He's driven by something that is purely evil and he just wants to destroy Othello, this great hero general, this, this Moor, um, who is, a, a, I mean, he's, won multiple battles he's he has the love of a beautiful damsel uh, who just adores him desdemona and he just plants little seeds of gossip and he profiles everybody's weaknesses where's othello's point of jealousy insecurity how does he inflame that against othello's own best friend who he gets to basically kill him and ultimately to kill his own wife um so he's just able to whisper in everyone's ear and everyone just still trusts this bastard um, until all of these people, if they only would just talk to each other and realize how they were all being played and have that conversation, they would be able to, to break free of his spell. But nobody does that. They're all just so stuck in their own egos and they play into his traps and they all self-destruct. So Shakespeare is really just showcasing. He does this also in The Merchant of Venice and a few other plays to just showcasing the nature and the structure of this oligarchical parasite, which it's if you want to know the British Empire, really you can't understand it if you don't see how the Venetians which I was, was the former say, center. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's now we're getting into it's it. It's a critique of Venice, yeah, and the Venetian oligarchy that existed around them that also set up little Platonic and Aristotelian cults and these various things because the new translations were starting to come over. This was around the time of the Gutenberg printing press. I mean, there's so many things that were happening. I remember when I went over to Venice, you look at this, this the Senate room that existed in some of the old buildings there. It's really fascinating. Some of the architecture, some of the, uh, the, the arts, and just the way they set it up is very, I don't know, reminiscent of what we're kind of, Absolutely. Today. I mean, it's this exactly almost like, it's like, like it looks like the exact same thing. Yeah. For, for a thousand years after the fall of the Roman Empire, this became from like 600 AD all the way up until like six, 16, 17, 1688, I would say. This yes. was a, a central point globally in maritime bullion control, maritime shipping along with Genoa. Yep. Um, yeah, Genoa, had, the slave trade because the Genoese controlled the slave trade big time back yeah, I got some days. slave trade oh, over here man it's it. they it yeah, was the secret society hub. slave trades oligarchy I'm glad you mentioned that because it's really the model it really is the model and a lot of people don't realize that that because a lot of times people approach me and say well you know, you guys talk about the British Empire but what about the Jesuits what about the Vatican or what about this what about that and I'm like well I mean we could it's really They're locating a philosophy story. or an ideology of control and power that Should has talk, permeated uh, and transmuted Venice or Lord Palmerston Zoo. Yeah, Palmerston Zoo is a classic. <laughs> Those are both great pieces by Webster Tarpley before his brains melted. Uh, yeah, those were most of my favorite, the Black Nobility and the Venetian full, Conspiracy. Fulbright scholar Webster Tarpley. I always use his full title. <laughs> full title. Well, Fulbright as well, right? Senator Fulbright, another Rhodes Scholar, yeah. Right, uh, yeah. <laughs> American version, <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah, yeah. that's what you brought, you brought up the tentacles too. Uh, we can't, uh, be remiss, we don't mention um, British Danny Freemasonry. Casalero. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, Danny Classel, it's sure, but British Freemasonry is a really sure. important sort of element too. Brad, Jessica Harlan Jacobs' book, The British Empire and Freemasonry, is something to sort of reference where it but shows they set up the cultural elements, yes, where the and then they set up forts, and then they, they, oh, it was Freemasonic lodges, then trading posts, then forts, you got fortified it. trading posts, and then they made it a colony. And there was like this step of progression. Are you familiar with that book, Matt? I am not familiar with that particular book, though. It, I do find British Freemasonry fascinating. Um, and especially the Rosicrucian pre, you know, mm -hmm. pre Freemasonic -free uh, operations too are very, very useful to look into. And I'm just, pre yeah. I'm preparing a presentation right now uh, that I'm going to have to deliver in a couple of weeks, and I'm, I'm underprepared. But I, I've just been delving into the uh, the the life and times, the geopolitical environment of Thomas More, like what was the world Ooh. he was living in, and uh, this has forced me to really confront a lot of these occult Freemasonic operations. Well, it was pre again Rosicrucian. Uh, secret society operations that were being run within the courts of England at the time, which is very interesting because it, it sort of leads you into what the hell did, did Henry VIII, the guy who had all of this potential, he was trained by this, by, by, by Thomas More um, to be a continuation of his father, Henry VII's policies to break the Venetian empire. I mean, Henry VII was one of the key guys who organized, who was part of the, the organizing process that was going on in 1508, 1509, Erasmus was a part of that. Uh, Erasmus, so was yeah. Leonardo da Vinci Machiavelli to create the League of Cambrai. And most so of the Medici's know. were still in power at that point too. Mm -hmm. Medici, Medici Bank. Medici, yeah, 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 yeah. Florence. Yeah. And so Florence, France were a couple of the, the core hotbed humanist centers that had understood the, the nature of this Venetian Iago game that was getting all of these different kingdoms to kill each other. You know, the Holy Roman Empire just constantly, it was a division. I mean, it's like a 2000 prince electors and, and dukes, you know, fighting each other over small bits of territory, but they were also fighting the Spanish empire. They were fighting the, the English, the French, everybody's just fighting each other. And finally, you know, uh, enough people with, with some brains got together and realized, okay, we're all being played. 
that we're all being all of these wars being funded by the same Venetian bankers. And it seems like we're all following the the guidance and and uh, dossiers, kind of like these Soros funded international um, I, ICG uh, international crisis group type of profiles of each other's like operations, and they're all being provided to us these different profiles by the same Venetian ambassador systems. And like, wait a minute, why don't we just like stop killing each other, and maybe we can create a league and actually just deal with this parasite here that's that's trying to get us to to annihilate each other. And the the League of Cambrai is set up, which involves the Vatican, and I mean, everybody finally for two seconds works with a common cause to destroy the entire Venetian fleet. And just before they can go in with the second thrust to finally wipe the center of oligarchical command, these old bloodlines, right, that had managed the the, the Roman Empire before that, some of them probably go back to Babylon. Before or Phoenicia, this, or I would think, yeah. Phoenicia, or something. Phoenicia, I would imagine. Maybe before that, yeah, elements yeah. of that, I mean, it's it gets mar- these maritime, the further back you go. It does, huh? it does, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, for good. But yeah, right before they could do that, all of a sudden, the Venetians being really good uh, rat bastards are able to manage a bribe with the Pope who pulls out of the League of Cambrai, declares war with um, the, the the Holy Roman Empire, which has to go with the Pope with whatever he does. And all of a sudden, they have, they have a new alliance that they create with Venice, and they also declare war in France and Florence, you know, <laughs> and all of it just disintegrates. But it's a wake up call for Venice. Who realize they, they basically realize they need to get into a more strategic center of, of, of command. They can't just stay in this area of the lagoons of Venice anymore. And they get their eyes set on partially Amsterdam, which is a again, again, a very uh, creative zone. A lot of discoveries are happening, uh, revolutions in arts and manufacturing are occurring in, in Amsterdam at this time, but also in, in England. And they they are like, those are the two areas that we have to take over, corrupt from within, like a like a virus takes over a host cell, and then uh, use that as our new staging operation for reconstructing this new global Roman Empire, which was always the vision is this re- restore the, the Roman Empire and keep it that way. Don't tolerate things like Christianity or, or other things like that this time around. And just keep like a, a paganistic scientific humanism of some sort, which is where the Enlightenment kind of grew out of a lot of these Rosicrucian sects. Um, so yeah, exactly. Henry Thomas More and Henry VIII's court is is very interesting because it's a center of battle over whether it's going to be a driving force to revive Henry VII, who was a good king, uh, his policies, or would it become this empire, right, that, that involved driving Henry VIII, profiling him, seeing his, his sexual weaknesses, um, his arrogance is he had a godlike ego and, and he had some advisors that were stationed right, right around him. One of them was Francesco Zorzi, who is a, I mean, tar player writes a lot about yeah, him he in does. Uh, his work. And it's you a know, fascinating I have, character. It, I just notice a parallel with maritime mm-hmm. uh, powers like mm-hmm. Phoenicia and Babylon and ancient Persia, the Cumanid Empire had an unbelievable amount of control. In fact, Phoenicia came up with the whole idea of phonetics. And our ability to communicate and do trade using uh, being able to sell uh, spell out sort phonetics, of crop sense yeah. and vowels, yeah, the, the phonics. So hmm. I mean, from Phoenicia those, to Phoenicians and Venetians, maritime trade. Yeah, you got and the there Venetian does seem to be a history. And then the like British. If you, well, if you so. read Zarlinga's mm-hmm. book, the Lost Connection of Money, with maritime powers. You can follow it through. Uh, that's another angle on it. But, but, but I wanted but, to but, ask because Buck, what's this book? The Lost Science of Money by Stephen Zarlinga. Oh, yeah, I have that over here. And he published um, Quigley's Evolution of Civilizations book because <laughs> I correct I corrected yeah, myself yeah, on that earlier that. today. But there so is also, one. let's not forget about the Venetian banker connection. They innovated the sort of double entry bookkeeping oh, yeah. as well. So and that's mm-hmm. sort of based on the idea of 
credit debits, which is sort of like a, a callback to sort of a, a dualism in nature and the ability to sort of like rectify the dualism or find a balance between the two, which comes from sort of ancient mystery tradition. So there's a lot of like, you can play in so many different angles that it becomes. Well, to, to Matthew's you know. point, it's like, uh, like the White House is a mixture of Freemasonic because that's a, a Grand Lodge over in Britain. But like the, the windows have um, like male and female symbols over the top, like moons and, and, uh, and chevrons. And that's identical architecture to what's in Venice. So what they've taken is, you know, there's, you can trace lineage back to some of these things through the architecture that you're, they're using to represent their current power. So I think there's a lot to it. And I wasn't planning to talk about Venice and Webster Tarpley, but this is a good, cause we know about this and we're, we're still trying to learn and figure this, uh, this whole evolutionary story of uh, what we've inherited today out. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the strange architecture, the eclectic architecture of Venice, um, it, it 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 seems just so out of place. A lot yes. of it, and, and it's only when you realize that a lot a lot of this material actually came from their raping of Constantinople during the Fourth Crusades, which Venice bankrolled. You know, and people think, oh, yeah, the Crusades were all about Christians going to try to like win back the. Uh, the the holy land from the muslims and it's like no wait a minute constantinople was a christian uh domain it was the center of the orthodox church uh so what the hell did these christian mercenaries do <laughs> it, they didn't even make it to the holy land they just went and looted destroyed constantinople stole all of the relics and artifacts brought them to venice and uh just forgot to go to the holy land that's a whole story there, but uh, yeah, you no, have the translations by Pacino, like Plato and Aristotle, and you have also um, uh, the MO tablet uh, or the Corpus Hermeticum. I'm sorry, the Corpus Hermeticum, which also gets translated. I think that was the first thing that they want to translate at first, and that all gets sort of pushed out into the European culture. Not to mention that the Crusades, the first, uh, the first or second sacking, I forget. In the 1204, there's a sacking of Constantinople, and then you get the influx of like Aristotelian principles and Platonic principles to Albert the Great. Um, uh, Albertus Magnus, who then is Thomas St. Thomas Aquinas's teacher that sort of begins the secularization process of Europe itself, because he separates natural theology from revealed theology. Now you can study philosophy again, which gives, you know, only a century or two later, we start to get the, the burgeoning of modern the beginnings of modern science in the Renaissance. So you see how it all sort of connects, but you're right. It, it wasn't just, you know, them going to sack because it was it was a it was a rape and pillage operation it wasn't under the guise of this sort of uh movement for holy divinity or something of that nature in regards to the this false idea between christians and muslims and uh no. and the war yeah. set up yeah that was to galvanize the people um in order to do it but that wasn't the real purpose yeah, and I mean, Venice too, which was the earliest to print. I mean, a lot of the, the hermetic works and, and also like just Gnostic works, Kabbalistic Gnostic, works yeah, uh, were published and, and utilized by the inner sanctum of, of Venice. And I mean, here's, I think, the interesting thing that I'm pretty sure Tarpley gets this point across. Otherwise, I forget where I learned it. Um, but that, you you know, when they were trying to figure out how do we take over or get into a safer, more strategic zone of operation um, where they had their eyes set towards the British Isles, mm. um, you had a big fight, whether between these factions, the, the, older, the older school factions that wanted to just keep doing things as they had been doing them for hundreds of years, which is just suppress this, the power of creative mentation in your target audience just suppress truth, suppress scientific discoveries yes. and, you know, call, call scientists, heretics, burn them if need be, uh, just crush it. 
And then the other grouping realized that that's a little bit overly messy and the gene kind of already blew out of the bottle and you can't really, it's not so easy just to put that away or force it back, back into the bottle. This is like during the time after the, in the wake of the Renaissance, where it became through, through the teaching of orphans, you know, like kids who weren't born of noble blood, kids who, you know, didn't didn't even know who their their parents were, were being trained by the brotherhood of the common life through the various monasteries to uh, learn ancient Greek, learn Latin, translate. And as they did that, they cultivated within themselves their deeper powers of, of their own natural genius. And they became the intelligentsia that was working in opposition to this dark age faction uh, that wanted to just bring back this feudal, you know, system of master slave society. And people like Leonardo da Vinci came out of this process and was making pioneering breakthroughs in every single field he put his mind to, whether it was astronomy or or engineering or the arts, painting, music, uh, architecture, breakthroughs were being made because he had access to his his full self-conscious creativity. And it was not just him. He was a, a good, like a paragon of it. But there, this was like blossoming and institutions were being created to carry it forward to more generations. This was like a moral threat to the empire. And so while one group was like, no, no, we just got to smash <laughs> the other grouping, which was the the young, the Giovanni faction um, around this figure named Paolo Sarpi realized, well, no, I think we need to take a more subtle um nuanced approach here guys (laughs) and basically they were like well if you can't destroy we can't destroy the discoveries directly we what we can do is say we love the discoveries we could say we encourage them we're actually the, the 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 team of discoveries that's us and then we'll repackage them and tell and and control the narrative of how discoveries happen and we'll call it empiricism we'll say the way discoveries happen is you use your senses Maybe you get lucky and an apple falls on your head and then a formula that describes how the rate of fall of the apple can be created that people can memorize and repeat to get an effect. But the actual cause of the, dis- the human discovery that went into it, we'll just extract that so nobody ever gets to learn how that works. And they're just repeating formulas thinking that they, are, they get knowledge. And, uh, and that really did a, a lot of damage. But that's what became the dominant force in, and, and this also explains why a lot of the the leading uh, enlightenment thinkers like Descartes uh, were also rabid um, mystical freaks, like they were all yes, into Gnostic, were. Rosicrucian mysticism, because they themselves weren't great discoverers. They were just synthetic cardboard cutouts who are created because somebody has to have made the discovery, right? We've already killed or at least obscured the people who were the we've dis- the Da Vinci's, the Kepler's. The Huygens, the Fermat, sure. all the great discoverers, we've just, we've obscured them enough. We've stolen their discoveries. We've given it, we have to package it now and create, it. appropriate yeah. it. Yeah, reappropriate yes. it and associate it with some dyslexic, amoral freak, whether it's an Isaac Newton who was into black magic, alchemy, witchcraft. And that's not me. I'm not slandering. There's, there's Isaac arguments Newton, that he saying. was a pedophile and stuff. Like there is this strange, yeah, possibly. Like it's when you look at the, and then there's the war between him and Leibniz. Uh, which is sort of artificially created and set up. I mean, at war least of calculus. In, yeah, work. Yeah. I would just like the where where it came from. And but to your point, Matthew, I mean, just the the, the idea of all these different. Most of the great thinkers were into very uh, secret societies, Gnostic ideas, uh, uh, Rosicrucian ideas, uh, Hermetic yeah. ideas, Platonic right. ideas, Aristotle. Yeah. I mean, it's just and Aristotle. 
interestingly enough, was sort of a champion of induction and then the inductive method is what that sort of generates that yeah. creative capacity, you know, it's as they go about and thinking about the world and experiencing the world and coming to some, but instead they imposed a sort of deductive hegemony on it, which is said, no, we, we come up with the solutions now. Here's how the world, here's how we're going to dictate the truths that are coming into the Renaissance that have already started to sort of permeate from the 12th century onward or 11th century, or excuse me, the 13th century onward. You Looks know, you like could, I maybe think of an, an analogy real quick of Beatrice Webb, like the or and the Fabian strategist, like the fa- the great Fabian strategist, Beatrice Webb, I, I'm forgetting the other one, whereas oh. one wanted to kill him with kindness, one wanted to just kill them. And so it's like, how do we how do we mix the two together? And I just thought of that analogy when you're talking about the uh, <laughs> what was going on with the, the Venetian hierarchy in regards to how to manage it. Yeah, right. Sarpy's uh, secret society, I think it was called the Venetian Dead Souls faction, and that source well, of that would he be. He didn't call Kurt it that. that. I think no, that's no, what. The, right. that, I was going to say that's Tarpley's Gollum of Venice presentation <laughs> that I put that in there from. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's appropriate. That was an appropriate name. Sarpy, Sarpy, Tarpley, Tarpley gave it. Um, yeah, no. I, I think one thing was that that's super interesting, and I uh, I had the opportunity to read a lot of these original texts. Uh, it was it was it, I mentioned at the beginning that I was in the Canadian branch of a U.S. based organization. It was with the LaRouche organization back in the day, and, and LaRouche recently died. I think at the age of ninety six in two thousand nineteen. And so it was the Canadian. But in the course of that, I, I was in that uh, organization for about a decade. And one of the, the good things that I really appreciated was this focus on reading original source material. So for a couple of years, myself and a few of my, my Canadian younger uh, friends were, were working through Kepler's works. And one thing that strikes wow. me was that Kepler, in the course of writing his Harmonici uh, Mundi, the Harmonies of the World, where he discovers his third law, of planetary motion, which is then later uh, repackaged in the form of Newton's inverse square law. But this book, he proves, he works through the harmonic uh, orbiting, the, the, of, like the reason for why the orbits of the planets are where they are, based upon a harmonic theory that had been first developed or publicly in, Pla- in Plato's Timaeus dialogue yes. 2,000 years earlier. Right. And he actually takes Geometric this thing. Geometric proportions. Using, yeah. Yeah. And using like the Pythagorean monochord, using certain strings and frequencies, you're able to then get certain relationships. Yes. And utilizing the, the slowest and fastest po- uh, moments on every orbit, you're able to then get certain ratios that are in harmony with these, uh, basically the, the major and minor scale. That's and right. from that, his his third law, um, which is I think in in short form, the 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 uh, the the cube of the mean distance of every planet to the sun has a certain relationship to this square of the periodist the periodic uh, time of like one single orbit. Right. Um, so it's a square cube re- relationship. It's a square cube yeah. relationship. Yeah, three, three um, two, that's right. And at the end of that, he has a whole attack on Robert Flood, and so Robert Flood is the founder of. Uh, he's one of the leading, I mean, the founder of, of, of Rosicrucianism, as it is known. Because it's, yeah, the Christian Rosenkreutz for those, I think that's the, that's not a real person, by the way, no. that was, no, yeah, yeah. that did not exist. So people <laughs> would think that Rosicrucianism was started by, no, that's like a symbolic figure. It was Robert Flood and a couple yeah. other individuals was escaping me because I haven't studied Rosicrucianism in a bit, but I do remember that. John feature. John D plays a role in yeah that. John D who is an interesting uh, and dubious figure in history as well when it comes dubious. to Matt yeah like that dude's yeah. sketchy as all hell but oh, yeah. I mean yeah <laughs> your point it's, it's I mean this is stuff that you know, was when, when you actually read when by reading Kepler I was so shocked I'd heard mm-hmm. of Robert Flood because I'm a conspiracy theorist you know that's just sure you yeah. see when you're looking at this thing right yeah. but then here is here's Kepler actually 
like uh, destroying Robert Flood. He's like openly who, who lives in his lifetime, right? right? And Robert Flood, remember Fr- Francisco Zorzi, Zorzi, the guy who's yeah, like Zorzi. brainwashing Henry VIII and inducing him to go and create a schism in the church and create his own church and just to get a divorce um, and get laid. Yeah. Um, Francisco Zorzi, uh, he's the one who is the godfather, the inspiration for Robert Flood. He writes a book in 1540 called uh, Harmonies of the World. And it's, it's like this really esoteric Gnostic version of witchcraft, basically. Um, And so this is where partially Kepler is running um, a very high level cultural warfare operation against this whole parasite by calling his book, The Harmonies of the World, but doing it right, actually demonstrating and showing you how his mind is working every step of the way. And if you go through it, you realize he's not just using only deductive and only inductive reasoning. He's using a little bit of that, a little bit of a little bit of the other, but he's doing something more. So it's not just a combination of the deductive and inductive or a priori, a posteriori methods of thinking, you know, Um, I don't, I don't, I feel like I'm talking above maybe people who might be listening, but just to be quick, all I need to say, don't don't judge our audience like that. No, I mean, it just happens sometimes where people are like, (laughs) it's the first time they've heard about Kepler in this this podcast, but it's not beyond their grasp. Please give them. No, yeah, no, but the deductive, the a priori, a posteriori thing. That's that's so basically analytic, synthetic. I mean, one basically you start with uh, with sense perception, a general to specific, and specific to general, and it's a convection current. Uh, yeah, yeah. That you use to internalize the things that exist, and like law is the adjudication of the specific to the general, right? Because the specific incidents happened, and then in the general they compare it to what the law is. And then the adjudication goes on to the judge. And that's kind of what your brain does. Yeah. Like you have like common law and civic law. Like, so civic law, the French law would have more of like an a priori uh, approach where it's like, you start with the the general rule principles and then you deduce from there. And then you, then you use those to guide how you judge the, the particulars. Whereas the, the common law, like you just mentioned would be like, yeah, you've got these particular case studies and then you generalize to a, a, a rule from or a general principle from this yeah. so case studies. for the audience at home who might be lost we start with in the latter the common law you start with that which exists and then you go to how does that relate to general concept and the a, a priority which is like the, the descartian french thinking you start with the idea of the rule and you see how it does it compare to reality but it's really a convection current in both ways can work as long as you understand freedom is like but exactly. to your point, Matthew, both, there's something more to that. Yeah, there's there's something more there. And yeah, there's, continue, there, there's retroduction. We could talk about uh, sort of the apophatic. There's also the idea of uh, analogy and relationship in the context of Plato standing in, into like a, a more transcendental principle, if you will, from which but that's done through the apophatic or through retroduction or through negation, through negation, which is a whole. Negation. Yes. yes. Yeah. And, and also the question of metaphor, like the poetic yeah, quality. Metaphor. Like if I say I've got butterflies in my stomach, you know, that that. You, that it literally... sounds absurd. <laughs> right? How do you if get like them nervous. in there? Huh? It's like a, How do I get my like there? Exactly. Vaude- <laughs> the vaudeville acts where they cough up like nine frogs or like uh, David Blaine did that on Rogan too. Maybe yeah. recently, but <laughs> butterflies, frogs in the stomach. That's... But it has no literal uh, or linear connection whatsoever to the actual meaning that I'm, that everybody understands when I said that. If you're nervous, that's what you say. But then there's no literal com- connection that's either deductive or inductive. It's It comes from a different a different place. Right. And so awesome. having that additional uh, creative flexibility to leap outside of the known structures of what is what already, because I mean, if you want to make a new discovery, 
nothing that is known will help you make that new Eureka that, that requires a leap into some, something else. An unknown. Right. It's an unknown. And that's an interesting thing about many of the great discoveries in history is that oftentimes not only it's, when you read the great mystics in history, sometimes it's like a mystic inspiration or divine madness. Like if you think about it from uh, what was it, the Phaedrus of uh, Plato, like this, there's some sort of like inspiration that takes place that transcends just simple uh, discursive reasoning that, that we think is the, the, the what manifests these sorts of ideas. But you know, that's a fantastic point. There's something more to it. And to think about, I mean, there's a Rich turned this into a Peace Revolution podcast, but this this is man. His name David Harriman. He is a, a, a I think an objectivist philosopher, if I remember correctly, but he's a scientist and was a physicist. And he talks about this issue, um, the great discoveries in history. It's a little bit watered down, a whitewash, you could say. But he, he did make a book. good point. Oh, you have the book, A Logical Leap, and he he champions the inductive yeah. method. But the bigger point is just the the fact that in history, these these uh, these great discoveries weren't top down. You know, they were it's the inspiration. There was induction involved. There was just like uh, there there's the, the recognition, as you pointed out, to um, these almost transcendental principles that uh, the, I think Tico Brahe was also a part of that, but say, also Matthew's Kepler point, as well. You know, yeah, Copernicus, Kepler, Copernicus, Tycho oh, yeah. Brahe, and there's a, a logical flow of one leaping off the shoulders of the next one into the but unknown. But they show you the process. Right. Like that's there's what David proofs. Harriman points out. They show you that, like, how did they get, like, how did they think? You get to see how they think, how they thought. And like, that's what's arrested or anesthetized in modern schooling for children is like, you're, you're given, you, you learn algebra, which step, first of all, algebra is separated from geometry, you separate form from abstraction. So you can't relate abstraction to form. But then there's just the issue of like, you're just, you're, you're given the, the, to your point, Matthew, like this is, uh, uh, you know, the, the formula for gravity, you know, here's the, the fall rate, 9.8 meters per square, per square, you know, like you get, we all, we discovered it for you. You don't need to think anymore. Like that's, yeah. you're good. And that's that, that to get control of that, the Sarpy sort of method, very, very deviant, very clever. Absolutely. So. Yeah. No. And it, it treats you like a computer, right? Like that's yes, what you do that's with the, the computer. Key. You, what goes in is what comes out. So you, you program the computer with certain inputs and it is limited to that. So how can yes. people fall into this cult of artificial intelligence that's so big nowadays, right? That's at the heart of this whole fourth industrial revolution. A big part of that is the belief that the linear uh, increase of complexity in computing systems, which is obviously able to calculate faster than the human brain, is going to make human beings irrelevant. And thus either we have to merge with them or accept this Skynet type of matrix future, right? Um, <clears throat> so the only way you could get people to like actually chew and swallow that crap is if you can get their minds to be treated like computers so that they don't actually know what human thinking is because all they've been given is memorize, repeat at, like a computer. And so they can't refute somebody saying, oh, but a computer can do this faster and thus you're going to be irrelevant. And you're like, oh, I guess I will. Yeah, shit. <laughs> who, put, who put the inputs into that computer, though? What program the, exactly. uh, the, the if then statements? Because like, there was a question I teach logic. I'm teaching logic to this this community now. And okay. someone had posed this question to me, just going over like real simple basics of Aristotelian theory and in the light also some of the ideas of Plato as well, but mainly Ar Aristotle. Uh, just to start, I want to give them the basis before I get into the good stuff with Plato. But when it gets to uh, Aristotle, they're asking me a fallacy. It's like, you ever hear this fallacy called the machine fallacy? I'm like, what the hell is that? It's part of a metaphysical fallacy. But the idea is that, oh, well, we're just machines. Machines and that eventually computing power will overtake, you know, will, will, or will 
you know, and the girl, um, that Douglas Hofstadter sort of argument about recursion, like, we'll reach to a point where by which machines will become intelligent. And I'm like, that's the sort of fallacy of misplaced concreteness, where they're taking something that's purely abstract and the material that the human mind does and the volition associated with that to make choice. And assuming that's going to be something that's going to be able to manifest out of a machine, we've not been able to do that because everything is a closed system feedback with machines. So we can program the most complex ability for them to take disparate pieces of information that we have to input. And then they can pump out all these probabilistic models that seem like that they're thinking, but they're st- it's like an artificial simulacrum of the process by which developed that. It's, it's almost like the sort of idea of emanation and standing in relation that which emanated is always going to be lesser. But, you know, sort of a, it's like we're doing the same thing here. We're creating something or manifesting something that's like us, but it's going to be like a lesser form of that, something that's not going to be have sort of endowed with the same sort of ability or capability, that conceptual reasoning, which is a truly immaterial sort of, I say spiritual in the sense that there's no physical, it's like a field of a magnet in a way. Maybe they come up with like virtual photons in order to describe a field of a magnet, but it's like, no, it organizes matter. It affects matter, but it's a field effect. It's something that's immaterial. And there's something that's truly transcends just the simple uh, understanding of what that, how that looks. So there's this, but there is right now this push, this push to push us into this sort of technocratic transhumanistic model. They want it it more than anything, but the irony is they have to lessen that which makes us most human, that conceptual capacity, you know, Descartes, sort of the, the idea of the soul or the seat of the soul, that sort of idea. I mean, um, I exist, therefore, I think, to continue existing. So, but I understand what he was saying, too. Yeah, I can understand you know. both sides. He made I errors, chooses. but he got his point, though. I get, I get where he's coming from. You know, let, so me, it's, let me ask this real quick, because I know your time is precious, Matthew. Have you ever uh, read this book? The fire in the minds of men, origins of the revolutionary faith. No, I haven't. Oh, my friend, this book. I'm writing. I'm writing down so many titles in the in the short time I've been here. (laughs) All right, I'm writing. I wanted to offer massive value. This is written by James H. Billington, who is a Rhodes Scholar and Librarian of Congress for the United States of America. This is a gent right here. Very smart guy. In here, you're going to find like the official history from the Library of Congress on like the Rosicrucians, the, the Illuminati, right? This is like, it's an amazing book. I found this after yeah, I found uh, Quigley's Tragedy and Hope because I was like, who else knows about this stuff? And there's a particular passage here on page 231. I point to it often because in one paragraph, you can learn a lot. In 1843, B.F. Trenchowski invented the word cybernetics to describe a new form of rational social technology, which he believed would transform the human condition. In his neglected work, The Relationship of Philosophy to Cybernetics, or The Art of Ruling Nations, he also invented the word intelligentsia. So like a half hour ago, when you said intelligentsia, I was like, oh, I know where that Mm -hmm. word originated and where the book is and what page it's on. And I wanted to make sure that uh, I got it on your radar. Because oh, that's a golden, that's a golden lead. I didn't, uh, and it's a fantastic uh, work. You're I really thought cybernetics was developed like a hundred years later by Norbert Wiener. Um, I got all Wiener's book too. And, uh, you know, uh, I know all those cats, but this, you just this dated book, it by a hundred years earlier. That's, that's yeah. amazing. There's huh. a lot of that. Going I think it on takes like etymologically too. from the idea of a helmsman. So it's like it does, being yeah, able go- to control the steering, steering a ship or something of that nature, the sort of Kybernetes idea. Kubernetes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. That not everybody on the ship needs to know what the ship is doing. All yes. the helmsman needs to understand what the whole is doing, and everybody else can just be hyper specialized in their local whatever mini job they have. And uh, that's exactly how the post World War II age worked. 
uh, I wouldn't, I would, I'd be curious to know what this Trentowski's uh, relationship to the Fabian Society is, if any, I'm sure there is. If That's you want to, um, well, he was before the Fabian Society got rolling. I'll show him to you in the history. Yeah, of 1843 is what you said. Hmm. Trentowski, I have him in here. His name is Bronislav, because uh, okay. the BF part. And he's discussed, he, oh, we discussed him in uh, the Ultimate History Lesson with John Taylor Gatto, Hour 3. He's okay. one of the people. Uh, and if I have a second entry, influenced by Hegel, he was a Freemason. Mm. Uh, believed in the divine right of kings, part of mystery schools, uh, and yeah, a father of cybernetics. He's around the same time as this guy, Moses Hess, uh, Moses Hess. who okay. wrote uh, a very interesting book in 1861 that basically said, let's get uh, Freemasonry and some financing and use secret society to infiltrate Freemasonry, much like a, like an Illuminati type plan. Uh, but this was like around a time of the American Civil War. And um, it's called Rome and Jerusalem, the last nationalist question. Hmm. And, and we're going to cut out this one. interview in a couple of days, like uh, the post-production crew will cut this interview out and put it out there. So don't feel like you have to take all the notes real time. <laughs> There'll be a replay, but I was just so excited on these various topics. So how old were you when you read this book? Have you ever read this book and how old I'm, you? I'm rereading it currently the 1986 edition as we speak um because i wanted to get a better sense of the bronfman um Hoff, yeah Uden, you know there you so go I, ha I have the uh, 1992 version and that's like right. my original marked up version yeah. and then i also got this one because i like the subtitle better than this subtitle it I, works better to understand for people what's going on that's but, the um, 2010 edition i think i think so yeah 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 it's the more yeah it's, it's less less meaty um i find but that title is better yeah, I mean, there's so many things in this big book, I call it, that are just fascinating and it's solid can be verified by other sources. And then, well, yeah, the forces of the oligarchy tried suing uh, the staff of EIR like 10 times and they couldn't get anything wow. across, like everything passed uh, the mustard every single step of the way. So they couldn't get this thing taken off the shelves. So they had to have uh, Lyndon LaRouche Theater and Saturday Night Live <laughs> take them down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> have you had an opportunity to read this book? I own that book, and I have right. not read that book, though. All right. Do yourself Four a favor. Me. At least read the forward. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's just 30 pages. And then if you're interested in reading the rest of the book and understand, but it's William Yandel House, Road Scholar, that trains a bunch of American Road Scholars, has a big influence on America. I don't know how it translates into Canadian history, but I'm interested in finding out. I'll I'm tell really, you. Yeah. What do you got? He was also the uh, the teacher of uh, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who was uh, sent down to become one of Yandel Elliott's boys, uh, special little boys in uh, 1947 or so, before Yandel Elliott sort of talent searched him um, and then deployed him with letters of recommendation to uh, Harold Lasky in the London School of Economics. You know, for fairness. I wanted to show, I do have that connection. I just forgot ah. there's, Yand there's Yandel Elliott. Cause at one point I was, I mapped out the students, but uh, you're, you're Johnny on the, on the spot with that. That's good. That's good. You understand Maurice strong and Pierre oh, yeah. Trudeau well, and those guys. Yeah. Well, it's interesting about Maurice strong in uh, Ellen Dora wrote, did you guys ever read uh, cloak of green? I don't, I don't think so. I don't no, think we I, gotta take, I gotta take notes. Hard to get yeah, no, we gotta take it. Yeah. yeah, Cloak of that was one of the most useful books. She was able to get exclusive interviews with Maurice Strong and oh, uh, 
uh, over the course of several weeks, and it is raw. She went in there not knowing what she was getting into, and I don't know what caused her to ha have find the the courage to publish what she did. But she, uh, I, I mean, again, I, I won't say too much more. But in that, there's one anecdote Maury Strong develops about how when he was still the, the president of Power Corporation, which sort of ran the monopoly yeah. for the hydroelectric power of Quebec. Um, he was like the youngest CEO after he was brought back uh, from the Rockefeller Foundation and he became CEO from a variety of things. But he describes how he was uh, brought in quickly to become uh, a top controller and headhunter in the Liberal Party and had uh, fielded a bunch of, of potential talent um, and was on the selection committee that selected Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Like they, that's the way they kind of work with like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know, they, they look for people who've got a sort of look and can speak, you know, well and, and can be marketed in the form of Trudeau. It was Trudeau mania. They just used the Beatles selling, uh, um, literally they did. Women were like, you know, <laughs> like throw their right. panties at him and stuff. It was weird. Um, and he was on the selection committee with um, Walter Lockhart Gordon, who plays a big role in the Dobink book as one of the key architects of the global drug money laundering schemes through the Caribbean's Scotiabank, a lot of the, the Canadian banks that play a big role in global back then as well as today, uh, money laundering. So Walter Lockhart Gordon was the, the president of the Privy Council of Canada in 1965 or 66. Maurice Strong, uh, he became the, the, the head of external affairs, and then he founded the Canadian International Development Agency that sort of rewired how uh, loans to poor countries were going to operate on the condition that they all became uh, enmeshed with IMF or World Bank conditionalities. And so Kent, you know, Strong played a key oh, role in that operation. But yeah, he was on the selection committee with Locker Gordon to pick so they out. They sort of devised the principles by which the IMF then later used as sort of the model, or they I, sort of worked hand in hand, or how does that connect? Hand in hand, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know. People tended to trust Canada. It's sort of a weird thing that pe people of the world. Why is that? Yeah, because like when we like, yeah, that's the perception I get. We didn't from deserve friends it. And family. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, uh, they seem like they were the branch, the northern branch of the British Empire that sort of, you know utilized well, that's, that's the against the against us and the well it was this middle power thing right so that was and middle that power was, is a great word description yeah that was the the model that was adopted um i mean i'm sure yandel elliott a lot of these discussions happen because you're like wondering how could one guy like yandel elliott produce such diverse students and prodigies like henry kissinger and zbigniew <laughs> brzezinski and then trudeau who's like meeting up with castro and uh, mao and and also befriending reagan and stuff and you're like what the hell is this weird chameleon type of thing? And you, the, Trudeau was asked one time in 1969, what is your, uh, how would you describe your foreign policy? And his answer was simply create counterweights. Nobody, not many people understood what he was saying, but he, I mean, you know, he's, he's a puppet, but he was a smart puppet. He understood right. what the, the nature of the game was. So anytime the Cold War is all based upon this idea of a mathematical balance as much as possible, it was a Manichaean dualism. Yes. And so if if the the geographical or the ge, uh, the gravitational center shifted too much towards the Soviet side, then you sort of befriend the Americans and the capitalists. And then if same thing happens, that gravity center moves over to the the capitalist side a little bit, then Canada throws its weight over to you know, hugging Castro or, or visiting Mao or something. And so you always just keep things in as much of a counterweight type of balance as possible as part of a broader great game, but you can't get this by looking at Canada itself. And that's where most Canadian authors and, and historians have gotten it all wrong because they, just like American authors, they tend to look at the world through a purely American centric filter 
Canadian authors do the same. British authors, I'm sure, do the same. But it's it's so important to look at first the global chemistry as, as a higher whole. And then you can sort of make sense of the context in which the parts operate, right? And people like, you know, um, Trudeau, he was, for example, a... Uh, a leading Fabian who was controlled by a Rhodes Scholar named F.R. Scott, who was his primary handler. Uh, F.R. Scott, along with five other Rhodes Scholars, S. Scott Reed being another one who was, a, mm-hmm. I would say, the, the major architect of NATO two years before NATO was created. Uh, this was uh, S. Scott Reed's baby. But these five Rhodes Scholars set up in 1931 the Canadian Fabian Society, the League of, of Social Reconstruction. And it had a political branch, just like the the British Fabian Society earlier had its political branch called the Labour Labour Party. Labour Party, yeah. Um, the Canadian branch, uh, the Canadian political uh, party, was called the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, set up in 1932 as a way to create a scientific um, organization of society, right? Managed society under scientific management, and you could have a better equal distribution of wealth, get rid of private property, all this. All the stuff that we that's how you familiarized it, even though it's really just a, a racist sort of like top yeah. down system. Then you talk about race patriots; they were utilizing the sort of new sign to the emerging Darwinian evolutionary model and the X Club and Thomas Huxley and all exactly. those figures. Yeah, well, they're all that's, eugenicists, right? Exactly. And, and so exactly. uh, Trudeau is brought back from Harold Lasky's control at the London School of Economics. He's given like this five hundred day tour of the world in 1949 to just get a sense of like, it's like his, his training to see how the international appendages of the empire work before he's sent back to Canada in 1950 to be uh, positioned in the Privy Council office, which is sort of the, the nerve center of the, the cybernetics command of Canada. It's the Privy Council uh, or the Privy Council office per se. And so he's there, um, his handlers, FR Scott, one of the six or five road scholars. Um, And this thing becomes, he becomes an, a member of that political party, which becomes, it changes its name in 1960 to what's called the New Democratic Party, uh, the NDP, which is sort of the, the third big uh, party in Canada even today. But they can't get political power because they're a little bit too Marxist and people, you know, Canadians aren't, aren't feeling that. It's, they're just not, there's a glass ceiling they can't break past. So it, the decision is made around this time in the late 50s to focus their energy on transplant, kind of the way Venice took over Amsterdam and, and Britain earlier. They're, they're like, we're going to do that same thing. We're going to take the Liberal Party, which at that time is a very different beast than the Liberal, Liberal Party of today. It was still the party of progress, the party of C.D. Howe, large-scale you know, development projects, anti-imperialism. A lot of really good people were in that. Um, our Avro Aero uh, space program, aerospace, uh, nuclear power, like all of these cutting edge things were all being driven by that, that liberal party. So that was being purged. They, they started a process of purging it of all of those nationalists. And the guy who was in charge of doing that, um, and I've written a lot about that in, uh, in volume four of my Untold History of Canada, is Walter Locker Gordon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's, he's the, the kingmaker. And he's so so he's he's doing that, and they're infesting it like a virus would infest a white blood or a, a, a good blood cell. And um, immediately, all of these NDP Fabians um, switch over, like like Pierre Le Trudeau and and his entourage, and they become liberals. And they become then all of a sudden, once that party is purged by 1963, they they take power. They you have a, a inside out. From the inside yeah, exactly. out, so people don't realize, yeah, change the people don't get that it's wolves in sheep's clothing. That's and they exactly put it right the there in their logo. Know, They're like, right. here it is, it's in their own that's logo. Insane. That's insane. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, there's the Fabian it? Society oh. in, in London and uh, a buddy of mine, answers. a Tragedy and Hope subscriber from years ago, Mike Mitchum. Uh, I'm pretty sure he got us uh, shots of the Fabian Society. He's the one that shot the Banksy GCHQ installation for us for the Bill Binney interview. Yeah, I've got a lot of good stuff from him over there. And so, yeah, the, the, it's like, LD, can you bring it up on screen? It's like they're they're shaping the world to the image and it's like also wolves and sheep. Oh clothing. yeah, they're crafting. Isn't there two parts as, of it? There's like they're crafting the earth. So they're the demi earth itself. Clothing. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. why do you think they made this stained glass? If not to be like, hey, this is our way of telling you, fair play. This is this what is we're doing. Yeah. Well, it's, it it's, it's revelation of the craft. It's revelation of the craft. Yeah. It's sort yeah, of they want to get it. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. like they can do it if they tell you, even if you yeah, don't do a small print. There it is. Yeah. Yeah, and one guy is Sidney Webb, and the other one is is George Bernard Shaw. It was commissioned by George Bernard Shaw. This yeah, particular Sidney Webb and yeah Bernard Shaw. And That's George the other one. Bernard Shaw. Holding the, yeah. uh, the Earth. In their yeah, image. George Bernard Shaw uh, was a crazy kind of eugenicist. He was like, the one who just wanted racist, to kill them straight up. Yeah. Racist. I think that was the know. dialectic they played. It's like, well, yeah. no, we'll just kill him with kindness. Yeah, we'll just. That's the guy. And sheep. That's how I was thinking of Shaw. That's yeah. He, he literally. Sydney there's Webb. videos of him on YouTube. Uh, where he's saying like, yeah, we should have a board, a population board where yes. everybody is forced to justify their existence once a year. And if they can't satisfy the reasoning of the population board, then off to the death chambers with them. <laughs> and he talks in this weird, creepy British accent. Crazy yeah. population council. Yeah, these yeah, are I mean, like... It's like, what about if he had to go in front of that board? Uh, sort of a recursive yeah. function there. And it's like, would they ever think about that? Well, they're no, they basically, basically <laughs> they <don't> do self-reflection, <laughs> self-criticism. They don't. <laughs> they're the influence for Orwell's Ingsoc. English socialism in 1984 is just the front for the Fabian Society. Like that's his representation, I think, in that book. Mm. So there's yeah, there's a lot to it. Oh, the end of Eliot. I mean, Fa- starting was... with Fabius Maximus and the war of attrition yeah. strategy that they use. <laughs> yeah, that by the way didn't didn't succeed ultimately because the Romans hated it. They Romans what happened is Trudeau took his sheep's clothing off and he's like, I'm taking your bank accounts because of the trucks. <laughs> Honk, honk. <laughs> Optimus yeah. Prime came down. He's right? an Aesop's fable walking right now. <laughs> for the future generations. <laughs> no, it's, right. uh, yeah, it's really, I mean, that, that's the sad thing, right? Is that it, I, I heard you guys were just sort of making fun of the, uh, the dumbing down the mediocrity of even the messaging and the propaganda outlets where they're forced to bring these like bubblehead kids from TikTok into the bringing White House. More and more like, in the machines. That's what you said earlier. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, you look at just the quality of, of mental um, degeneration between a Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the original, and his son, who's sort of trying to fill his shoes, living in his dad's shadow. And I mean, the kid himself, there's nothing there. He's like a young version of Biden. Yes, that's, um, right, that's right. It's, it's almost like there's no soul taking that in a very like loose use of the term, but there's like nothing there. There's no sort of inner sort of uh, like introspection, no, yeah. like reflection of their own consciousness or their own motivation. Like there's this self-reflection. Like, Do you ever they, wonder if maybe like they put out no- the Sophia robot <laughs> when they already had Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and these cats out there like that, that? You know, uh, Justin Trudeau among them. They seem kind of like the the tether connections, not high speed, you know, uh, T1 line quality. You know, they're a little slow. They're a little slow, yeah. Robotic in their reactions to us. But see, and, and so why do people fall for this and think like, oh, you know, what what a great, great guy this Trudeau is. Like he, it, a lot, he does have a lot, or maybe he, I don't know if he still does, but he had a lot of support. A lot of people think about, uh, they, they listen to Mark Zuckerberg or they listen to Elon Musk and they're like, yeah, greatest geniuses of the world. 
And you're like, why can't you see that there's nothing there? Like, it's pretty clear. <laughs> These are programmed, uh, you know. Um, I think we're more like sociopaths. Like, I don't, the, the, the ability for self-reflection, at least from an empathetic standpoint, and the, like, it does almost, some argument can be made that it doesn't even biologically exist as part of those certain parts of the brain. But even if we go away from that, there's just something missing in the the concept of like substance or self-reflection. Like that don't, they don't have any sort of nuance. The fact that there's such a caricature of themselves even and the way they present themselves, it's just so strange. Like I, I, I think about this with so many of our own, like Nancy Pelosi is one that comes to mind in our, uh, in our government, like, and Biden obviously is he's, he's completely senile or he's putting on the greatest act of all time. Some people post that to me in our recent town halls and like, is he really senile? And, you know, I was like, well, I mean, if not, he had the brain cracked open a couple of times and maybe they tried some of those implants, who knows? But at this point, it's just, uh, <laughs> it's very strange. The fact that people are willing to fall for it is that, you know, I, I've gone back thinking like, is it an evolutionary thing? If that's even a real thing, you know, that's a whole issue in and of itself. I won't get into, but if we say insofar as like, we have some sort of prime animal sort of instinctual behaviors, let's say like we follow the leader, we want to have a natural tribal leader being ostracized from a group. What is it that we're like, willing to go along with these people that just are so devoid of basic Those consciousness are the defaults and for basic survival. intelligence. And most people never change off the defaults. Tony. Defaults. Yeah. It's like a default and, setting. And yeah. they also default believe Nancy Pelosi has something to do and they have a connection to her because they voted for her. But really those people in those buildings, they got there because of special interests and the, the donors. And those are the calls and those are the squeaky wheels they take care of. Not the, the citizens who, not the cattle on the farm, on the ranch. Yeah. Right. So what? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of this, and I mean, if this if this were an evolutionary, like a uh, natural consequence of just just the forces of nature, then I think we've got um, a philosophical crisis, um, mm-hmm. possibly a spirit, theological crisis. Uh, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I consider it a, a philosophical. Yeah, I agree. A philosophical I agree. corruption of reality. <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, that's the whole, like, then God created a big joke that is uh, self-destructive by its own nature. And that's a big, I mean, that takes you into a bit of a black hole. Um, yeah, it's a big uh, metaphysical a nihilistical, issue. nihilistical, just like, yeah. let, me, let me just get some, like, cocaine right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, I agree. The other thing is the free will approach. Um, yeah. And because, you know, um, how do you know that, uh, would a loving parent allow a kid, w- would a loving parent not uh, love a kid so much that they would, prevent them from making mistakes is what a naive person might think. And you, cause you just care about the kids so much. You would just put them in a, in a little box so that they'd never fall down. They never try anything new. Cause that would cause them to, to screw up, you know? And so you love them too much. Would that actually be a loving parent? No, that's a tyrant. Um, exactly so right. like if, if human beings, if, if, if there Plato is defined that that way too, I'm glad you said it that way. He, <laughs> he, he defined a tyrant in that capacity, at least in many different ways. So that's one of them. I, that's a brilliant statement because it's still a form of control. You still want to control the ability for them to actually experience their own world and engage in their own agency as an individual. But yeah. It has nothing to do with the government trying to control you. There's no, no, <laughs> no connection between those two. Well, that's, but that's the thing, right? Like good, good government, good statecraft allows for free will. It'll, it obviously like you need to have laws in a sense. We got it, you know, there's certain structure, but at the same time, do you want that to be like uh, an oligarchical, tyrannical fascist state that just forces everybody into automaton status so that they're all well-behaved? No, you want to allow for the freedom of people to try new things, to make mistakes. And, you know, there's a sort of balance of, of free will and duty that you have to sort of zero in on. Oh, we'll never maybe yeah. 
hit the formula perfectly because if we did then we'd become the robots and or whatever like and if there's they, a paradox another one of these metaphysical paradoxes yeah, exactly themselves, yeah. but that's why i love the the the, the yeah. concepts when you read the writings of a lot of the founding fathers there's a certain platonic uh sensitivity to this idea of of a constant self-perfectability embedded in the universe yeah you know, the image of that perfectability we and participated that's why in it yeah so yeah they're like called the perfectibilists <laughs> well, that's a, that's a that's that's across the pond. I thought it was like man, I thought you were like lobbing it to me for me to hit it like that. I didn't <laughs> that's brilliantly well said, though. That's they they did have a sort of Platonic. They, we stand in participation of a higher order that transcends itself, and there's there's a beauty, a goodness, and a truth that tries to emanate out of that. But then there's also you manifest that paradoxically in a world of dualism through the separation of powers because of our own natural proclivity to sort of. Absolute power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So how do we yeah. manage that innate, that mind body dualism that Plato alludes to, you know, Plato says you have to, come to know yourself, right? Like, yes, Plato's that's like, the point. yeah, like yeah. don't start, don't skip steps. Don't try to like become a ruler. Like when he's talking to Alcibiades, you know, he's like, don't just go and just try to run society and determine when you want to make war or peace without first having taken the time to know how your mind and heart work exactly. Do that first and then do the other things. And, and it, it, we screw things up every time we skip steps. Every time we skip and people sort of confuse the issue of the Plato's Republic is thinking it's, uh, I mean, uh, Popper did this uh, terribly, wrote a, whole, wrote a whole book in this, not Soros understanding one teacher, aspect of, yeah, Soros's teacher. It's interesting. Uh, they got the whole thing wrong because in book two, I think he says this is nothing more than an analogy for the human soul. And so when you go up the, you know, sort of the different uh, cast levels of the, the Republic, it's actually talking about us as individuals being able to separate ourselves from the foundations of power in many ways. So it's a, in book nine, it says this would be an impossible task. This is not something that would manifest in reality. It has something to do with about our own spiritual nature, which is an interesting function. People forget about that. Yeah. But everything that he yeah. did was cryptic, done by analogy, done by allegory. And I think it's because he probably was privy to the mysteries back then. And it was punishable at death, potentially, to reveal any sort of aspect of the mysteries which is why he had to set up a school and use analogy and myth and metaphor and, and allegory in order to try to describe these, 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 these ideas um, and why he's been so confused, even though, as William James said, that all of Western philosophy is a series of footnotes back to Plato, which is, that is, could not be more well said. And well, I, if you look I'm at a, his, his, his letter eight and his letters, which are consciously mm -hmm. also out of sync, like they're, yes. they're out of chronological order, but his letter eight is really good because it's the only one where he talks with, I think it's, Dion, I'm not too sure. Or no, I forget who he's talking to, but he's writing how he'll never make literal his intention. Yes. Had, you know, and it's it's a strategic design. And he's he's describing also his personal role geopolitically within a broader process that was underway in the world that he lived in. Because people his mentor was killed, right? ivory tower philosophers. What was that wasn't his mentor killed? Um, yeah, that's yeah. that was a big one. That was a big yeah. life changer for him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you will never yeah. forget what the democracy uh, produced in that capacity. And also is railing against the oligarchy, which is an interesting facet, as well as I think uh, Aristotle to a degree, which is his, obviously his most famed student. So there is this elements of like the, the milieu that existed in ancient Greece that we can sort of transpose onto certain aspects, especially of European and modern history and the Americas that we sort of stand in a participation with and understanding like what was going on back then and how we can draw parallels to today. A lot of people draw from the Roman empire, but I, I like to go back to ancient Greece one, because I'm, I'm prejudiced to ancient Greece. Cause I love ancient Greek philosophy, particularly Plato and Aristotle, Plato, Plato mainly. Um, but there's well, a lot we, that could be learned. Sorry, go ahead. Well, definitely. Uh, 
I, I don't know about the Roman Empire, but definitely it's useful to look at how, because it's undeniable that a lot of the founding fathers were influenced by their studies of the Roman Republic, but a, right. before it became an empire and degenerated, and the figure of Cicero is kind of like mm. the Socrates of, yes. of the Roman Republic, right? And he described himself when people were trying to ask him, like, are you a Stoic? He's like, no, I'm not a Stoic. Are you an Epicurean? I'm not that. Of course not. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm a Platonist. And his, he's always trying to intervene to bring people into a higher, uh, higher. higher synthesis outside of this dualism of Epicureanism versus Stoicism, which is what they all thought they had to jump into is one of the extremes. And he was like, no, use your creative reason. And he was always intervening, stopping conspiracies like the Catalan conspiracy yeah. um, and, and trying to bring it back. He could see that Rome was degenerating, kind of like Socrates could see Athens was degenerating under Pericles to become an empire where it had backstabbed its allies and was becoming a more bloated uh, parasite. And he's like, no, we have to stop this. We have to push back against the sophists and expose them. Those who try to make the lies appear truthful and and like Iago, like Iago, like Iago, you mentioned. Yeah, we have to expose the Iagos. Uh, And and the same fate uh, befell in many ways Cicero, who was, you know, his death marked kind of like Socrates' death, the shifting morally into empire of Rome, where it very swiftly became- Republic to empire. That's a perfect yeah. analogy. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a great sort of uh, analogy. I didn't like, I mean, because that, that is exactly what happened. The Periclean age, we call it the golden age of sort of Athens or, or ancient Greece. But uh, ironically, it had sort of this like weird dualism between Pericles himself, who stood sort of like, as an emperor, and then the Senate, who were constantly embattled, and it ended up in the Peloponnesian War, with Athens essentially being destroyed and subjugated uh, yeah, towards because- the end. And also a massive, interestingly enough, um, there was an outbreak of a disease that took place based on Pericles' strategy. I'll so build a they, wall all the way. Yeah, build a yeah. wall and put all the people together and see yeah. if like yeah, we can handle that. Which which sort of strange to me is like the Platonists never saw the dualism as, as being the metaphysical primary. They always saw it as contraries that had a sort of resolution. And if we could understand that we can find balance and harmony between each ourselves. And instead, what I've noticed in the modern days, people have taken people like Hegel and instead of understanding that process, we stand in participation with that. They reverse the process and say it's something we need to manifest later on. It's not something that already has manifested itself and we can like, we can work out our differences. No, the differences are primary and through mm. like uh, essential because there's manufacture this, history. We can manufacture instead of understanding that there is an emanation from a transcendent source, they put the source at the end and we have to, we, have, we now have a duty to get to that end. And so yeah. you sacrifice the individual for this collective. And that's not what the platonic ideas at all meant. It's a, it's a weird twist that happened that I think was born out of the scientism of the, of the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries, the emerging scientism reflecting upon ancient ideas and so it's something I've been trying to trace because a lot oh, of philosophers man. have been, that's the way you're saying that is so useful. I hadn't thought about, but it's true. And, and if you think yes. about like, what, what is it about the perversion, like the neocons? I mean, people, I think generally yes. know that the neocons have a certain Straussian heart yes, uh, at their origins, which interprets these are self-professed Platonists. Yeah, no, right. That's are my they problem. really? Right. That's my yeah, like, thing is well, they got Platonism all wrong. That's the thing. Like if you read Thomas Taylor or you read, you know, the, the Ficino for, for those that can actually understand, you know, this, th- this is not the original intention of the ideas. And that's why for me, I've been looking at translations of like how if you, the various translations and the various sources that are available, it's pretty one, they're done within a secular scientific, scientific sort of scientism framework where they secularize it and make it seem like it's more black and white than it actually is. These things are analogy, allegory, myth. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're artistic ways of describing phenomena that of general principles 
that must exist, but those general principles aren't particulars. But then on top of that, you have this weird humanistic sort of vision to your point about Amsterdam, the Venetian taking over Amsterdam, like where they, they twist the ideas of this new emerging sort of like humanism and this new emerging sort of idea of uh, scientific invention. And they combine it with this like very perverted view of ancient ideas. And you get this sort of like, uh, it's almost like um, the creation of the, the alien in Ridley Scott's universe, right? It's into the <laughs> simulacrum that is essentially the, uh, the worst manifestation of both ideas put together. Because instead, like it's, it's as if science theory, scientific theory took the worst and most misinterpreted elements of Platonism and combined them together and said, well, now we have a scientific duty to create the sort of, sort of like misunderstood idea of an idealistic state yeah. or idealistic transcendent, whatever that would be. And that's codified in Hegel most specifically. Um, but that's not at all. The, the, the original tensions. And I've been piecing this together and trying yeah. to build out a, not only an argument, but sort of an essay around the complete differences. And there are many differences between, between the, even though you can use Hegel, you can look at Hegel and you can look at the fact that, yes, there are all these sort of, sort of cults that existed in Europe. We talked about Rosicrucianism earlier. We talked about, uh, we didn't even go into alchemy, but alchemy, and there's so many different alchemical sim uh, symbols or, or systems it's sort of like the European misinterpreted recapitulation of ancient ideas in the light of a new ability of agency to take command of the world in the form of technology and scientific invention. That's completely sort of uh, separated from any sort of true transcendent sort of spiritual connection and, or the material world itself. And that, that gets ironically, I know that seems weird, but there is like a weird twist there as to the way, because the, the empiricist and rationalist both were skeptical. They both didn't believe that we could actually come to know truth. So they were skeptical. The empiricists were skeptical because we have a sense perceptual apparatus that sees and filters data. And the rationalists are skeptical because uh, we have consciousness and we can deduce from a priori conditions. So they both ended up in nihilism. Both yeah. schools ended up yeah. in nihilism somehow. Yes. And like that to me is some weird perversion. And I don't, I've been trying to track it. Like it's been one of these weird things where it's like, I, I, I took Jung's idea where he thinks that like there's this weird admixture that happened in the sort of the emerging scientism of the like 15th, 16th, 17th century, the early modern period, it's often called mixing with these ancient ideas and sort of justifying that we have a material control as sort of Karl Rove dictating that we can, and we now control history, we create history and the Hegelian sense that like we can take, there, there really is nothing but a dualism to these people. Yeah. We can't really know reality. We can't know truth. And there's just these two dualistic elements that are constantly competing against one another. And so we're just going to weaponize those concepts and we're going to use it as a way to manifest the future that we, uh, we, we idealize as being whatever, but that's the ultimate issue of the ring of the myth of Gyges. It's like, uh, you know, you give someone ultimate power, what would they do? And then I think that was Thrasymachus who posed yeah, that the play where Socrates, yeah. yeah. Well, I uh, thought of gonna... manufacturing history from Hegel to uh, Karl Rove uh, mm. like five minutes ago. And so it's funny you brought up Karl Rove, Tony, because yeah, I talked yeah. about him. I read that quote we're an empire now when we make you know you study what we do judiciously as you will and then yes. we go out and make new realities i read that to the students earlier today in q a because somebody asked about that so you weren't there tony that's legit synchronicity which is that jungian is. the na nature approves of our endeavor no <laughs> seriously though i was turning around looking for this rosicrucian book because on the inside is the great seal of the united states and so when I picked up the book of the yard sales, like, oh, this looks like the thing on the back of the dollar. And, uh, you know, there there are all these elements built in our society and we're not taught about any of them.
So for someone like yourself to undertake the learning and, and stepping up to opportunities, like if LaRouche had a group there, you didn't have to go and participate and do research and actually get learned, but you yeah. did. Yeah, it's and a choice, think, right? We all make more, choices. Yeah, more people can do things like what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it really is just a matter of, I think, taking your destiny in your own hands. Like in a healthy society, I can imagine that we would all have access to proper educational experiences that would give us an ability to appreciate how our minds move when it's make, when they're being fruitful and making discoveries. That's great. And, and I hope to God and I have faith that in the future, that will be what, what young people have access to. And we don't have that now. We were robbed of that. It's not our fault. We're born into a shitty situation. Um, but so it doesn't mean we're screwed. No, it means that all these great discoveries did happen. It's just that they've been obscured and kept from us. So we can, we have to do a little bit more work and pull up our sleeves to hunt things down like you guys do and, and read the original writings and, and, you know, just take our education into our own hands. You guys have created a platform here, which is wonderful where people can just come and really develop what they should have had access to this whole time. And I think Tony touching on what you were saying in terms of the resolution of this thing. Uh, that Carl Rove refuses to, uh, and all of the neocons just refuse. Um, it's, I think it has to do with this question of the subjective and objective, because mm -hmm. these guys are kind of like voyeurs. They don't, they see themselves as shaping uh, a system that is other than them. They, other they're than from they like a higher elitist well class, right? <laughs> yeah, so well said. And they got these, these things that they, they're, they're convinced that all of us are mostly or most of human beings are weak and thus are, are destined to be enslaved by the master elites, which mm -hmm. they must be because they're, they're the ones who are enslaving us. So they must be <laughs> genetically superior or something. So it's this dual dualism that they've got and they don't see themselves as part of the system that they're trying to deal with. Neither did Karl Popper in, in, in a serious way, even though he acts like he did, he didn't, uh, he did not um, with his, theory of you know reflexivity and all that yeah, sort of, how, yeah that's that's the issue the re re recursiveness and we get like hurdles yeah. theorems and stuff it. like that the idea of being able to stand outside the system in which but you cannot stand outside the system you cannot stand outside the idea of a universe you can't stand outside the oh. language we use to describe the, ex the experience of existence itself yet they deify concepts like cause and effect or genetics or uh they or science itself the methodology as being something that stands outside the system that they can use as a justification for the hegemony they're perpetuating on the people of the world yeah they their ivory tower I, uh, utopia of what they think the system should be that has right. no bearing in the thing that they're trying to manipulate. So they're imposing onto the thing artificially. Whereas um, I think that's, that when you when you actually uh, look at somebody like like a like a Kepler again, or, or you know even a Leibniz, like read Leibniz's yeah. you know discourses yeah, on metaphysics or something, mm -hmm. and you can see that it's all about them train or Plato. Obviously, we're talking about Plato. It's all about training the mind to think about thinking and think about what it what is the mind doing, uh, which is interesting because now you haven't uh, you're 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 trying to solve a problem which appears to be outside of you, but it's all occurring in the mind. And so you go from a state of unknown to known. You make that that discontinuous leap into like a eureka and now you have a new reference point of some of a, of the subjective inside of you and the objective outside of you it's a discovery of something outside of you that it just happened and no longer is there that wall between you and the universe you you like just 
accessed an eternal. Uh, an, yes, you, know, like you, you access the form the way Kepler yeah, was able exactly. to showcase the forms and their geometric proportions in relation to Plato's Timaeus, exactly. or in the yeah. idea of like ancient. You're not supposed to know about this. Shut him up. Sacred you got a lot geometry. Invested in this. Yeah, right. <laughs> knowledge, is, knowledge itself is only pervaded through secret societies, Matthew. You can't be doing that. That's that's, right, that's right, the right. Yeah. and Freemasons are supposed to keep those secrets yeah. and hold yeah, that yeah, power. Yeah, just do some opium and go into a trance and then yeah. revelation or something. Yeah, you're not, you're, you're not supposed to be writing your own script in life you're supposed to be using the queen's script with all her pictures on it to to do all the stuff you know how dare yeah, it's exactly. an interesting a good, a good sim character <laughs> juxtaposition you mentioned earlier about sort of the issues uh sarpy we were talking about the venetians and the, the sort of dualism but or this dual idea between do we suppress the information because in history that was the issue do we complete especially with the fall of the roman empire and it's moving over to east and byzantium and constantinople the suppression of information was so egregious i mean as, as china was going through the beginnings of like their golden age essentially a civilization we're going into a dark age and we look at like the progression of what happened as far as the suppression of knowledge and the suppression of even being able to allow to speak for example paris banned aristotle in like 1231 they banned his physics and his metaphysics or something like canceled. that and he got canceled. Yeah. Like the, and like there's heresies against the new emerging, what was being brought back from the, like the, the sacking of Constantinople and the crusades for, uh, and obviously we had the, um, uh, the reformation that took place and then the counter reformation and we have all these situations and then you thinking about, but that was the strategy to your point. That was the strategy for hundreds of years, suppress, 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 or only give a very few people, uh, you know, maybe sort of uh, ascetic monks, or people part of Charlemagne's court, um, the access to information in order to justify the faith in some capacity, the war against like uh, Tertullian or Anselm. But then there is this, they allow it to, it's, it gets out. It just starts to get out. You can't stop it. Then you have invention, the printing press, Gutenberg, 15th century. You have the Venetian, you have the Ficino translating all these different things, you have different cults sort of popping up around these ideas. You can't, you can't stop it anymore because then you'd, you'd be, you'd have to tackle all of Europe at this point. It's, it's almost becoming too ubiquitous. So it's like, yeah, how do you spin it? In other words. And I wonder, is there a way to draw parallels to what we're experiencing today? Because on one level, I'm seeing individuals, young children being completely sort of like, I sort of alluded to earlier, they're not able to think, they're not being taught the processes by how to think or how their own natural mind works, body, soul, mind complex works. Um, but at the same time, there's also this sort of like, I think about it is there's so much information being foisted upon us that we tend to just not even give into the information, I guess, or explore it. Instead, go for that call the dopamine drips, yeah, you know, the yeah, quick yeah. hits on YouTube. So it almost seems to be like a juxtaposition between the two still existing in modern times. Maybe I'm just like, Way taking this way too far, but maybe I'm trying to find an analogy. Where yeah, you're going exists, way but, too far, dude. Yeah, you can't right. talk about that stuff on this podcast. But <laughs> it, it seems like both of are Osiris, happening. thousands of years old, supposedly. <laughs> that's what these people tell their people in the club. But that's the thing on the dollar that I was talking about. I did find the book. It was just hiding behind. Yeah, yeah, that was that was brought in like 1932, right? Um, uh, Henry Wallace, I think it was Wallace that brought it in under FDR. But that's a you know garage yeah, sale book. Look at that. That was a garage sale book. That was a good fight. Um, Crucian, garage sale. You got to well, learn. Let's not, for, not forget about what they did to Manly Palmer Hall. I mean, he became, oh, he was geez. forced to become a 33 degree Freemason. And the then mysteries. he, but then they, they, they sort of ritualistically murder him. I mean, he was a big guy. He had a lot of health problems, but That's, uh, I wasn't sure if, if Hall was a, uh, a psyop or not. Like, uh, yeah, it was never, I'm never, I've never been uh, clear on where he actually stood. He's a strange figure. He's another He's a weird guy. Figure. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I I read him like uh, like 
like I he's probably uh, lying. He's like a historian things, for but the saying things that are true at the same time. It's, yes. it's uh, well, he's like a historian for the people, like for the you know the inner sect, if you will. So I look at it like almost like more of dubious form of quick because quickly was sort of a historian for the intersect so he didn't mean to be i mean he didn't, this dude, I don't know, he like I, I read his i i read his um his anglo-american establishment book and and he really it doesn't yeah. seem like he really sympathizes with the oligarchy when that was that published about. though because rich one was he, that? after he died he after after died. yeah 81 yeah this um, Wonder, do we know when he wrote like when he began writing about because uh, my curious question is like we know yeah he wrote it in 1948 it was 1948 when he wrote Anglo-American Establishment. Yeah, because Alfred Zimmern comes Zimmern. to him and he's like, here's this crazy story. And he's like, mm, I don't know if I'm going to go risk my career on your crazy story. I'm going to research it for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. Then he's like, I got to tell people, but in a, a way that's coded. So that was Tragedy and Hope. And then after I see, that's my question. Away. I was coded with Tragedy But to okay, the Manly Palmer was- Hall aspect, I read this uh, this book by Louis Sahagan, and it seems that he was ritually murdered and some the ending's insane it's yeah. a bad ending but mm. he's an interesting guy he's a canadian mm. kind of rosicrucian he grew up with his grandmother was his like basically who raised them uh she encouraged him to raise book and i came to this book after hearing probably a couple hundred hours of his lectures because he used to do a weekly 90 minute lecture and then um this woman uh, she who remembers Jeannie erstad mm. had made this whole collection of all these radio broadcast from all these different people dave emery and you know manly palmer hall all these things that were out there so i just took it as raw material for consideration and here's this nice like older man who's like telling us the story of antiquity and i liked how he talked so i was like you know and then i'd look stuff up for myself but i didn't look at it like he's a source of uh, like the source he's just the messenger and in that message, there's things to pick up on and look up and, mm-hmm. oh, wow, they really did do this type of thing back then. Or I did, he said this book or whatever, you know, had this thing. So you go look it up and that's how you kind of weigh it. But mm-hmm. the establishment did not like him. Yeah. Was like of what they did at the end, like it was awful. Yeah. And was, I read, yeah. there's he also a lot got of it, he marked got pages in this yeah. book. Wow. I remember reading that set. You gave me that book and said, especially yeah. read the ending of it. And it was, yeah, it's pretty, he's a strange figure. He's enigmatic. Cause I agree, Matt. It's, it's, but he wrote this, Matthew, the secret destiny of America yeah. Yeah, ties that. into Francis Bacon and you know, all that good stuff. That's another issue. Francis, the new scientists and the mer- yeah, there's, there's Well, so Francis Bacon, but here's the, uh, see, I feel like we're, we don't have time to unpack. I know, <laughs> I know but it was like a good topics. first meeting. We made uh, lots of positive. Pro- I said, "Yeah, we don't have time to pack, unpack everything." But I think we can. Around we can have well. you back as a semi-regular yeah. guest and have more of these sure. conversations. Yeah. And uh, I also have some other, like bigger, better ideas. But this was good because I was like, "Let's get them on the show. Let's showcase your work. Uh, let's point people toward the, the the articles, especially that you've written." But I enjoyed your uh, I enjoyed your interview with Whitney like on a podcast Fantastic. and then i enjoyed your debate with the other guy who was like you know uh slightly different version of the theory and, and he's trying to go back and forth with you in that debate and i thought oh. you know do you yeah, know i didn't know what about? i was yeah. walking into with that thing but that was uh yeah that was that was interesting i could see <laughs> like his it. side but i could yeah. also see where the the incongruencies or the contradictions on his side would mesh with your story so in the future i think you guys are probably friends but like he's yeah. coming in hot he's like no but this and i was like this is what needs to be done we need to get to the best ideas the ones that you know absolutely uh, end up reflecting reality and, yeah i feel like on a different platform if we were just like 
having a beer together, we'd, we'd hit it off just great, but I didn't expect that level of aggression coming into it. And I didn't even know what it was about. So <laughs> it kind of unsettled me, but yeah, no, I think this is good. And, um, I just, before I forget one thing that you guys have to read, it's short. It's yeah. not a book I'm going to throw at you, but it's short. It's, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Eureka, mm. his thoughts on the material and spiritual universe. It's a prose poem, but oh, it's, it's prose. He wrote it a few months before he was killed in 1848. And it was the basis upon which it was like the manifesto, as he described it, for the new stylist magazine that he was going to create a few weeks after he died, because he was on the route back from Baltimore to New York, uh, where he had raised money, um, a lot of money from supporters who wanted to help him build this because he was always an editor for other people's magazines. And with the stylus, which he had the cover design, he drew it himself. He wrote out the manifesto that it was going to be about political analysis, historical analysis, poetry, pose, and cultural warfare. Interesting. It's just that like was JFK like, Jr.'s George Magazine. It has nothing to do with... No, yeah, that, total I'm coincidence, sure. yeah. <laughs> and, and, this thing, too, when you read this, you're going to be struck by the fact that he is attacking two modes of thinking for the first 20 pages, the uh, the creeping and the crawling mode of a posteriori mm-hmm. and a priori methods of Euclid and uh, the hog, Bacon. Uh, which mankind has been given uh, falsely as two methods of coming to truth and where one just creeps, the other crawls, but we are a species that is designed to soar. Um, that's why it's oh, called like Eureka. That. That's fantastic. I am absolutely. Even cites Kepler. Right he has a paragraph where he's translated Kepler's harmonies in it. it it's in, it's intense. And then he started getting a sense of, Kepler's why this laws guy was of so is huh? very Kepler's laws of motion. I mean, we, we, we sort of deified Newton around it and I get, I, you know, but there's a reason why I think we sort of, it's, it's the same reason we look at Einstein today. Like it's a certain celebrity around the way in which we artificially build up the, like the historicities or the hagiographies, if you will, of these individuals, instead of recognizing the contributions that came before them that actually had, if you look into their work, there's something more that can be said. Oh, did I get, I got muted. Me too. Right, are we good? Sorry, okay. I don't know how to oh, good. You're good. Uh, but there's, uh, my point is, I guess, you know, Webster Tarpley sort of alluded to this a little bit. It's the reason why I think we sort of focus on certain celebrity positions in history, the way we sort of like normalized history, if you will. And Newton being sort of, I get like he sort of codified the laws of motions in a certain, especially with the new calculus emerging, but it was born upon Kepler's laws of motion that are very interesting. But then Kepler had this, uh, to your point, this sort of a uh, more interesting way of looking at the mind and looking at the nature of discovery. Um, that because the the issue of a priori and a posteriori that'll never like the the meeting point between the two is that truth is unknowable because where do how do you jump from the the inductive to the deductive? I got this question all the time when I teach logic, and it's like that that issue there is where free will exists. And yeah. so what they say is that because of that free will, the truth is unknowable in some capacity because we're always sort of fallible. Of course, that presupposes truth is knowable. If you say it's to unknowable, that's or not to think, thing. that is the question. And it's by an artificial question, dichotomy. You start thinking. Yeah, you know, it's Good an artificial point. dichotomy. Good point. Yeah, this um, is fun. This is I didn't expect the conversation to go in this direction, but this is or yeah, these directions, yeah, and uh, this is great. I, uh, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a good incredible work, mind, yeah. incredible work. Um, I just want to get this on the do your thing before I get his site again at the end. Yeah, I was just gonna I was gonna put his sites on. So here's the Rising Tide Foundation. I have a bunch of tabs open because I want to read a bunch of oh, atomic physics and Luc Montagnier and the book review, The Nature of the Atom. That looks very interesting. And entropy. Oh, that's a mind blowing so, book. The Nature of the Atom, the the structured atomic model. Poof. I gotta check this out. Oh, man, I'm gonna be really great. 
like your your website is sort of like become my main go-to now for intellectual endeavors uh awesome. we share a lot in common regards of the way you view history and society and philosophy too i like the fact that you don't take such a and in, in conspiracy communities a lot of people take a very black and white position like they say oh well strauss is connected with plato and popper sort of gives his analysis of the republic or something there for plato bad and they just have this sort of initial sort of bias to it yeah. and this tasty generalization and i'm like you don't have that your website's filled with a lot of nuance this is one and the other one is your the this website here the canadian patriot and i'm not yep. yep and that you can yep. buy the books and yep. yeah just awesome work i so glad that I got the chance to see uh, your presentation because I had no idea who you were as Rich alluded to before uh, the Reiner Fulmick uh, grand jury. So oh, we're glad to Reiner. surprise you that you didn't know us either, but we got good things coming your way as well. So, well, yeah, no, you guys have been my radar for a while. I haven't really fully immersed myself, but I, I'm very, I'm very, very impressed. This is a, this is a good thing that you guys are doing. Well, right on. I oh, appreciate likewise. you. Like, and your stamina time. is astounding. The fact that you guys on a regular basis put out seven, eight hour pr productions. This is, is the uh, easiest part of my weekend. I lecture for seven hours on Friday night. I did five hours with the students today because I did an after show today. And now we're doing this. And then most of the week, I just, I'm off. I deal with clients. It, it's like I get a couple rest days, but this isn't my rest day. This is my rest when you say day. You, you lecture students. What do you, what do you lecture? Oh, I, I teach a course called autonomy that basically puts back into our education that which they took out to make it schooling. So you put back in free will, critical right. thinking, creative problem solving, uh, active uh, literacy and rhetoric skills, and then high value skills of entrepreneurism or executive management. If you want to work in a company, either way, I teach like a uh, hundred students a season or a couple hundred a year, twice a year I teach. So, uh, we just started this Friday was the first lecture. So I'm still getting my, <clears throat> my stride back for doing all these productions. Getting the stamina back up. I'm the mean, same thing. I mean, I took it two days off because <laughs> I had, I had a course I taught, I teach the GTW community logic, uh, in the Aristotelian and Platonic framework. And I did like five or six hours and I'm, I was asleep the next two days. And then but Rich, I don't know. He does it. Yeah, this Friday, is, this all is night. Fascinating. I, I, I'm really happy. What, what you said, that, what's this community that you're, uh, that you're teaching? Okay, so um, Tony's course is for like uh, as well. it's for okay. members of the Grand Theft World, right? Because you're that you're members teaching. of the Grand Theft World and autonomy communities. So it's right. Richard's Richard's community. It's both, but uh, I made it available because you know to make explicit the way in which they're lying to us and creating cognitive dissonance. I at least want to give people the basics of how you know and his, uh, Aristotle's like sophistical refutations against the sophists how he outlined and defined, you know, these, these rhetorical techniques. And to your point earlier, one of the issues that the sophists did is they would essentially write out the arguments for individual, but they wouldn't show you how you arrived at argumentation itself. And that was his big critique is like, how do you even arrive at the nature of truth or the nature of being and all these sorts of ideas. So yeah. he wanted to give the tools for people to do that themselves. And that's what I'm, I'm trying pretty, to get back. Wasn't to it uh Corax of Syracuse or Corax of Sicily that brought so sophism to Greece mm -hmm. in the first yeah, place? Correct. Yeah. Corax that is absolutely yeah. correct long train of abuses we have suffered we gotta learn our way out uh joshua if you can hear me will you send um like the freedom vault in the library of cognitive liberty to matthew oh, yeah. sometime this week just like a mental i was mental already mental. sending him an uh, email thank you awesome. cool and i'll send you guys uh send me your uh, your mailing addresses too i'll send you a couple of signed copies of uh the clash of the two americas and uh that should i don't know 
probably I will read. I will read and highlight them. Fantastic! Yeah, I I you will. I, I when, when a lot of people tell me that, I'm like, yeah, sure. But I, yeah. I've seen your books, and I, I believe that you actually yeah. will. When I first met him ten years ago, I went through his library, and he has esoteric section of his library and his exoteric and all, nearly every book had marks in it and he had and he labels like if you rich you can oh, show he's, like, highlighting. He's, he's, he's a highlighted highlight you, you mean he's a he's not a communist though right no but, not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Different marks. that's why i was being clear good good he's got a sense of humor too that's good that's funny but the whole thing was marked up yeah wink wink so it was we had the little red tape and he had a perfectly lined up going in a sort of linear fashion from top to bottom That'd and then he had nice. everything marked and i'm like wow he really did actually read all this stuff i mean a lot it's of it's to read it and not still. be able to remember it for recall so i try to like give myself handles to do that either put it in my history blueprint or put some notes in the book so it all comes back together yeah it has to be punctuated with some 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 meaning um in the mind <laughs> No, it's yeah. good. You guys are rare breeds. That's uh, that's good. Got to make this well, work. You, yourself as well. I mean, your work is absolutely incredible. I mean, I, I had no idea about the Canadian connection or what happened with that. Why it's always been a part, essentially, of the Commonwealth model and never sort of gained a sense of independence. As my dad likes to call it, like a sort of a franchisee of the crown. Um, I was like, yeah. you know, it's why it's not untrue. And you know, you appreciate. I think as an American, I've I've encountered a lot of American feedback when they've read my my Untold History of Canada books. Uh, you you kind of appreciate being an American or the American experience a little bit more when you look at the Canadian angle for like, and what the hell uh, happened here in this weird monarchy of the North. And this it's, it's like, and it's, it's a constitutionally organized deep state structure from the get go from 1774 and the Quebec act all the way to the present Hudson Bay company. Hudson Bay company. We're East India company down here. You're Hudson Bay company up there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The connection with, especially what happened with, uh, there's an article you have about the Greenbacks and the Lincoln. And then this is what happened around the Civil War, too. That was an interesting. I had not was I was not quite as aware. I mean, I know Canada wasn't directly involved, but at least with the perpetrators or supposed perpetrators, there is a sort of connection between institutions and filter. I mean, it's just a weird. These are aspects I was not aware. Oh, of. Oh, man. But. No, it is so fascinating. That Civil War period, because mm-hmm. you have the Confederacy intelligence operations that are pro- that are all over Montreal, Toronto and Halifax. I would never I mean, have thought that. No. And, and a character, a key guy in this whole thing is George Saunders, um, a, a Confederate. Uh, I think he's a colonel. But he's like one of the key yeah. operators up here. Huh? Not, not yeah. Sanders. Colonel Sanders. <laughs> I don't know if there's a direct connection. He actually looks a little bit like the guy, like the, like the chicken guy. But uh, but he he was actually renowned for being because he was part of the, the Franklin Pierce government, which was like a young uh, Matini controlled Freemasonic government in the United States in the 1850s. And he was up there in uh, in Europe, in Italy, partying with Matsini, oh, who man. had the whole Albert Pike connection. So, you know, you got these these different anarchists running the young the young Europe movement yeah. out of which Engels and Marx are are, are created to sabot- to sort of, you know, create a, a sabotage operation from the spread of the Frederick List American system um, political economy that was being adopted all over countries like Russia, Europe, everywhere uh, modeled on what Lincoln was doing with the greenbacks. And the whole protective tariff, long-term credit emissions, national banking, all of that, that's what was being disrupted by the Mazzini networks that were just weaponizing people and mobs. So yeah, the 19th century sort of 19th century British model that like when we talk about color revolutions, when I talk about what's going on, what happened with Ukraine, when I talk about what happened in Serbia or Egypt, or Syria, like I'm like, this is a model that goes back like well over a hundred years to the British State Department and Palmerston. And I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just incredible work and providing those connections really helped uh 
sort of round out our perspective because we certainly have an American-centric viewpoint, not because we, we just... It's too much information. We need other people to provide their sp- unique specialization. You've done incredible work. So kudos. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we it. really appreciate it. Like there's uh there's a lot of topics for people to dig into who are listening. And I always encourage them. If we said yes. something that you don't understand, look, start looking it up. Start looking it up. That's where the learning starts. And um, I got some ideas what we could talk about next time. So uh yeah, I think this is a good w- first workout and uh, a lot of value can be had from studying what we just unfolded in the past two hours. And that was spontaneous. Like I haven't talked, I haven't even emailed with Matthew. It was all kind of like done through Stephanie and Twitter and LD. And, you know, so uh, it's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. I think uh, there's a lot more we can learn from each other. And I look forward uh, to defending freedom and liberty for future as well as the present. Wise words to end on. That's good. Right on. We're going to list your your links in the show notes. So people can click through, get your books, check out your articles, check out your site, keep up with you. And uh, thank you again for making time in your busy schedule. Have a good night. Hey, thanks for having me on. I look forward to the the next chat. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Thank you very much. Really great to meet you. Yeah, likewise. All right. Well, that was fantastic. And uh, yeah, I know we all got more than we bargained for. (laughs) Oh, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. Uh, it's it's an honor. Sorry, I hijacked a little bit there. Yeah, no, he has a no. Absolutely, man. The consciousness was flowing. Everything it was, was growing. In the so. light direction, I think yeah. that was great. And great. Uh, you know, he understands the EIR aspect. He understands uh, the Fabian socialist aspect, the roundtable aspect. These are all like the grammar. It's the individual parts that you need to see, yes. like what the puzzle picture makes makes you know makes in reality, uh, connecting the dots so you can see the big picture type idea and uh like i could talk to him for two hours just on you know lincoln's assassination and who's simon wolf and the young americans and you know pike and mazzini and these other people that had secret society influence and how they're running intelligence co-ops and solomon de rothschilds oh no the expensive book (laughs) hopefully your wife isn't watching right now hope my wife did like see yeah this, this book that she <laughs> found out was now worse like it was like 37 or 2700 bucks last week i just dropped it on the floor what? sorry sorry Lucas. i thought it was like 1200 but no yeah this book he can he that's all confederate uh, intelligence service and judah benjamin's relationship and his letters with uh with him so yeah there's a lot to and be. the false dichotomy set up between between the North and the South that he was able to see through, which is very interesting. And we sort of alluded to a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you, we all could sit around. We honestly, it's, it's need to do some sort of collaboration effort. Well, we do and getting on. But the, you yeah. weren't at those meetings this past week. So it's still top secret and not for public, but if there's a list for a, a upcoming summit on these topics, he's on it already. Yeah. Okay. There you which go. is, yeah, I do know. Part, I, part we, of how we, we did there. talk about it a little bit. I, knew you're talking about. I wasn't sure if that was in the, yeah. 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 It's not just uh, Richard Gage who's having summits these days. We all got to get out there and uh, get this information out there while we still have internet and like literacy skills to put it all together. Because the future they're trying to create for us doesn't have the slaves reading anymore. It was a temporary thing they needed so they could build rocket ships and get that stuff from us. But now they're all set with us. They don't need us to do calculus, whether it's Leibniz or Newton or Ramanujan. Yeah, check that one out. Check, okay, I'm dropping names now. Woo. I'm dropping bombs like the U.S. government in Syria, yo. What's up? No, it's bad. That's not that's not the war we're supposed to talk about. Yeah, that's not an approved war. We're not going to talk about that <laughs> occupation.
ongoing with occupation. the help of the British. All right. So um, before we get into said laptop from hell uh, and that whole Hunter Biden abyss, right? <laughs> uh, are there any other news stories we have to do before uh, the deep no, dive? We can. I got. I got However like this you want to thing going on with my books back here. It's going to get crazy. No, that's same. I pulled out. I forgot to put this on, but there's a lot of science and money we alluded to oh. earlier. I pulled it when I almost thought my books were going to fall down. I, I last used it in the garage when I needed a block on top of my jack to that's get it up huge. high enough to get the wheel off. That's a, it's like a 600 page book or something. Yeah, it's, it's huge and it's very heavy, but it's actually very readable. Uh, it's not like if I, I should pull out some of my like. The, you know theology of plato by proclus it's like even bigger and well that's the other stuff. thing he has a, a semblance of logic and reason when he's writing that book and don't ever ask stevens arlingo what is the hist like what's the definition of money because he's like our, the whole 634 page that's book is book the history is. and definition of the that is the definition yeah literally says the lost science of mind the whole thing's about the definition yeah. of money and then we're, that's what we're getting into in lecture five in my course definitions so. yeah i enjoyed reading that back in the day he's he's cool dude it's an interesting it's a good primer into the subject in my opinion um it's a good it's a good entry so. not nearly as good as the trust game the trust game's a lot more like the trust game the is like that's the but, best i've seen thus far it's better than money masters ben so which is great as initial Bill early still, effort hats off still, but trust still. game's better and there even corbett's was good but not the trust game as a whole i mean you got to give he, it to Aaron and melissa even neil ferguson's uh neil ferguson yeah 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 he had that whole series on that too because he he wrote yeah that was a that. good series as well ferguson stills i mean uh corbett's are all fantastic but what they're doing with the trust look it's going to end up being 12 to 13 hours each one runs a little over an hour so it'll probably be end up 13 plus hours of information that they had to get on the record to show like here's all of it here's how it all connects uh, controlling banking, controlling gold, controlling fiat. If they're printing against the, you know, government, controlling statecraft, controlling statecraft. Yeah, and I think it it does allude controlling to education. I think, I think it can will like when we had Patrick Wood on talking about technocracy and trilateral, the trilaterals. You know, there is a connection between like money was the form of control in the form of energy literally it's uh but at the same time it's uh they want to juxt they want to tra transmutate that control from money to the mind itself so there's like a connection with you know transhumanism if you will and sort of crashing sort of world economic systems and combining it all together in one sort of implantable chip which we have a story about later on with the swedes are accepting some sort of you don't need currency anymore swedes it's had the first your, central bank now they're the first country. digital central bank I smell like that. Pattern. Yeah, you got it. So there's a connection with money and transhumanism, which is really devious and dubious and all that good stuff. But anyway, so we can move forward however you want to. This, this, uh, we don't need to get anything more in the Ukraine Russia situation. I think we've covered that in depth. We get the, as insofar the past couple of weeks, not so much tonight, but certainly in the past couple of weeks. And a lot of this stuff is really just, um, Russia, uh, Russia, Russia. Propaganda all right. Uh, from both sides. Yeah, because you know the the Alex Jones side has taken the position that Russia is somehow fighting the new world order to a certain extent. Not everyone. I'm not saying Alex Jones is saying that, but they certainly they're playing into the that. new world order's playbook, man. Like they yeah. just handed them. There's like a checkbox list of like NATO and the globalists, and he just went and personally checked and initialed each one. He's like, "You want NATO for the next 50 years? Here you go. You want uh, you know, yes." To, you know get russia on like there is these guys they had a metaphorical list they're like get russia on social credit system and they had a big question mark next to it they're like we don't know how we're going to get to do this because like they're on the dollar and how do we 
oh, we could just cut them off and force them into China's hands? Well, maybe, right? But what's that do to us? Because it's the Saudi petrodollar plus the Russians using it to kind of balance us against China and the People's Republic of, no, 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 the Communist Party. Those are two different things. One's Taiwan, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, one's Taiwan. Yeah, oh, this is communist. Yeah, seventh grade like CCC versus the Taiwan situation, yeah. which they they preserved what they could from the uh, the Cultural Revolution. They're a government in exile. That's right. Yeah, government in exile is a good way yes. of looking at it. Um, yes. But there's that dialectic being played. He forced Putin to try because China and Russia are not allies the way they're sort of portraying them in any capacity but they're mm-hmm. they need that's credit says they still need to be able to transact in the world period and so then now they have to utilize a different system which is the exact system they want to get us all on is the playground of the globalists is china with their sort of top-down technocratic control system with the vaccine passports that they've already had a form of that implemented with the social credit system you know it's all connects here's the cut to the chase even if you're like a jack ma billionaire creator of like the amazon over there it's alibaba disappeared the dude for a while and they re-educated them and i don't know did they introduce a clone that looks just like jack ma or is that jack ma it's hard to tell anymore because it's not really jack ma (laughs) i don't know it doesn't seem like the same guy who went into the concentration camp or the torture situation that came out i don't know maybe that's the effects of torture on an individual and like you know getting his number called by those guys but it was also guys here in america also like monarch mind control it was charlie Charlie, what was the guy who killed uh, John? No, the Lennon? guy that works with Warren Buffett, Charlie Meager. What's his name? Munger. Charlie Munger. Uh, Munger. He's the one yeah. who's like, yeah, put Sonny Boy in his place, and I like those Chinese. And I was like, dude, this is an ominous sign of what's coming because that he's like yep. the ruling class mouthpiece in that situation. Yes, he is. Yeah, yes. yeah. It's, it's it's it. Yeah, I mean, it's they they have the perfect dialectic now set up, and unfortunately, with what Russia and Putin is doing. This expedites what they the agenda that they want. This is what I've been trying to point out, especially in particular to the World Economic Forum's agenda of continual crashing of the world economy and bringing out their Great Reset and so forth and so on. But this just moves it forward. I didn't see this Jimmy Dore clip. The Saudis uh, beheaded 81 people in an unprecedented execution. Has anyone seen it? So it's he juxtaposes the Saudi executions to. Um, the way in which we're demonizing Russian involvement, I guess, or not, not saying that Russia is correct, but he sort of like, you know, we, we were propagandizing the Russian angle saying they're like bombing schools or something like that. But and we found the, so, we we, the Saudis and helped them who, bomb Yemen. We, yeah. Who, and then Maybe. behead people, you know, political dissidents sort of thing. So it's an interesting juxtaposition. I mean, it's worth exploring if, if we want to, but I don't know how long the clip is. Yeah. Uh, well, I was just looking at things that from the section that should be included in the time capsule. So we did some due diligence to the week. There's an, there's this interesting, I haven't looked at this, but maybe we can even incorporate it later on, or there's this, this could really be a intermission. I haven't, I don't know how true or not true this. I haven't looked, I haven't watched the documentary yet too much stuff this week, but Al Mayadine documentary, which, so it's in sort of Arab documentary called diplomatic viruses. I couldn't read the title. That's about 30 minutes. And it gets into the history of the, bio labs in ukraine it's uh it's about 27 minutes long we won't have time necessarily to get on the night but and i haven't looked in to see its factuality so i have to see how factual yeah, I'll, i could check it out this yeah. week it's something worth checking out i thought that was something I, I included it the last second i saw um but i didn't get a chance to go through there's this greg greece enemies within i think he's he gets into more of the connections with the biological warfare he had another really good clip this week it's only like three minutes long 
All right, so let's so. let's book let's book out of this section. And go to the uh, the yeah. Fauci flu and the Wuhan crew, Fauci crew and the Wuhan flu. One of those two. Uh, let's do that Ryan Grimm story at the at the beginning because I haven't seen that and I'm interested. And then maybe we'll get Jimmy Dore's take on Ryan Grimm after that. We'll see. They might not like each other. I don't know. Remains to be seen. Yeah, that works. So. Ryan Grimm may or may not take uh, his paycheck money from three billionaires, not just one, but like three different ones. According to Jimmy Dore, I'm not saying that. That's Jimmy Dore who's saying that. D-O-R-E is his last name. You can check it out. But first, we're going to go to The Hill and like the conservative uh, uh, Capitol Hill publication that they run over there. And let's see what the official news screen checkmark people have to say. So Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, the scientist at the center of the lab leak controversy is a man named Peter Dajak. He's the head of an organization called EcoHealth Alliance, and he's gotten tens of millions of dollars over the years for research into coronaviruses and other pathogens. Since 2005, he's been working closely with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Starting in 2014, his organization with NIH funding collaborated on research there that involved gain-of-function research. We also know that in 2018, Dajak applied to DARPA for a grant to fund a project that would work to insert furin cleavage sites into the spikes of SARS-related viruses. Now, that research was never funded, but we don't know for sure whether any of it was ever performed. It matters because the furin cleavage site found in the virus that created this pandemic is what's so unique about it, and it's what scientists initially flagged as evidence that it was likely made in a lab. Now, in early February 2020, Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, got on a conference call with leading scientists and were told by many of them that the origin seemed likely to be a lab and the furin cleavage site was a key tell. The day after the call, as we've reported here before, Dr. Jeremy Farrar sent around notes, including to Fauci and Collins, summarizing what some of the scientists had said on the call. Redacted versions of those notes were obtained by The Intercept, and House Republicans subsequently obtained and released unredacted versions. One scientist, Mike Farzan, said this, for instance, quote, he is bothered by the furin site and has a hard time explaining that as an event outside the lab though there are possible ways in nature, but highly unlikely. So a few days later, the scientists were told not to explore the lab leak theory, lest they create grist for conspiracy theorists. Instead, Fauci publicly ridiculed the notion. Peter Dajak played a leading role tamping down discussion of the lab leak theory by secretly organizing a group of scientists to send a letter to The Lancet debunking the idea. Now, at The Intercept, we've repeatedly reached out to Dajak. At one point, he responded through a press secretary, but generally hasn't responded at all. In late February, he finally agreed to speak to reporters Sharon Lerner and Mara Fistendahl, who've been doggedly on this story since the beginning. So the full interview is worth a read, but I want to highlight two exchanges that appear to contradict each other on their face and really go to the heart of the question. So Sharon and Mara ask, quote, did EcoHealth Alliance or the Wuhan Institute of Virology, through its partnership with EcoHealth Alliance, ever insert a furin cleavage site into a bat coronavirus genetic sequence? He says, of course we did not do that. I really don't understand how that could be a question at this point. It's beyond the pale. That's not in our plans, and it's not in any of our reports. So, of course, we didn't do that. All right, so that's pretty unequivocal. It's beyond the pale. Of course we didn't do that. Now, again, whether they inserted a furin cleavage site is a key question, because if they did, that could explain how the virus came to look and act like it does. But then Sharon and Mara then asked the logical follow-up. 
but isn't it the case that you submitted a grant proposal to DARPA to do so? And he said, we did submit a proposal to DARPA. I've not checked through the one that's online that it's the correct document. What I do know is it was widely reported that DARPA rejected that because there were concerns about safety issues. That is absolutely untrue. The document that allegedly is DARPA's response, their review of our proposal, I've never seen that before. It was never sent to us. I don't know if it's real. DARPA had a process by which people who didn't get funded could do an interview with them to find out why they didn't get funded. So I did that. Never once did they mention any concerns or issues around safety. Never once did they mention gain of function. The reason they told us it was rejected was because the amount we asked for was too much for them. They couldn't afford it. They actually encouraged us to resubmit in different ways. We then had protracted conversations with them about funding specific parts of it. They liked the proposal, unquote. Now, a DARPA source has since confirmed the document's authenticity to Project Veritas on the record, so there's no doubt anymore that it's authentic, and Dajak doesn't claim it is. It is or isn't. So in two questions, he's gone from saying the research is beyond the pale to saying DARPA liked it, but it was too expensive. So the next question is, of course, was any of the work described in that proposal completed prior to its submission? And this is Sharon and Mara. We were told by multiple sources that when you submit a grant, that at least some of the work would have been done, unquote. And that's the critical question. And it's one we haven't gotten an answer to yet. We know the grant wasn't funded, but lots of work happens outside of grant funding. As scientists do research to see which projects would be best to apply for full funding for. So Dajak replied, when you write a grant proposal and propose to do a new line of research, which is what we did, we would not be doing that research before we submit the proposal. That's not how it works, unquote. But lots of scientists have said that, in fact, that is exactly how it works. That it's very unusual to apply for funding for a line of research you haven't even remotely experimented with. So they pressed further, quote, when we asked you if you had ever inserted a furin cleavage site to a coronavirus, you responded with outrage. But that is what was described in the DARPA proposal. And Dajak responded, no, what you said is, did we insert a furin cleavage site? And what I said was, of course not. If we had done that work with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, it would have been published by now. It would have been made public in our reports to the NIH. The DARPA proposal was not funded. Therefore, the work was not done. Simple. Okay, but again, it's not that simple. And then the next back and forth, he allows that perhaps a colleague of his in North Carolina did some of this work. But if you acknowledge that you proposed to DARPA to insert a furin cleavage site, and he says, I refute that that was the goal of the DARPA proposal. The idea was not to insert a furin cleavage site in a virus to see what happens. That's not what was proposed. The proposal was to look for those polybasic cleavage sites, that's another word for furin, in nature because we knew that that was the, that has the potential to make a virus more able to infect people and move from person to person. If we found mutations around that polybasic cleavage site that looked like it could be evolvable, the idea was then that Ralph Barrick's lab at UNC would do some work to see how evolvable that site was. So that work never happened. The proposal was not funded, unquote. And so in later exchanges with The Intercept reporters, he says he doesn't know if Ralph Barrick did that work, but he doubts it. Now, the interview began with Dajak calling it all beyond the pale, but halfway into it, he started making a rousing defense of it. So the reporters told him, quote, some virologists were dismayed to see the insertion of furin cleavage sites in this proposal. 
I don't know why any, and he says, I don't know why anyone would be dismayed at that because furin cleavage sites were first researched in the influenza viruses. And it's well known that that's something you should look for if you're interested in viral virulence factors. Second, there's actually a published paper from way before our proposal was submitted, way before the pandemic, where a group actually inserted a furin cleavage site into SARS-CoV-1. So we were right to look for that. And I think the proposal stands as a valid and actually quite predictive effort to understand the risk of viruses. You've got to look at the big picture of why we do this research. We're not doing it as a sort of academic interest. What would happen if you put a cleavage site here? No, this work is done to say what viruses are there out there in the wild that have the potential to emerge in people and can we do something to stop them, develop vaccines, develop therapies, stop people making contact with those animals, unquote. Now, the earlier experiment he's talking about only involved the spike protein, not the full virus. So there was actually no risk of it escaping, which he must know. And, and, so, and so, Kim, he starts with, this is outrageous, beyond the pale yeah. that we would do research like this, and then finishes with, it's really important research. Yeah. That should have been funded. Well, and the best point that you make about this is people don't just apply for grants on theoretical they have to have at least done something in order to then say, now we need millions of dollars when I mean, they're asking for a lot of money. And this is just the same principle for business. If you're going to go and look for a, a venture capitalist or a funder of some kind, you have to have something prototype to show them, something. right? <laughs> some kind of prototype to say, look, we've, we, we really think this would work and this is why we think this would work. And so we think you should invest all of this massive amount of money into that. So that's where it gets really scary is that if they were just, if they were just looking into this, to, in order to get the funding, then maybe they wouldn't have had all the checks that you normally would get when you have full funding, because then you could put all of that into place. So you're kind of playing around. I actually thought the most Weasley thing he says is at the very end, when he starts defending it, he says, you know, we do all this research, you know, not just, just, not just to experiment, but because it's important, because we're going to come up with all these things to combat these mutant viruses we're inventing. But there's no... What? There, like, there's no explanation there for why any of this research is necessary. Right. Like... The, the vaccines we developed were not because we had done right. that research. The, the same thing with the therapeutic. Yeah. We, 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 we didn't learn anything. And he doesn't even really explain what we're supposed to learn. He's like, we're doing this to learn more about these really scary viruses we're potentially creating. Well, what are you learning other than right. you can get a lot of people killed with them? Yeah. Right. Yes. No, <laughs> we definitely learned that. And the, the throwing it to Ralph Barrick at UNC was also fascinating to me. It's like, so in other words, he's saying we were going to look for these furin cleavage sites in nature and then we were going to send them to Ralph and Ralph was going to mess around with them at UNC. And, yeah. well, and then they're like, well, did Ralph do that? He's like, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. You know, and what this does is. <laughs> we do a little better than that, maybe. Well, ever since we started talking about the lab leak theory, this was like in early March of 2020, uh, when that started to really kind of crop up, or late March in 2020, um, the Chinese actually were starting to point the finger back at the United States and said, don't blame, uh, you know, look at your lab right. as well in North Carolina. Don't look at just us. If you're, gonna, if you're going to implicate us, and we can implicate you, so everybody should be investigated on this. Right. Because there's a lot of potential sources where this could have come from. So now it sounds like maybe we do need to be looking at everything. Right. And so both sides were like, you know what? Never mind. Right. And that's what they're doing. <laughs> Let's not look at Wuhan. Let's not look at North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Let's find the bat. Oh, we couldn't find the bat? Never mind. Right. Don't worry about it. I, I don't think anyone who is remotely, even like 1% curious about gain of function and lab leak would be put at ease by that interview. No. <laughs> that, was, that was not setting anyone at ease. That was, that was alarming, in that, fact. There's, and there's a ton of great stuff in it because they, they, they know this 
issue back and uh, yeah. back and front and back. And so it was it was nice to see them kind of go back and forth. They didn't let him get away with anything. Yeah. No. Yeah. Good. Good yeah. job to your reporters. Yeah. Really. really. Good job. Yeah. But now we have more to investigate. <laughs> more to be. Yes, we do. More to be yeah. very very afraid of. Who we got next? Who's doing a radar now? I, I think it's me. I think I'm. All right. Next. Yeah. Looking forward. Very interesting um, beyond the circular reasoning used there, uh, arbitrary redefinition seemingly on what a Fuhrer and Cleavage site is. But then it's not even quite that because he goes on to sort of dismiss it and then uh, uh, say, no, 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 no. It, it took place, but it didn't take place based on the DARPA grants. But look, there were researchers that had done it before with SARS-CoV-1. So we had a press. I see. I think he was trying to imply there's a precedent set for why we would include it in the DARPA grant. And I did point this out when I went over the DARPA grant. Um, oh, well, this was many episodes ago that Dar- DARPA didn't refuse. They refused the funding because of the amount, but they liked, I remember it saying like, we, we, we support the elements of what you're trying to research. That was part of the, that was essentially I'm sum- summarizing, but they, it says within the document itself, that they support, they, they are, they like what is presented in the grant as far as research is concerned. They were just concerned about the funding. So it shows that DARPA is implicated here. Ralph Barrick with the noceum techniques or hiding viruses or hiding genetic secrets, uh, signature of viruses as well. I mean, that's, I've said this before, the imp- both America um, and China certainly is into, uh, connected as well as France with BioMeru and uh, Sanofi, um, you know, setting up the, uh, the, the laboratory, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So there's all these elements here, but I think they're the most important thing is to note that on one level, he's denying that that's what, even though it's in their grant, that that's what they actually did, right? As far as the fear and cleavage site. But then he goes in to say like, the only way you can come to know how you can find the pathway by which a virus be- can become virulent or jump species to zoonotic origin is by doing gain of function particularly with the gain of uh, the fair and cleavage site. So in other words, they have to, in the process they use is recombination. That's where they use the chimeric viruses and they, you know, used humanized mice and they sh- shoot it in the mice and they allow it to go through. Uh, Why did they have to humanize Natural mice? processes. Uh, Cause they needed the ACE2 receptor. So um, nature couldn't do it on its own. So they had nature. To couldn't nature. Do that that seems to be it. a theory behind their Malthusian racist plan. You know, you gotta love got how they on. you gotta love how they swing that around too. It's like in order to understand nature, we had to do something artificial that's going to give the pathway that nature probably wouldn't find in the first place through uh, what's the natural selection. So they allow for all these various genetic strains of these viruses to re- recombine with a uh, humanized mice with the ACE2 receptors in order to see the pathway by which that. It's almost like when like, they arm the terrorists. Yeah, you, yeah, that's basically yeah, it's a great analogy. Yeah, gain of function yeah. is. Uh, how ironic. So on one level, he denies it. Then he goes to say, no, 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 this is uh, this is the way we do it. And that's why it should be done. And notice the first thing he says. Fascinating hypothesis, Mr. Dazak. Is there any evidence that gain of function has ever prevented any of these things as you claim? Because that's always your justification. It's the opposite. And you, it's the opposite. Can we introduce that into the record? <laughs> and there's a couple other things. Uh, you know, uh, Mr. Dazak, uh, did DARPA's uh, preempt project ask you for that proposal that you submitted, right? DARPA was looking to do the thing that you submitted the proposal to do. And there was some quibbling about who and how it could be done and this sort of thing, who's paying for it, NIH or NIAID. What was it called? Diffuse? Was that Diffuse? Yeah, DARPA's proposal Proposal was called Diffuse. Diffuse Okay. In the DARPA, I'm sorry. So EcoHealth EcoHealth proposal was Diffuse and then- DARPA is preempt. So DARPA ran preempt 
And then under that project, Dar uh, EcoHealth DASX Group put in their proposal, 2017. By that time, they already had it on the shelf. It looks like from all the research papers from 2013 to 2015. And that's why they were so confident that they could do an aerosolized vaccine for bats. That's right. That, what you know, that's what the proposal was. Now yeah. they're saying Omicron's like an aerosolized vaccine. And I say, if you go to PubMed and type in mRNA aerosol, you'll see they've been working to make an aerosol vaccine for a long time. And then you trace that back and it goes back to DARPA. So it's not Russia, Russia, Russia. It's like DARPA, DARPA, DARPA. Well, that's because the vaccine itself. DARPA, is DARPA, like DARPA a, Muhammad Jihad. Yeah. <laughs> Durga, Durga, Muhammad Jihad. You can do it. You can do it. Durga, Durga. Team America. Muhammad Jihad. He did it. And then he goes inside the little canteen. That was so great. That's Matt awesome. Trey Park, Matt, Matt Stone, Trey Parker. <clears throat> the uh what's what's disturbing, there's so many levels that are disturbing though. But when you look at the actual uh so before we used to use attenuated sort of virus vector technology. So it'd be like a partially it would be a, a portion Grown of the virus that would become yeah, we grow it on a protein structure. Uh, of some sort chicken embryos are one um but we use other different types of protein structures in order to grow it uh the milken institute fauci conversation with rick bright from barda they lamented hey we can't do this the old 1947 way we need to do the mrna way and if only we had a triggering event for this new pearl harbor wait that was the pnec document same thing though do you see what you i'm saying 100 yeah, i'm exactly what you read enough of this stuff you're like they're not reinventing the wheel because no, they're not getting enough the they're not getting enough resistance all right and even though their wheels like square, they're not getting enough resistance to chip off the corners. That's right. That was a Mason pun. Anyway. Well, the, the, the trick, the, the clever thing they've done is it's just got us to be able to not recognize what a square wheel is. Wink, wink. You know what I'm saying? They dumbed us down. In other words, that's they're always the trying to square the circle, square the circle, but that's uh, the ancient geometry's problem that few will probably understand. That's that, that secret society. It's a Pythagorean secret yeah. society. Pythagorean. Yeah. Yeah mystics Same all right as. so do we have a jimmy door clip where he criticizes now ryan <laughs> ryan's handling of some of these things because i wanted to also just put it there because i thought it was funny and jimmy's a comedian and that's what makes him a comedian because we think his stuff's funny occasionally not every time don't always agree with him There's a lot of things i disagree with jimmy door about but for a not journalist really he does a lot of journalism so i was wondering if we had that clip where he did a little journalism on the influences of ryan Grimm. what's the title because Grimm is not in the title. No, he would have been critiquing a story that they covered, though, which was the reason for him kind of going on the rant. So and I saw the like, original rant a couple of weeks ago where he's like, Pierre Omidyar, Jeff Bezos, and somebody else, three billionaires are paying Ryan Grimm's paycheck between the Intercept and Washington Post. and Or, yeah, maybe yeah, Washington the title's Post. Not, that's, I'm, I'm looking for signatures. Oh, and it's not necessary, but I thought if we had it, it's a good, it was, yeah, it was in the we past could go week. to another clip and try to find it maybe. And uh, I mean, it's not a good the timeline, but, um, I think it's important real quick though. I just wanted to point out like the purpose of the MRNA though, is on the, the virus is being produced by your own sort of. They turn your faculty. body into the vaccine your, factory. You, you got it. That's the that's the key. They decentralize yeah. vaccine production by putting it in your body and making you into a BSL four lab in a non-consented experiment. Because it's overwhelming preponderance of evidence now points to a lab origin it means a lot, the initial uh, coronavirus was manipulated. And if that's well, the prior case, to coronavirus, that, the code was universal flu vaccine. Universal flu vaccine, yeah, exactly. Which is another coronavirus. Flu vaccines or flu viruses are coronaviruses. So. Allegedly, yeah. 
Allegedly, yeah. <laughs> um, Ryan Graham. All right, so we don't have to find that. We can find it later. We got to move toward, uh, uh, you know, stuff that leads to intermission. Yeah, I, the, the title is not obvious because I'm searching through his stuff. All right, the other clip was uh, Pfizer CEO was skeptical of the mRNA vaccines. Now he says something. Now it gets out there. It wasn't out there like when it needed to be there for informed consent. That maybe it wasn't like a certain like hole in one like these people were telling you. What's well, one hole in you? Or no, now it's up to four, I guess. Four holes in one. Yeah. Oh, they're getting yeah, they're getting ready to roll out the fourth booster. And uh, there's some. They talk said it might be necessary. Sort of, yeah, they, they but if you remember, you if you remember, over a year ago, February of 2021, Grand Theft World episode. That's when I showed you the Pfizer PowerPoint presentation from their investor meeting. And they said they were going from one dose to like six doses over the near future. They could get recurring revenue from this thing that they had going oh, yeah, to continue that was... making the billions. And then they did it a couple months later. Well, they want to they like, want to transport this type of technology into just the, the everyday flu vaccine. So, I mean, it's yeah, I mean, not only for this type of virus, but then for the for all probably or as many as they can of the vaccines that already exist. Because that's what the Milken Institute was alluding to. Like they want a new, uh, they want a new drug, perennial sort of vaccine. That's what they want. Something they have to give because it's a recurring revenue, passive revenue through a product that they you how you're forced to then consume. That's why you work. That's why there's sort of this corptocracy, this sort of fascist model between the government sort of mandating it, uh, while at the same time the the uh, Pfizer has this sort of revolving door with the regulatory committees in regards to the FDA and CDC. They're supposed to oversee this sort of stuff. So it's just, it's corruption of the highest level. And it's against the human body and mind completely. All right, LD, did you find that clip? Yep. Yeah, yeah, we've got it. And somebody, uh, somebody pointed out, I think we've got the one about Ryan Grimm too. Oh, so afterwards. Oh, good. Want to yeah. play him back to back? I'll sure. play Ryan first and just since we should. Yeah, yeah. Play the yeah. Ryan Grimm one first. <laughs> All since right. we built it up since we built yeah. it yeah and it's also we just got done so with if you think Grimm. sorry god yeah here we go i think america uh wants to uh, de-escalate the war in ukraine uh uh you're wrong dan frumkin says astonishing how little interest major u.s news organizations seems to have in the peace talks which by some reports are making real progress instead they push for escalation so here's the news Oh, friend of the show, Ryan Grimm. Friend of the show. By the way, he's been sitting in the in the White House press room. Have you seen that? He's asking questions. Hey, he's been doing he's been doing a job. So is he what? upset that that laptop turned out to be real? I, I don't know if he's accepted that. I don't know the intercept. Uh, I don't know if they've accepted that Hunter's laptop is real. So he tweeted out this video, and watch how warmongery the press is. Watch this. Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials have made so clear that what they believe they need the most is more warplanes and fighter jets. So why is the U.S. assessing something different? So her question was, hey, Ukraine says they want more warplanes and stuff. Why are you giving it to them? Right. That's what her question was. Next question. Look how she asked that, too. Why does the U.S. believe they know Why does, better what Ukraine needs than what Ukrainian officials are saying they need them? 
Why does the U.S. think they know better than what the Ukrainian officials are saying they need the most? Why are you giving them missiles and planes and th- why are you ramping up the war? Why, that's, Jen, that's this reporter. That's what this reporter is saying. What? If I was Jen Psaki, I'd be like, excuse me, are we their puppet state now? Yeah, right? <laughs> the puppet doesn't work the hand, yeah, we, we, They're our puppet. We'll tell them what they need. It sounds like, you know, we're pretty dug in on our position when it comes to the no-fly zone, when it comes to uh, the MiGs, uh, despite this growing call, bipartisan call in Congress to shift a little bit. So, to put it bluntly, is Zelensky wasting his time tomorrow asking for these things? President Zelensky is going to be speaking to Congress tomorrow. He's been pushing for fighter jets, a no-fly zone. You have to hear some of those same requests tomorrow as well. Has the administration shift, thinking shifted on that at all? calling for a no-fly zone. They're a NATO member. They share a border with Russia. Where are they from? Do you hear these people? Yeah, like what paper is this? I, I don't know. It's, it's, they they use they don't wear a name tag, so I, I can't tell you. But I'm gonna I'm gonna guess it's a establishment corporate news. Because I'm it's a Washington I, Post, it's a New York Times, it's CNN, it's MSNBC, well, it's it's the it's the Boston Globe. It's one of the it's the Intercept. It's one of those. Do you think that they? Because the way they're asking that is so insane that it's like astroturf sounding, obviously, and so. I'm like, is this like where they're like young and dumb? Like, don't tell me not to have a crush on Zelensky. And it, or is it like they work at a thing like go there and bring up a war? Oh, because that's so blatant. I, I don't know how you could do it like unironically. The, this you know, is like, the, 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 do you understand that these people who are asking these questions didn't get plucked out of society at random? You you understand that that you know that they've been groomed to do this job since they were in kindergarten, right? You know that that's the if they thought differently like you and me, they wouldn't have that fucking job. You know yeah, that, but right, even, Kurt? Even figuring that in, uh, no, like, no, not even figuring that in. That's how they talk- are. This is why you wow. get the fucking cover. This is why people are pro Ukraine war, Kurt. You think it's a fucking fluke that the American people are for every war, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, and now Ukraine? Do you think it's a fluke that every reporter is fucked up and reports the war poorly? Do you think that's a fluke? Yeah, but they're talking to Jen Psaki. That's Jen Psaki they're talking to that way. (laughs) That's their hero, Jen Psaki. Why would you? There's more. How do we view their calls for a no-fly zone? And on President Zelensky's address tomorrow, of course, he is expected to ask for more assistance. As my colleague noted, a lot of the U.S. positions on that haven't changed, as you just said, when it comes to the no-fly zone. But on the aircraft specifically, the Pentagon said last week that Secretary Austin said they do not support the transfer of additional fighter aircraft at this time. Is that still the United States' position? Would a, a strike in Poland on supplies or, or anything really uh, automatically be met with a military, a forceful response, or simply a conversation amongst allies? About These people, they, they, when, when are you going to start killing people? Well, I see uh, something uh, women beat men at, huh? Does a drone into Poland count? Former ambassador to Ukraine, Maria Ivanovich, has been quite outspoken recently and she said we need to mitigate risk but it's also true that not taking greater action comes with a risk as well because Putin is a bully and he only understands strength. Is the president showing enough strength against Putin? This is real. They, these are all women by the way doing this. These aren't men. These are know, women. Like, And they look like I don't know the thing is uh, the like the one chick is so indignantly saying it the one with the mask on that I'm like, it's like, 
it's stunning even for assuming the media always wants war like the like they sound like they're pers- like they're as upset about this as they are about you know a trucker or something like what well if Zelensky said he needs it are, are you going to change or like uh, what about one little bombing in Poland is that even what, what are we risking by not doing it what, what, why why won't you guys start doing more war that's every question is why are you are you going to start doing more war that's I'm every question. Red, I put on my red war mask. Yeah, she's got a red war mask on. There's more to this. Putin were to use chemical weapons, would it change? Oh, what if Putin used chemical weapons? Would it change the president's thinking when it comes to these big? What is? What can we do to get us to ramp up this war with Russia? What can we do? Look at her eyes are big. What if he uses chemical weapons? As she wears her bullshit mask. Well, it's going to take this and the ladies of the view. Taking the no-fly zone off the table, but at least on the you prepared, can you give us any more details about what that threat means of severe consequences? The president obviously made the same threat last week. Is that purely economic consequences, or would there potentially be a military threat? So aside from the request for weapons, President Zelensky has also requested that the U.S. be more involved in negotiations toward a peaceful resolution to the war. So that's the D.C. Bureau Chief Ryan Grimm, who, you know, lies all the time about grassroots organizations. He lied about force to vote. He lied in protection of AOC and the squad. He lied about this show. He got ratioed by Justin Jackson and um, he cuts his own hair. Yeah, I was, I was, don't forget the most. <laughs> so, but Ryan Grimm cut my own hair, <laughs> right? Uh, and he's done lots of other horrible things, and he smeared the truckers, uh, uh, unbelievably, ridiculously. His own co-host had to tell him to shut up. So, and of course, he's the DC bureau chief of the Intercept because he's a big tool, and he takes a check not from one billionaire, not from two billionaires. He takes a check from three billionaires, and his head fake is to make you think he's a progressive, he's a real lefty. But of course, he works for a place that censored Hunter Biden's laptop, fired Glenn Greenwald, uh, won't tell the truth about Syria, uh, and or and every time there's a grassroots organization like for Medicare for All, they shit on it. That's what he does. He lied about Brianna Joy Gray. He lied about force to vote. So just so you know, that's who uh, the D.C. Bureau Chief. So how do you get in there? You get in there because you've been sucking corporate cock your whole career. And that's what Ryan Grimm does. Sucks corporate cock his whole career because he's a corporate cock sucker. And but so that's why he gets to sit in this room. And now he gets to ask a question. The U- Would the U.S. be more involved in negotiations toward him? So he's going to ask, I want peace. As opposed to all those stupid women who want war. He's going to show you what a good guy he is. What is the U.S. doing to push those negotiations forward? Well, one of the steps we've taken, a significant one, is to be the largest provider of military and humanitarian and economic assistance in the world. To So Ryan Grimm asked her, what are you doing to push towards the peace talks forward? And she says, well, we're fucking giving them guns and bombs and shit. no what are you doing to push the peace talks but his question is what do you do to push the peace talks forward there's his question 
to push those negotiations forward. What is the U.S. doing to push well, peace negotiations forward? One of the steps forward? we've taken, a significant one, so, is to be the largest right. provider of military, <laughs> military, humanitarian, and economic assistance in the world. Except our own country. To put country. them in a greater position of strength as they go into these negotiations. We also engage and talk to the Ukrainians on a daily basis. And the president and this national security team has has uh, rallied the world in being unified in their opposition to the actions of President Putin. So those are the steps we're taking. We also engage uh, oftentimes before and after any conversations that any of these uh, global leaders are having with both Russians and Ukrainians and encourage them to make sure they're engaging with Ukrainians directly. Would Zelensky be empowered by the United States to reach an agreement with Russia and have U.S. sanctions released as a result? Well, he's the leader of Ukraine, so he's empowered to have a negotiation with Russia, and we're here to support those efforts. Again, I'm not going to get ahead of a negotiation, but we are here to support those efforts. We discuss and have conversations with him, with his team on a daily basis. So, uh, there you go. Ryan Grimm is the sweetheart in that story. Where he... That is a weird question of, of will the U.S. empower him? Because the question she answered kind of what I was thinking was like, why, like he's the president, he can. Why would he need us to empower him? No, it, she's he's asking, can Zelensky actually negotiate a peace deal that involves getting rid of these sanctions? And she basically said no. Oh, okay. That's what that's what I heard her say. Basically, she she basically said no. Uh, Will he send some MIGs? Uh, <laughs> uh, so here's another one. Uh, I want to go back to the MIGs. This is a reporter asking her. I want to go. So the the reporter wants the MIGs. They want a no-fly zone in Ukraine. The reporters want World War Three, And here we go. And I want to go back to the MIGs quickly and just be crystal clear about what you're saying. Because when I asked the president about this earlier, he said he's not going to comment. He didn't say that it's not an option. So well, we've, we've well, spoken to it yeah. approximately 167 times. Well, so maybe he, but, yeah. Well, here's 168. Go ahead. Go ahead. There's a growing number. So she's asking her about the MIGs. Those are the fighter jets that they want to give to Ukraine. The reporters want uh, to go to Ukraine. And she's saying, well, we've talked about this 167 times. And the reporter goes, well, here's 168. Yeah, we're not stopping our pro-war propaganda is what she's, the reporter is saying. So there you go. There, there is a, That was quite a piece of video. Those are all women, by the way, being unbelievably over-the-top pro-war and uh, instigating uh, for war from their own government. That's what it. they're doing. That's what... All right, so uh, that last clip embodies kind of where we're going with the next clip because that last clip, like you came for the Ryan Grimm story and you stay for the Hunter Biden laptop story. So uh, I got this book here and uh, it's hot off the press, something like this, Laptop from Hell. Uh, this I don't know who this guy is. Is he supposed to be famous? I think he's an artist, formerly known as or something like that. Uh, let's see, Hunter Biden, Big Tech, and the dirty secrets the president tried to hide. So we've seen clips about this book probably a year ago when she was writing it. We saw a couple of interviews and, you know, it wasn't a real story because uh, they, them, those in the media told us the laptop thing wasn't real and that the New York Post didn't know what it was talking about. And uh, all these other people who tried to tell us before the election about this 
that got censored, including Glenn Greenwald, who had to leave his own news agency that he helped to create the intercept in order to go off and be able to talk about these things. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in like what he thinks about these stories, but I, I just chose a part from the end here. Cause I thought, um, uh, it was apropos to the current events we're going through. Let me see if this is, I got to go to the first page to set up, set up here. This is from about page 199 on Wednesday, October 14th. This is right before the election, right? The election was like November 2nd, something like that. October 14th. About three weeks before. The New York Post published the first of a series of exclusive stories from the laptop. A 2015 email from Burisma executive uh, Vadim Pozharsky thanking Hunter for introducing him to the vice president. Uh, I guess that's the former vice president, now president, Joe Biden, his dad. Right. The email put to lie, uh, put the lie to Joe's claim that he did not know about his son's overseas business dealings. So, quote, Biden secret emails revealed Ukrainian exec thanked Hunter Biden for, quote, opportunity to meet and, quote, Veep dad read the message on the front page. The online exclusive was posted at 5 a.m. and was trending all morning on social media platforms. Six hours later, dun, 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 Facebook pulled the plug. Communications manager Andy Stone, a former Democratic Party operative, issued a statement via Twitter at 11.10 a.m. While I will intentionally not link to the New York Post, I want to be clear, or I want to be clear, and that's his uh, error, not a typo, uh, that this story is eligible to be fact-checked by Facebook's third-party fact-checking partners. In the meantime, we are reducing its distribution on our platform. How very democratic of them to do the thinking for us. Twitter followed suit, preventing the story from being shared on its platform on the pretext that it violated the rules against, quote, distribution of hacked material. Well, that's interesting. Was it encrypted or something? The Post's Twitter account remained locked for two weeks until election eve. Oh, they let it open right when it was useless. Okay. This was unprecedented, coordinated censorship by two of the largest multinational companies in the world. So that's the first part that was going on. Now let's go to page 200, next page. But the social media suppression had done its job. It had a chilling effect on the other media outlets, which dismissed the evidence as, quote, debunked or, quote, hacked or just ignored it. At his morning news meeting on the day uh, the Post broke his story, CNN boss Jeff Zucker, he's been in the news recently, right? Project Veritas? Recently, Project Veritas, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he, he had to leave because of a sexual yes. thing, yeah. right? Yeah, and, yeah. and political director David uh, Chalian instructed staff to disparage it according to a leaked recording released by undercover news outlet Project Veritas. That's interesting too, right? So there's two stories of project Veritas and Jeff Zucker with about like a year or so, maybe two years in between Uh, quote, obviously we're not going with the New York post story right now. And Hunter Biden said, uh, Chalian quote, we'll just continue to report out this very stuff that the president was impeached over that Senate committees looked at it and found nothing wrong in Joe Biden's interactions with Ukrainians End quote. Interesting. Not like anything's going on with Joe Biden in Ukraine today, right? 
at <laughs> a morning uh, at a news meeting two days later, Zucker dismissed the story as the Breitbart, uh, New York Post, Fox News rabbit hole of Hunter Biden. End quote. <laughs> they put New York Post, the Breitbart, and Fox. I think that's you might as well just call it the conspiracy theory, Zucker. It must be a trademark phrase he gets billed for. The killer blow came five days after the Post's expose, expose from 50 former senior intelligence officials led by former Obama administration CIA director yeah. and good friend of Saudi, John Brennan, and national uh, director of national intelligence, James Clapper, who has never lied under oath on camera to the American public about spying on America. So I trust all these people, right? Using the institutional weight of their powerful former roles. They signed an open letter delivered to Politico by former Brennan aide Nick Shapiro, which claimed the material on the hard drive, quote, has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation, end quote. Not one of them had even seen it. And here's the next quote. We want to emphasize that we do not know if the emails provided to the New York Post by President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, are genuine or not, and that we do not have evidence of Russian involvement, end quote. Uh, the October 19th letter reads, but, quote, there are a number of factors that make us suspicious of Russian involvement, end quote. This is as good as their PP gate. It's called Russian a fallacy of adding MI6 Rantium. dossier. Yeah, that's a fallacy of adding Rantium. It's possible, therefore, it must be true. It's like, what? But you have no so they evidence call it, that Russia is involved whatsoever. She refers to leave. it as the, the laptop op, and it cuts down here to like, uh, in any case, the Brennan letter was a lifeline to Joe Biden, coming as it did three days before his final debate on October 22nd against a fired-up Donald Trump. And then, quote, if this stuff is true about Russia, Ukraine, and China, then he's a corrupt politician, end quote, growled Trump. Quote, Joe, they're calling you a corrupt politician. Take a look at the laptop from hell, end quote. So there's <laughs> yeah, more. I do. There's, I do miss that sort of tenacity. There's more evidence of a convenient political cover-up by the nation's intelligence agencies. Wait, than Rich, do you, mean, do you mean this? From Russia. The secret history of the shadow campaign that saved the 2020 election the time from the Brian Olbrich from it's Time from that Tim Olbrich. A magazine. Tim A. The Tim A. Tim A. Tim A. Magazine. Tim A. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> I had to. I had you set it up for. But uh, yeah, weird thing happened right after the November 3rd election. Nothing. The right. nation was so, raised for chaos. I'm sure that yeah. Cabal conspiracy that they admitted to in that article has nothing to do with the suppression of this now recognized piece of evidence in the infrastructure of american history which shoulda woulda coulda been released as it was by the new york post and let people examine it and see what's going on make an informed decision about their selected leader or at least feel like they had a, a you know open maybe full disclosure kind of but when they take that away, because they're like, if the public most popular knows about president this, in history, Rich, how do you not know? Like, there's no way he votes. could be the most popular president elected in history if that laptop story was recognized <laughs> as anything other than what they characterized. With mail-in right? balloting, you can make anyone the most popular well, of course, president of in history. Of course. Anytime you don't have to be a citizen anymore and to vote in the country's election, it's always usually at the end of the cycle of that <laughs> empire. Yeah, that's right. When it becomes this conspicuous. That there's this much voter. I'm not saying it would have changed. I got to do the whole. Actually, we're not on. Are we on YouTube? I guess we're on YouTube. 
So I do have to, yeah, I'm not saying, you know, would have changed the election or anything, (laughs) but you know, it could have, it could have changed the, I don't want to piss off YouTube. That's what the algorithms thinking we're saying. That's what see, Mm -hmm. but piss off YouTube, but not the viewers. I like the viewers. It's just like the infrastructure in between. Not so great. Maybe Rockfin it. Try it. You can get the Rockfin Mm -hmm. app. I think we're on uh scroll around all day, learn all sorts of cool things. That's true. But let's go to the hunter. Um, um what did what did uh how did guy well do, let's, we have portrait. some clips of anyone oh, else yeah. coming to coming up to speed about the laptop from hell? Now that well, you guys I have understand a whole section title on the laptop from? from hell. Well, I don't not, not about the coming up to that though, but I have about the revelations what happened this week. Yeah, I'd but, like to get into that because it's not that I'm into like you know, we were right and people have to eat crow. I would just like it to be recognized on the record that that happened. It's a real piece of evidence. It was really suppressed and it was suppressed from on high. And yeah. if you come at me and say, how do they do it? How do they keep it all secret? I don't know. How do you get 50 intelligence directors to like hop to it and be like, same way you get Dazak to write fake letters for the Lancet. How's no one getting in trouble for this? Cause it's approved because there's somebody wanting them to do it. And they're above the money system. They're like the people who own the bank that makes the money out of nothing. That's the like, that's the level of power you're talking about in these machinations, and you're never gonna like you're never gonna solve it from the CNN like dumbed down mentality, cartoonish reality of how things work. That's the point. Yeah, yeah. They 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 have the prescripted leading or leading questions essentially the complex questions that uh, I think Jimmy Dore did a good job of exposing there. I'm now 168. I'm going to ask, you know, about the MIGs. It's the same thing. I mean, whether we're talking about the Mujahideen or Al Qaeda in regards to the nine 11 narrative, the narrative always seems to be prescripted preemptive. And then they, they roll it out the second an event happens and they, they control the sort of the, and the, that's how they control the environment and call it a post-truth world. It's not that there isn't truth, but they can they they gaslight people and uh, install through like a form of like mind control or dark magic what truth is by spelling it out by controlling words and that creates the reality you then project in your mind and that's how they do it so they continue to do this I mean it's not so much that we're necessarily saying like Trump was the we're not playing in the dialectics yeah we Trump. didn't vote for Trump yeah right no. that's the point it's just the, the point of like how easy it is for them unfortunately at this stage in the game to manipulate people. I mean, this just goes along with a long line of history of if you control the press and you control key institutions beyond the press, like religious institutions, so forth and so on, you control the mind of man. And so they did so the same way I just, you know, showed the article from the Times uh, or the time from Time magazine talking about their role and having an uh, admitted role in a essentially a a full on uh, censorship of the results of the 2020 election, how they played a key role in suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop to what the book you just referenced from the first page of the last section of that book that where they talk about that. So, I mean, it's, it's written from the perspective of the people who handled Biden in the first place. Yeah, you and got it. Like, That's right. They're like, we got command and control, y'all. What are you going to do about it? So of you the know? Hunter Biden story, we have four different versions of this this week. It's in the technology, economics and politics section. LD, it's towards the end. Yeah, um, yeah, which one do you want to do? Okay. Uh, and then just LD, scrub over any redundant clips. So like, you know how sometimes they like play the same clip? Like we can not have to see that, but I want to see the analysis and the, like get as much we, information on the situation. You what got you a think, couple of different flavors. So you have right, Crystal and Segar, Biden, DOJ, Hunter laptop, real investigation underway. Then we have Jimmy Dore, which we just showed, Hunter Biden laptop confirmed real. 
Then we have Tim Pool, New York Times admits Hunter Biden laptop is real. And then another one, Owen Troyer, talking about Hunter Biden's laptop is real or a taking time bomb. So whichever flavor of media, the same Owen Troyer who put Grand Theft World up on TV last week on InfoWars. Do we have that Scotty clip real quick? Yeah, yeah, we have that. Let's let's jam that in real quick. Just hey, right. you know, it's it's good PR and uh good job, Scotty, getting this. I think it's like the second or third time, but this is the first time he's got the website on screen on InfoWars. I think so. he's been on the town hall a couple of times. So shout out to Scott Scotty for doing that. Badass. Yeah, here. Scott, Let's Scott, go. Yeah, we'll stay in Texas here where Scott has dialed in. Scott, you're on the Alex Jones show. Go ahead. Hey, always good to talk to you on. How's Howdy. everything going? Howdy. It's all right. Good deal. Um, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's no surprise, of course, that, of course, we just give money out. That's what we do. It's supposed to be an independent country that doesn't get involved in this stuff. And we just dish money out so we can support proxy wars. So, honestly, no surprise. Yeah, it's like, where's the money coming from? By the way, just yesterday, Biden was bragging that he has decreased the deficit and it's going to be a trillion-dollar decrease in the deficit. Really? Really? You're decreasing the deficit as you're sending billions to Ukraine. Anybody that believes that is a idiot. As the clock, the, the debt trillionaire clock just constantly goes up. Yeah. It decreased it my butt. Anything else, Scott? Uh, you know, I just wanted to give in my uh, three months. I usually call in just to spread the word about Grand Theft World. Uh, it's just doing amazing stuff. Uh, they do air your stuff quite a bit and they're doing an amazing job over there so we got to get the word out about how many podcasts and everything that's going on uh there's a lot of amazing shows going on so i just wanted to get my message out about grandtheftworld.com grandtheftworld.com all right they share our stuff we appreciate that yeah there are all kinds of podcasts and and talk radio shows and everything it's all popping up in in a populist or, or right-wing fashion, there, there's no leftist taking off in the media world, folks. There, there's no leftist podcast that people even listen to. There's no, there's no liberal commentator or intellectual or ideologue that has any following because they're not intellectual and their ideas are failed. He goes on a little bit, but uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, we're not right-wing, but that's good because he's just talking to me like he's just live on the air. He didn't have a chance to like, look, listen, that's all good. We're not on his radar. Good. That's not a bad thing. There's a lot of interested, like there's a lot of people interested in Schroyer right now. So being off the radar on his radar is good. It was nice. Thank you, Scott, for getting that on the on the screen. Yeah, that's awesome, Scott. We just that's... don't. Yeah, he's a lightning rod right now, Owen Schroyer. Jeez. Yeah, they're making, yeah, he really. They're trying it. to make him out like he's a bad guy. I like Owen a lot. We showed a lot of. I mean, I don't know about how. I think Owen was a, a sportscaster. He was. He, yeah. he listened to like Infowars, and then he saw the opportunity to transition from like talking about sports to his passion and research. And he's very well uh, researched on many of the topics that he talks about. And uh, he's like, sometimes my wife's like, he acts too much like Alex. In he other does. words, some of the that. things of Alex's that he's emulating don't really carry well with a lot of the audience, but like it's, you know, so there's, he's still finding his voice, you know, but I think he's done a good job persisting in that environment. It's not easy to work there. A lot of good people have gone through there and you kind of get churned sometimes by those situations and he's hung out and he holds down his show and uh, does it consistently. And uh, you know, David Knight was there for a long time. Now he's solo at some point. Owen probably goes solo and uh, you know, 
but yeah, that's th- a good that was tandem. Good. They have a good, they have, you know, um, Harrison Smith. Yeah. He's a comedian on. actually. Really? I saw that skit. They it's ran like a, a try skit humor sort of where thing. he does like a JP skit where he's talking and like uh, at a desk and then there's a person like selling them the COVID story. And oh, he, yeah. It was a really it's, good it's skit. himself. Yeah, I did. Yeah, if that. we could find that. And then I was like, that's pretty good for like a journalist, you know, but then you find yeah. out he's a stand up comedian first. Did not. And then, that. then he mixed it. So I was like, good. That's a good mix because you have to make people laugh about these things. Uh, yeah, the only Oscar cr- Wilde says, if you're going to tell people about the truth, you better make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you. I think that that's was something right. like that. Yeah, which one of these so uh, laptop sh- videos do we want to play? Real quick, the the Fed and the U.S. government crave over six trillion dollars in fiat money in 2020 alone. But don't worry, he's he's lowering the national deficit after raising it tremendously. He's lowering it a little. What a incredible dialectic! Uh, uh, I got the answer to the problem. For like when one. it's time to do something about it, you you power of Congress creates a new currency. With that currency. What's the debt? 30 trillion. Here's a check for 50 trillion. Have at it. Pay off everything. Now we discontinue that currency and we make a new currency with no debt on the books, with all of our debts being paid through the system. And we move on merrily into the future with freedom and not central bank cryptocurrencies. But no one's got to that point yet. Because I'm like, hey, I got a magic checkbook. Who do we write this out to? Who do we owe this $30 trillion to? Who owns the Federal Reserve is my question. Yeah, the whole right? thing's controlled. They won't the tell you to controlled. whom we owe the money to. So I don't know. You know, It's a tough situation. It's a tough situation. Uh, this has actually happened in the past. I mean, that was with uh, what last week's trust game. Yes. Episode where, four, where they talked about 1774. One, I was going to the 1850s because of the bank crashes and the bankers decided that the Americans didn't have the right attitude about their debts to overseas. And we needed a new education system to put us into the same mentality as the Europeans and the, and the British to where they, it's a collectivist thing. You owe the money to pay for the state. Whereas Americans are like, I didn't sign up. I didn't approve my state to do that. That's not my money. It's not my debt. And it really caused the havoc over there with the bankers. So I think that's the trust game episode, probably four. Trust game, but it was actually the other one we played about the British. It points toward company. the need for Prussian education in this country from a banker's top-down perspective, and I think it might even be like a, a better but, ex- explanation of what some of Gatto's work points toward. Yeah, as I agree, far as yeah. who, when, why, and how this type of thing got put on America, it's a harness system. The bankers would definitely say that that place needs a harness. They're not paying their debts across the sea. It's messing with our system. And then the American Civil War happens, and they pull all their money out. They basically did to the union what they just did to russia as far as cut them off from all their money lines of credit now let's see how you do lincoln and lincoln had to print his yeah. own money he had to print his own Green money banks. and then you're absolved naturally of all the artificial debt that's associated with you so here's what i was talking about it actually came from the brit what was the it was the brit talking about it was an individual talking about the british east india company um that was the other one we played last week and he yeah, wrote a, a that's book the guy who wrote that big Set yeah, of books huge. Got, William Dalrymple. Yeah, that was really good. He talked about this event, the crisis of 1772, or the panic of 1772, as a peacetime financial crisis, which originated in London and then spread to other parts of Europe, Scotland, Dutch, so forth, so on. This is the four book set of that. And if you turn it around, it's got the four books. Let's see. Yeah, a little bit. Too it's much, a little bit like that. Like yeah, that. There, there. Yeah, yeah. Better. That's good. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I mean, it's uh, this was fascinating because understanding that- how. Let me check out that crisis because I think that's around the time of the Bengal famine, the first Bengal famine. Yeah, yeah, famine. yeah. The Great Bengal famine, seventeen seventy, which was exacerbated by the actions of the East India Company, but the massive shortfalls and expected Just ten million values. people dead, you know. And then they had the yeah. one that Churchill presided over in nineteen forty three. But the seventeen seventy one was East India yeah. Company. 
induced. But it's anyway, interesting how they build genocide. up all this sort of artificial. They 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 ran the whole thing completely on credit, and then once there's shortfalls associated because of the fallout of the famine situation, create a situation where people couldn't pay anymore, and that there weren't produ- or people consuming as much the whole thing. So they had to. I forget what he said. They had to sort of. Uh, oh, they had to go to the. Oh oh oh, they had to go to the Bank of England, I think, in order to bail them out. So in other words, like. That you can see elements. They, they say history rhymes or elements beats, whatever. like gold. Elements of like it's this idea of a fascist sort of you know the the big business working with big government in order to essentially to bail bigger. themselves out to get bigger exactly. And just for context, the national debt in two thousand eight. This is now I'm talking about America. At the onset of the credit crash was ten trillion. So in six in twenty twenty alone, we printed another six trillion. So it's like magic. And it took hundreds of years to reach the level of 10 trillion. It only took 14 years of the Fed money to create the debt. That includes, by the way, Trump. When people think that Trump was some sort of hero or anything, he printed more than he was on a pathway to print more than Obama. I shouldn't say he who's you know allowing the Federal Reserve to do its thing. Um they did Obama it on his Bush watch, combined. but it was going to happen anyway. Yeah, it was going to happen anyway. So that's exactly right. So now I mean, the big Biden's deal about this exacerbated even more. Go the ahead. big deal about the laptops, not the salacious photos and other crazy stuff that a president's kid. I mean, they're they're, they're president's kids. What are you gonna? Yeah. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? You know, it's the espionage and the other cartel criminality that they're using the offices of the American government to do these things, and it's not new. Biden's not. He didn't invent this stuff. Right. Obama didn't invent this stuff. It's been passed down as one of their presidential like pseudo privileges, you know, and it goes back a long time to FDR claiming those special executive right privileges, emergency wartime powers type thing that he did back in like 33. Very similar to the way Rome did it whenever there was a crisis. You you come up for a solution. Yeah, Yeah, there's a term for it. I can't remember, but we talked about on the town hall. No, it's a different. No, that's yeah. That's, that's what happens when you assume too much proscription power. That was that <laughs> other term. Yeah. Proscription. proscription. We had a long town hall. Not conscription. Night. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of words in the English language, 8 million of them apparently. So Magical. are we living up to our potential? Not. How many of these other words might be empowering and we should learn, you know, ideas and such while we can. All right. So let's go to this uh, laptop from hell. We want to focus on Burisma, Ukraine, these types of things and not get caught up in the drama of, you know, a former president's daughter's MasterCard being next to lines of Coke with Hunter Biden's crack pipe and prostitutes and underage people and all the other stuff that's on that hard drive. Don't get distracted by that. That's the noise. Look at the signal. Look at the emails that prove that everything they've ever accused Trump of doing, they were doing in the first place. They also setting up the Russia narrative. And Trump's not that far on. from them. He's part of that same infrastructure. He got bailed out by Rothschild and company. He paid back that debt with Wilbur Ross as his commerce secretary. He took money from all those pharmaceutical companies that put yes. him in the position to have to push light speed. He wanted yeah, to be Captain speed, Kirk. Warp speed, yeah. That's yeah, he wanted to yeah. be Captain Kirk. He's like, more power, yeah. Scotty. You know, he has no idea he how it. anything works. Like when people try to describe that he did good things, like he built his entire real estate empire on debt. And so like he built he his entire body on with Epstein in the eight 1980s with real estate in new york and yes yes he also built his body with with uh, um mcdonald's mcdonald's indeed and he also uh released a lot of bodily fluids and lots of prostitutes so according to Stormy the mi6 Daniels. christopher Steele dossier that is correct yeah 
but not according to reality. All right, so let's get to uh, uh, some of them. I don't know. Yeah, which one of these videos do you want to play? I got all four of them pulled up. Uh, Oh, which way? Yeah, there's uh, Crystal and Sager, Jimmy Dore, Tim Poole, Owen Shore. The long, so the, I would suggest either Crystal Sagar, Jimmy Dore, or Owen Shore. The uh, the Tim Pool one's good, but it's 34 minutes long. And before we break into that, because you were t- you're t- we were talking about this uh, Trump dynamic, there's a story about Trump. I don't know if it's true, but here's the story, and you guys can check it out for yourself while we watch these clips. Trump's at a you, there's already on the record Trump and Giuliani and Giuliani and drag, and they're doing that like uh mayor's meeting dinner right there's that that's a bad clip at least trump like plays himself and giuliani plays himself anyway that's a different thing but there was this other one um oh how would i want to unfold it um okay so he's sitting down at this table it's like a dinner party and there's famous people there and like he trump apparently is engaging in conversation and there's a there's a musical artist there uh named richard melville whom you might know as uh the guy named moby right because his mm-hmm. great-grandfather wrote moby dick right so moby the artist is there and apparently he thought it would be funny to whip out his dick and smack trump's face with it while he's sitting there so he kind of comes over and like smacks trump across the face with his dick now this is a story i think it's told by moby himself in an interview this is how it's out there in the public. Cause I didn't believe it. I was like, nah, oh shit. It looks like that happened. Now Trump didn't get up and do anything to this guy. He didn't have his legs broken. Like for a guy who's like supposed to be so dangerous and gangsterish to take that like that, or maybe he likes that. Or maybe he's into it. I don't know. That's a strange thing. You know, like where I come from, that'd probably be fighting words, uh, type of type of activity. I don't know. It seems like a disrespectful thing that in order to save face, you probably have to beat somebody down. I don't know. I, it was a unusual situation when I first heard about it. And I still think it's unusual now. So we'll, we'll suss that out. I'm like 99% sure, but I'm open to being wrong on these things. I hope I, mean, here's I, a quick, like, I would like to live in a world where that doesn't exist, but they here's also have from, Jimmy Savile and all this. Other stuff, this is so. from the daily beast where he says like, this is what happened. So I guess I was, dared to brush my drunken flaccid penis up against donald trump's suit jacket although in the spirit of alcoholic disclosure my caveat is this as i was very drunk and high at the time i'm still not 100 percent sure it actually happened mm-hmm. but even though this happened almost 20 years ago i'm still perpetually stunned by the fact that americans elected as president a dim-witted con man whose only claim to fame is that he once hosted a mediocre reality tv show That's all right it. so maybe trump is seated melville is standing there's parts of the jacket that could be near the face and it could have been misinterpreted because i didn't hear it from him you know and i'm not like following his literature and writings of his antics so he made some good music back in the day Mm -hmm. but other than that yeah um so anyway that's in 2001 so i'm just saying that trump's not that far from the biden world like you know they both play in that white house pretty much the same role Wow, this is very strange. Yeah, it happened in, I guess, yeah, 2001. He goes in, wow, this, what? Anyway, was it before or after Trump com- commented on the controlled demolition of the World Trade Centers <laughs> that year? I don't know. The whole question anyway. is, yeah, it's after September 11, 2001. The only way in which I knew how to process my grief was to stay drunk. 
Oh, maybe it's do as many drugs as possible and throw myself. So he just goes into his history. Maybe yeah, he had a rough artistic journey, character building experiences for sure. And uh, other so otherwise, he, I would have, you know, he wanted to go to a party for and his, his other works. But that was something I was like, I don't really dig that. Don't groove with that. But I just wanted to you know, we're going to take the piss out of the Biden family because of this laptop for like the next 15 minutes. I just wanted to show you like Trump's an acorn. It didn't fall too far from the oak tree either. Yeah, supposedly just went to some party. Lee and Dale. I was supposed to meet my friends, Lee and Dale. They went to some party that Trump was at and rubbed his dick Was over. Epstein there too? No, nah, I think Epstein was uh, all 80s, right? Him and Trump were good, good old friends in the real estate community in the 80s. People don't realize the intimate connections. I thought it was more superficial until Senna pointed out to me how deep they actually run between yeah, it's Trump a small and world. Like, um, like it's a lot. They were Ghislaine, very close friends. Robert Maxwell had a boat called the Lady Ghislaine which he sold to Adnan Khashoggi's like cousin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right? Not the one who worked for Washington Post who got killed. Okay. Um, oh, okay. 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 Let me look That's up. Awesome. When you say Khashoggi, I'm like, oh, no. Lady G. Here's the dancing lady, Lady Ghislaine Yacht. And it goes over here. It gets sold. Oh, wait. Okay. So this, so um, Imad Khashoggi buys it from Robert Maxwell, right? Named after his daughter, Ghislaine. Mm-hmm. but over here these are uh let's start at the 85 million dollar yacht so adnan khashoggi had a had a yacht that he sold to the sultan of brunei who didn't get paid in iran contra so there's like interesting things there um and then it goes to trump who's then sells it to right here and it becomes Prince Al Walid bin Talal, who owns Twitter, who Trump used to argue with all the time, right? But he <laughs> he has Trump's yacht after he had to sell it. But Trump got it from Sultan of Brunei, who got it from Adnan Khashoggi, because it's a it's like a it's it's like a trophy of Iran Contra. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> Trump was reportedly selling the yacht, then he sold the yacht. Now it's called the Kingdom Five KR, formerly the Trump Princess. And when you go back up, <clears throat> what was the Trump Princess? comes back to Adnan Khashoggi and man is he involved in a whole bunch of deep state narco-terrorism type stuff that you know looks very similar to <laughs> what we've been talking about all night anyway those are tangents let's get back to Hunter Biden and uh his magical laptop from hell which clip crystal and Sager or uh Jimmy Dore most likely let's or do crystal and Sager because we'll get that cheerful music you know what's on your radar radar? yeah we can play a couple minutes temple i want to yeah get a good uh sampling for this episode and people get into the source materials but i want them to know once upon a time these clips existed and here's parts of them all right thank you sir some breaking news here on the Hunter Biden investigation. So a couple of top line later. things from the New York Times. Number one, a federal investigation into Hunter Biden continues. Let's put this up there on the screen. He had a significant nearly $1 million tax bill that he had to take a loan out in order to pay and squash some IRS questions about some of his financial liabilities. But the most important one is that emails that were taken off of the Hunter Biden laptop were authenticated by the Justice Department and are being used in this federal investigation for violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, of foreign lobbying, and all sorts of shady stuff that he was up to. Here's the thing. 
Everybody knew, who, everyone who had a brain knew this laptop was real. And yet, during the election, I know it's been two years. I don't like talking about it. But guess what? We have to, because now the president's son is under federal investigation. The reason is that whenever he, they never denied that the laptop wasn't real. You That's how knew. you knew it was real. Yeah, you knew it was and real. And yet, the media, this has all the hallmarks of a Russian disinformation. I'll never forget that one. Oh, the hallmarks. Hallmarks? So it looks like a Russian disinformation op, except that the underlying material is true. And now, the Biden's Justice Department is authenticated that laptop and using it as part of their investigation. Now, the really interesting stuff here, as recently as last month, a federal grand jury heard testimony in Wilmington, Delaware, one of whom was a former employee for Hunter Biden, in regards to money that Mr. Biden received from a Ukrainian energy company. The investigation, which began as a tax inquiry under the Obama administration, widened in 2018 to include possible criminal violation of tax law, as well as foreign lobbying and money laundering rules. Now remember, we already know from the Ron Johnson report out of Congress, which again was never denied, as well as open source information, that Hunter was taking money from all sorts of shady regimes, the Romanians, the Ukrainians, the Chinese, all of these co very convoluted tax structures clearly designed to skirt U.S. tax law, mm -hmm. which is also, it shows us another thing. If he needed a loan to pay his bills, he could be broke. That's another issue that he's had, which may explain why he was auctioning his fake art for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hey, he pulled in some cash on that, didn't he? I love how we all just uh, brushed over that, right? Which is the president's son is selling you know, high-dollar art in a clear corrupt move where we don't get to know who the buyer is. Yeah, but he does. But Remember, he they does. Remember that whole show yeah. of like, oh, it's going to be anonymous, yeah. and then it totally wasn't? Well, it, it was anonymous to us. Right. It was not anonymous <laughs> to him. Right. So actually the worst of uh, transparency. Look, I, I'm not saying it's the most important story in the world, but it's very clear here that the mainstream media is going to ignore this one completely. And if one of Trump's kids was under investigation, which given Jared probably should be, uh, it would be front page news. Yeah, and then instead, true. you know, all of this is buried, at least the very, at the very least, props to Ken Vogel, Ken Vogel um, is who is such a down-the-line yeah, reporter at the New York Times. He doesn't give a crap what people in the Democratic Party say about him or vice versa. And he's a true, I, I, I would say one of the last true, you know, dogged reporters in Washington who cares about corruption. He, he follows corruption yeah. and it doesn't matter if it's right. Saudi, this president's Russian, sons nothing. or the right. last president's daughter. Right. It doesn't right. matter. He really does, um, does stay on top of it. I mean, I think everybody's expectations in terms of whether there will be likely be charges out of this, probably not. Um, you'd have Who to knows? say because it's difficult to prove these sort of Farah type right. charges. So, you know, I don't want to have like a walls are closing in on Hunter right. Biden. Yeah, we're not saying that. Kind of a moment, right. but it's extremely newsworthy and noteworthy that the president's son is under investigation. Um, someone who has admitted to basically trading on his family name mm -hmm. in his, you know, shady ass business dealings. And then the other part of it that is we should not let go is the way that the media treated this information yes. at the time. Um, you will recall, I mean, there was an, a mass censorship of the original New York Post which was reporting insane. on this yeah. laptop, which was completely insane. Not only could you, 
you know, not only was New York Post, they were taken down off Twitter. Mm -hmm. You couldn't link to the article. It really was completely overwhelming. And you could see the way that the Democrats and the Biden administration basically threatened them within an inch of their life to make sure that this information was pushed out of the public square. Now, ironically, I think it actually made it more. Oh, yeah. There was a big stride. Yeah, it got more attention because of that reaction. But you also, um, this also likely led to those new Twitter rules about using hacked materials Mm -hmm. um, that they've implemented under their new CEO. So this continues to be extremely significant in terms of how social media handled these claims and how the regular press ultimately handled these claims. So so anyway, president's not under investigation. We should definitely be keeping an eye on it. And uh, the other thing that they say here is that it may help his case that he was able to pay off the tax debt because <laughs> juries tend to look favorably on people mm. who have paid their Good. bills. So. Even though he had to take out a loan. Here's the next question. Where'd that loan come from? Where'd the money come Based from? Based upon what asset? Great question. What was the underlying thing? Was it your art? Yeah. These who, are all... Who's, who was it? Do they have any yeah. business in front of the Biden Yeah, who are the business people? <laughs> so was it a bank or was it an individual? So these are all great questions that the Justice Department should ask. Anyway, that's the latest on Hunter Biden, and we'll keep you guys updated. Hey guys, we're going to be You can jump into this uh, Jimmy Dore clip if you want. Uh, uh, do we want to play Jimmy Dore or should we just do a little bit simple? Uh, well, I was just going to say real quick, like they said, well, it's certainly noteworthy. Um, let's just point out, like they don't ask the question, well, why is it noteworthy? So now we've confirmed the uh, the who and the what here and what's going on like then asking the question why applies to logic like why is it noteworthy what sort of connections have been extricated from the information revealed on that laptop of course we got into that with burisma and ukraine and to a larger extent uh, there's more there's also um, uh, intimate dealings with chinese companies involved as well that they didn't get into but the big ones ukraine especially in light of what's happening today with with ukraine and especially with uh victoria newland which we showcased on the show we past couple of weeks talking about the coup and fuck the eu and all this sort of nonsense that's been going on that the puppet government that we've installed that we've then been pressuring russia with uh you know the Zelensky puppets essentially saying as part of uh their constitution that they want to they want to be a part of a nato uh the NATO countries. And it's just, the whole thing is just, there's so much layered corruption on top of layered corruption. And for them to sort of sit there and sort of like gloss over it because the mainstream media wouldn't, but at the same time, not, a, I mean, maybe they have in the past going and they have gone into those connections. So I'm not going to totally excoriate Crystal and Segar, but at the same time, it's not completely uh, unnoteworthy in, in light of what's happening in the Ukraine right now. Um, if anything, I think it actually puts more precedent to be aware of just the, how deep the corruption runs, especially in, in regards to the whole Biden family. And this is not even mentioning, for example, the uh, the diary Biden, um, that uh, James O'Keefe got a hold of that he thought was a fake until the FBI raided him over it. So, I mean, like there's so much corruption in the Biden family that might even extend beyond just Hunter. Um, but now we have actual potential evidence like strong evidence emerging. Not only is the laptop real, that we have evidence of this uh, collaboration with Burisma, the energy company, and then uh, Biden pressuring the, uh, the uh, what do you call it? The um, investigator, uh, prosecutor to step down from that investigation that would have extricated the fact that there is a unique, the fact that he sits on the board of this 
company using uh threatening him like threatening ukraine against uh with uh federal funds lacking federal funds like we will not give it to you i'll call biden right now i'll call uh, obama right now so and that was at the council on foreign relations i mean it's really like really but i just i just have to point that out like you you know you can't see how much this is all intertwined crystal and sager like i understand like it's just a you do cursory overview of this sort of stuff but anyways i just wanted to point that out let's go uh we've done a lot of jimmy door um so jump into the pool clip yeah just do like 10 minutes of tim pool all right brace yourselves everybody it'll be over quick <laughs> The New York Times has now admitted Hunter Biden's laptop is authentic. The emails are real. And this very much so implicates Joe Biden and has devastating consequences for the war that we are standing just before. We're on the precipice of World War Three. Depending on who you ask, I guess, if you believe Zelensky, it may have already begun. Several Ukrainian officials say this is World War Three. It has begun and they need help. We also have to understand that this means with news about Hunter Biden's laptop that Joe Biden has a very serious conflict of interest with how he will be handling the conflict in Ukraine. This can put the entire world in jeopardy. The media lied. The Democrats lied. The social media companies lied. And they have contributed to a corrupt family's dealings with Ukraine and even China. Now, most of us knew that Hunter Biden's laptop was real. It had been verified across the board by many organizations. Even the Wall Street Journal confirmed it. But the establishment media lied. And the story dropped just before the 2020 election. We now know, based on several polls, that if the American people were properly informed about what was on Hunter Biden's laptop and what Joe Biden was accused of doing, they would not have voted for him. Donald Trump would be president. Now, there's a couple ways to look at this. Many of these leftists, these Democrat types, lefty Democrat establishment types, may be celebrating the news, their victory, that they kept Donald Trump out of office. They are allowing Joe Biden to cover up whatever it is he was doing. Maybe it wasn't all bad. I don't know. Certainly, the American people have a right to know what Joe Biden was doing with Ukraine. But they, 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 they consistently covered it up. I am of the opinion that we would have been way better off if Donald Trump was currently president right now, because even Bill Maher asked why Vladimir Putin did not invade Ukraine under Trump. Even Trevor Noah says these deals with Saudi Arabia, the, Biden getting snubbed, wouldn't have happened to Donald Trump. But maybe many people just don't want to accept it. So fine, I will tell you this. At the very least, I can give you this story. The mainstream media, the New York Times, CNN, and otherwise, they are lying to you. Show this to your friends and family. Maybe you hate Trump. Maybe, I'll tell you this, maybe you really think we would be worse off if Trump was president. Fine. I respect it. Just acknowledge that you lie, cheat, and steal to retain power for what you, is the, for what you view is the greater good. If you believe you're doing the right thing, just be honest about it. I have before you this image from Defiant L's on Instagram that summarizes it also well. Jen Psaki tweeted October 19th, 2020. Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former Intel officials say. And then we have a following tweet from the New York Post. Hunter Biden's infamous laptop confirmed in New York Times report. 
March 17th, 2022. They lie to you. On top of this story, which I want to go through, and I'm going to show you the history of how they lie and manipulate you so you can better understand what the media is doing to you. We have a story about Chris Cuomo. No longer at CNN, he's filed an arbitration demand for $125 million, accusing CNN of serious impropriety and unethical practices. We are now getting a glimpse into what CNN does by a former high-profile staff member exposing the lies. If you can take away anything from this, as someone who despises Donald Trump and maybe even someone who voted for Joe Biden, fine, I don't care. I just want you to know they're lying to you so that you give them power. If you like that they have power, fine, just admit that you are willing to allow these people to lie to steal power. That's that I can I can tolerate so long as you're being honest about it. Let's read the news and see what's going on. Before we get started, head over to TimCast.com and become a member. If you would like to support our work as a member, you keep all of our journalists employed and they're eternally grateful, as am I, that you're subscribed to this channel. Share the show with your friends. This one more important is more important than ever. What I'm hoping to accomplish with a video segment like this, most of you know the laptop from Hunter Biden is real. Most of you know it. Many of you have seen the emails, the potential dealings between Joe Biden himself and, uh, you know, uh, certain individuals with foreign countries, Ukraine, China, etc. But many people do not. This is your opportunity to show them that the media has been lying to them. And for those of you that have this video shared with them, I ask you only to present your arguments against the information I will show you. If I'm wrong, so be it. Just comment below and let me know why you think I'm wrong. For everybody else, share this with those who trust the mainstream press. From Glenn Greenwald, the New York Times now admits the Biden laptop falsely called Russian disinformation is authentic. The media outlet, which spread this lie from ex-CIA officials, never retracted their pre-election falsehoods, ones used by big tech to censor reporting on the frontrunner. Glenn writes, One of the most successful disinformation campaigns in modern American electoral history occurred in the weeks prior to the 2020 presidential election. On October 14th, 2020, less than three weeks before Americans were set to vote, the nation's oldest newspaper, the New York Post, began publishing a series of reports about the business dealings of the Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden and his son, Hunter, in countries in which Biden as vice president wielded considerable influence, including Ukraine and China, and would again, if elected president. The backlash against this reporting was immediate and intense, leading to suppression of the story by U.S. corporate media outlets and censorship of the story by leading Silicon Valley monopolies. The disinformation campaign against this reporting was led by the CIA's all but official spokesperson, Natasha Bertrand, then of Politico, now with CNN, whose article on October 19th appeared under this headline, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former Intel officials say. Here you can see the story. Now, I want to point something out to all of you. Media media literacy lesson time. A dozen former Intel officials does not make an opinion a fact. Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo. Former Intel officials say is an opinion. Opinion pieces are not factual news reporting. Natasha Bertrand citing people is not factual news reporting. Now, truth be told, they navigate this manipulation by saying it is a fact. These officials have made this claim. 
Sure. But reporting on a dozen opinions does not False. make those opinions fact. That's the exact fallacy we went over. I just have to point that out. It's the exact fallacy of ad vericundium. <clears throat> Let me put myself on screen. That we went over in my course on Thursday. And so you cannot appeal. It doesn't matter to how many people you appeal to or that there's a 99% consensus. None of that matters. You're still appealing to the person rather than to the ev evidence or the person or persons. And that's a perfect example of the Adveracunian talks. They're appealing to the authority or reverence of these uh, 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 intelligence officers and former intelligence agents and so forth and so on to stand in place of any sort of evidence. And then they create an adver uh, ad ignorantium fallacy that then it was possible it's Russian disinformation without any potential uh, uh, information being put forward um, or any evidence being put forward for that uh, assertion. So that's a perfect example of how they're sort of gaslighting the public with this and getting and creating so much cognitive dissonance in regards to people's understanding of it uh, by immediately portraying information that doesn't act, evidence that doesn't actually exist and just stating it as 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 though it is by using authorities by using the elements of possibility possibility doesn't mean anything without evidence as well and so the question then becomes is this intentional well there's actually with the time magazine recognition that there is a coordinated effort to get all of the news agencies and uh, together to suppress much of this, not only this information, but a lot of what was going on in place of, of, of the night of the election itself, that this coordinated effort, they take it, they take, uh, they, they actually sort of revel in what they were able to accomplish in this regard. So I think it's important to note that like uh, there, there's a preponderance certainly of evidence that these people probably were made aware and I always use a heuristic of like, is it possible they had all the evidence in front of them uh, and they're spinning a story in this capacity? Absolutely. Especially in light of the, what we're now dealing with today, which shows intentionality behind it. And they should be called out for it. Um, this is not innocuous, I guess is what I'm trying to say. This is clearly stemming from nefarious intent in light of the information that's been revealed this week. So it's right to call them out for it and to be aware that this is what they use to sort of control people, control people's minds in the form of their opinions. And that had influence of the polls, um, ultimately. So anyways, go, go ahead and you can continue forward. I just wanted to point that out. It's a perfect example, actually, what we went over on Thursday night. So it's still an opinion piece. These former Intel officials did not actually say that the Hunter Biden story is Russian, disin Russian, Russian disinfo. Indeed, they stressed in their letter the opposite, namely that they had no evidence to suggest the emails were falsified or that Russia had anything to do with them. But instead, they had merely in, uh, into it, uh, into it, uh, intuited this suspicion based on their experience, saying, quote, we want to emphasize that we do not know if the emails provided to the New York Post by President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, are genuine or not and that we do not have evidence of Russian involvement, just that our experience makes us deeply suspicious that the Russian government played a significant role in the case. In which case, now I can say, Natasha Bertrand, formerly of Politico and now CNN, published overt fake news, saying, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former Intel officials say, when they said no such thing. That headline is false. Natasha Bertrand made up outright false information and published it. Glenn goes on to say, but a media Pause. that was overwhelmingly desperate to ensure. That's that's to go up to that headline. We can't see it. But I was going to say that headline says everything right there. There's two fallacies, ad vericundium and ad ignorantium. She's saying it's possible, therefore it's true, and that they're appealing to that possibility based on the uh, the, the uh, intelligence agents. 
That's incredible. That's, I mean, there you can see there's multiple fallacies being used in order to get, sort of gaslight the public and create this false narrative, which then controls people's attitudes. You know, it's a subtle, these subtle subversive techniques that we don't pay attention to because we don't make them explicit. I mean, and right there, um, it's just, and the fact that, and here's, here's, here's the issue. Was it, again, is it innocuous or was it uh, purposeful? Well, she had, she could read the email. You know, if we go back to the clip, it shows that the, the in the email or whatever it was, in the letter they wrote, whatever it was, they stated they had no information for it. It's just a potential theory or a potential hypothesis, we'll say, because they could actually test this out, that they've seen this before. It could be Russian disinfo, but they, they're clearly stating that, that there's no evidence for it. They clearly state that. Instead, she states the opposite, that they've, they've come to this conclusion. So right there, you can show that they, she, she was aware of this. She was aware of what they said. And she, she decided to spin it. Uh, and there's a perfect example why she deserves to be called out. And, uh, and th there's intentionality behind the fallacies that she's using in order to weave a narrative that she wants to weave and that her editors want her to weave. Uh, and then those that pay for her editors to do what they do. And you can start to see the sort of chain of command, if you will, in regards to how they manipulate people's minds. So that's, I mean, it's very pernicious. I know one of the big questions is how do we know they're using it against us or not? Where you want to search to see if there's any sort of extra evidence to show that they were aware of the full spectrum evidence, in which case this lady, this woman was with the email. The fact that they said there's no evidence whatsoever. And then she puts in the headline that these, you know, dozen or so, I think it was up to 50 uh, intelligence agent, ag agents have said this. You know, they, without stating like exactly what they said in their own email or their own letter, I mean, give me a break. That, that means she, she was completely aware and intentionally creating fallacies, using fallacious rhetoric in order to uh, pr present a narrative that was, that was not factual, does not correspond to reality, is not truthful, to spin it in a way that can manipulate the public. And that is extremely dubious, extremely pernicious, and just downright evil. So anyways, go, go, go ahead. I just wanted to point that out. And this is why it's important to be aware and be able to make explicit these fallacies. Cause then you can, instead of just feeling that there's a sense uh, that something's wrong with an article or that something's uh, you, you get sort of a cognitive dissonance. Now you can you can explicate it, extricate the fallacy and describe in form of explication, what exactly is going on behind it. And then you can search for intentionality behind it if there's enough evidence to. Yeah, the fallacy uh, is their knowledge. cunning attempt to trick you. Yes, that's all it is. But the fact that she's aware of what they said, this shows that she's, this is intentional. Like that's intense. So you can really see, and then you can point that out to friends and family. Look, like she was aware of this and she still decided to publish a headline like that. And like when we go through our day and we have families and work and we're busy and we see headlines like that, I mean, it has an effect on the subconscious. It really does. You know, Bernays and uh, Freud and then the actionable version of like the ideas of the subconscious, the unconscious through Bernays and Lippmann and those types of individuals. Yeah. I mean, we, 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 we look to them to be actual journalists. And instead, all they do is use fallacious rhetoric in order to control people. It's unbelievable. And that's the subtleties because we're bombarded with so much information has an unbelievable impact over time on, on people, especially, especially if you're in a social group with friends and family that you don't want to be ostracized from. So you have to go along with certain narratives and those narratives are being sort of systematically parroted by individuals that you frequent or spend time with or patronize with. So it's like, 
in that environment, you also don't want to be sort of like that one outside looking in. So you're willing to capitulate to whatever. And it goes on and on to how, how pernicious setting out these false narratives are and how this like it metastasizes like a cancerous growth where it becomes almost like a self-replicating entity, like a virus or a bacteria inside the, the cells of the mind, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. So anyways, go, go ahead and let's continue forward. Outright false information and published it. Glenn goes on to say, but a media that was overwhelmingly desperate to ensure Trump's defeat had no time for facts or annoying details, such as what these former officials actually said, or whether it was in fact true, made an election to manipulate. As a result, these emails were Russian disinformation, meaning they were fake and that Russia manufactured them, became an article of faith among US's, the U.S.'s vapid, uh, validly despised class of media employees. Now, truth be told, this from Glenn Greenwald is also an opinion piece. Let's just break down some of the facts we have. From the New York Times, Hunter Biden paid tax bill, but broad federal investigation continues. I love how they bury the lead here. They bury the lead here. Because the New York Times doesn't really want to acknowledge the fact that, um, well, the emails were real and they now implicate Joe Biden and the New York Times needs to come clean on their previous reportings. They go going to mention a bit about Hunter Biden and a grand jury investigation over taxes. The Justice Department has given no public indication that it has made decisions about any element of the case and Mr. Biden has not been charged with any crime. But if you scroll down quite a bit, you can see this. People familiar with the investigation said prosecutors had examined emails between Mr. Biden, Mr. Archer, and others about Burisma and other foreign business activity. Those emails were obtained by the New York Times from a cache of files that appeared to have come from a laptop abandoned by Mr. Biden in a Delaware repair shop. The email and others in the cache were authenticated by people familiar with them and with the investigation. Well, there it is. The laptop story officially confirmed by the New York Times. You'd think the New York Times would want, uh, would want to run a big headline saying, yo, we were really wrong about that. Now, I'll tell you why this matters. First, let me show you a few stories. This is a story from NBC News, an exclusive from October 15th, 2020, just before the 2020 election. Feds examining whether alleged Hunter Biden emails are linked to a foreign intel operation. One email, which has not been confirmed to be authentic, suggested a meeting between Joe Biden and a rep from a Ukraine firm that once paid his son Hunter. Now, this is interesting. While Joe Biden was president, no less, he was doing much of which, much of which is considered to be illicit dealings. In a report called Biden Inc. from Politico magazine, I like to bring this one up. Joe Biden's family's fortunes tended to track very well alongside his career and his authority. Notably, in the report, Joe Biden's brother got a bunch of lucrative contracts in Iraq shortly after Joe Biden was put in charge of that operation. On October 15th, NBC News reported Federal investigators are examining whether emails allegedly describing activities by Joe Biden and his son Hunter and found on a laptop at a Delaware repair shop are linked to a foreign intelligence operation. Two people familiar with the matter told NBC News. The FBI seized the laptop and a hard drive through a grand jury subpoena. The subpoena was later published by the New York Post. The bureau has declined to comment. 
The Post has published a series of stories based on emails. The conservative tabloid, you see how they how they play this with framing, said it obtained from Rudy Giuliani. The first story highlighted what it called a smoking gun email that suggested a meeting between Biden and a representative of a Ukrainian company that once paid Hunter Biden. The Biden campaign says there is no evidence the meeting happened and the story was greeted with widespread skepticism. We now know the stories are all true. I should say the email, the story about the emails are all true. Whether or not Joe Biden met with that individual, I don't have that one, uh, those facts pulled up just now, uh, right now. But I can say that in this laptop are photos proving that Joe Biden lied about much of the laptop story. Some of the photos show Joe Biden himself standing alongside Hunter Biden and Hunter Biden's business partners. Joe Biden said, I don't talk to Hunter about any of this stuff. But what about the 10% for the big guy? Remember that story? We have this from the New York Post. Joe Biden was involved in a deal with a Chinese giant and was expecting a 10% cut from the New York Post. Hunter Biden and his uncle Jim were already waiting for Tony Bobulinski in the lobby of the Beverly Hilton when he arrived at 10 p.m. May 2nd, 2017. The Bidens had chosen a discreet couch behind a thick marble column where they could see everyone who walked in the front entrance. Joe Biden, who had left the vice president's office a little more than three months before, was flying into L.A. to speak at the prestigious Milken Institute Global Conference and would be joining them at the bar within the hour. Bob Yelinsky, 48, a third generation Navy veteran and Democratic donor, it would be his first meeting with Joe Biden. And he was conscious that he was being vetted for a trusted role orchestrating the Biden family's existing joint venture with Chinese energy conglomerate CEFC. Let's just be honest about this. Was it during Joe Biden's tenure as vice president? No, it was May 2nd, 2017, just over three months or so after he left. Did Joe Biden negotiate all of these deals quickly in a matter of only a few months? I would say likely not. I would say that Joe Biden was lining things up while he was in office like most people would and do. And that's why I think the system is broken and corrupt. And now that we know the story is true, we have questions about what Joe Biden was doing while he was vice president. Yeah, I think these people are corrupt beyond all recognition. I think these people are overtly evil. And I think they withheld this information from the general public because they wanted power, because they have pawns and lackeys. In this story from the free pre- uh, timesfreepress.com, one in six Biden voters would have changed their minds if they had known the full story. President Donald Trump, if he continues after he leaves office, his mantra about the election being stolen could find himself in the same boat as the woman he berated for doing the same thing after her loss. But Clinton had something the president never did, the full-throated, pull out all the stop support of national media. What if the Republican Trump had even a neutral media, one that gave him credit where credit was due and investigated Democratic challenger Joe Biden where investigation was necessary? Media Research Center, a conservative watchdog, tested that theory recently in a poll of 1,750 voters in seven swing states. I'll just briefly mention Hillary Clinton was wrong to claim the election was stolen from her. Jen Psaki repeated that lie even recently in the past couple of weeks. And Donald Trump is also wrong to claim the election was stolen from him. Now, if you want to get more colloquial in terms of what stolen means, then okay, fine. Hillary Clinton saying she deserved the presidency and lost it, fine. Donald Trump saying that laws were changed and that the media lied, that I get. But for either Democrat or Republican to claim that there was a ton of fraud or whatever. I'm not playing those games. The game I can play, the media lied every step of the way. They lied about Trump. 
during his campaigning in 2015 and 16, they lied about him incessantly over the years following. What they learned, the Media Research Center, uh, in an admittedly small survey was that one of every six Biden voters said they would not have voted for him had they known the facts about several of the news stories the national media refused to investigate thoroughly because they might have hurt his candidacy. Had one of six voters not voted for Biden in the swing states or voted for Trump instead, the election would have turned out differently. The survey showed that 45.1% of Biden voters were unaware of the financial scandals of Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and how Hunter's business had been wrapped up in Biden's work in foreign affairs while vice president under President Barack Obama. All right, go ahead, it Bobby. further showed 30. 30- All right. So I I think there's a lot there. There's a lot more there. There's smoke and fire now. So people can dig in and actually get to some evidence. But I was just thinking, like, while we're listening to this Hunter Biden story and like, you know, he's got that whole situation where he threw the gun in the dumpster across from the school. Right. But he's just held to a different standard than regular people. Right. And maybe that's always been that kind of uh, protection of uh, the executive office and political campaigns and these sort of things. Maybe it's always gone on, but I was, I was thinking to a, uh, Hillary Clinton. Remember a couple of years ago, she was doing something very similar to what Hunt, Hunter's doing. Only she and Bill had created a nice front company called the Clinton foundation that can take money from drug money, laundering opium syndicates, like HSBC, like hundred million dollars or $80 million, right? Clinton foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a pay for play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what that means is pay for access. You get access to the Clinton foundation, like, list of servers in her bathroom at the place and you know there was like some level of like you know cover up to it it wasn't so like blatant obvious sloppy leave the laptop at the you know what i'm saying like so i'm sure like even hillary's like this is what the country's got they could have had her Right. Yeah, at least she yeah, runs like right. a higher organized kind of uh no, you're absolutely right it's more, she's much thing. more sophisticated in the way she handled things compared to the biden family which just shows how again that's kind of been the sub theme of tonight which is just like pete i guess they just assume people are so dumbed down and that we don't pay attention that we're so hyper and overstimulated that we're just they you know she's like hunter doesn't with. even have a body count yet so she's not worried about him but you know <laughs> Those literal skeletons in the closet like poor ben franklin had in france a lot of kids in that dude's house's basements, basements yeah. in America and the UK. Oh, and basements check it out. Too. Yeah, yeah, it's in his basement. I thought this in France somewhere. Okay. And Ben Franklin was because uh, Matthew talked about how Franklin went up there uh, to Canada, to Montreal, and was trying mm-hmm. to get them to come down. I got something up in the history blueprint over here. Uh, <clears throat> LD, were you able to get that article behind the paywall? I have it up and ready to go. Yeah, because there was that other thing that Tim said about burying the lead. And he's like, you know, that's like, they put the interesting part that you should know up front. They put it at the end. Well, I, this is an article that we talked about last week, but also it's an example of burying the lead. So you can read down through this article, but I think it's only like in the last three paragraphs where they tell you the interesting stuff. So let's see if we can read the last three paragraphs. Uh, However, government, this is about Kroll. Yeah. 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 Kroll and the gold and the bank of Nova Scotia, and maybe even there's Silverstream and Oracle and a couple other things in there. But can you get the gist or control the, plus it? Because I haven't yeah, looked I mean, at there's it. There's no but within hours. So I'll just. I don't pay the New York Times to see let me the paywall. Yeah, I, so have I, haven't, I haven't been able to read it for you know a while. 
Uh, and good. I sent it to you as well. So you have and LD. So you both have access to it. Oh, it's on oh, the cool. GTW production side. Um, it's right above uh, what LD said. A Nation Challenge. So here's the title. A Nation Challenge, The Vault, below, below Ground Zero, Silver and Gold. Jim Dyer. Looks like as one who wrote this November 1st, 2001. This Dwyer, was the old DW? Wire? Dwyer. Yeah. DW. Dwyer. Dyer. Not sorry. Dwyer. If I said that, I'm tired. Okay. About two weeks ago, a security team spotted scorch marks on a basement doorway below World Trade Center 4 on the east side of the ruined complex, according to officials. And it scorch goes. Scorch marks, huh? Even in a place of mass devastation and death, those scorch marks got fast attention. They had not been noticed by a patrol team a few hours later earlier. Uh, and behind the damaged but intact door were nearly a thousand tons of gold and silver. To security officials, it looked as if someone had tried to break in. Within hours, a video surveillance system was installed to keep at least an electronic eye on the precious metals under the custodian. The Bank of Nova Scotia had a chance to remove them. That work began this week. And it goes into that. Um, so if we scroll down towards the bottom... 1993 World Trade Center Armored Secret Service limousine was parked 100 feet from the. Wow, what was this? In the 19. Kroll, Kroll builds armored cars and stuff like that, too. Yeah, so there's a history of Kroll that people need to know. But yeah, if we get down to the. Yeah, part, we'll just go to yeah. that because like, this is really juicy. I haven't read this in, oh my God, well, since I met you. However, a government official involved in the recovery effort said that there had been clearly an attempt within the last two weeks to enter the vault area. Quote, it looked like they used a blowtorch, a crowbar, end quote said the official who spoke on the condition that neither his name nor his position, position be identified. Again, in quotations, the Port Authority police began periodic patrols, and then a closed-circuit television system was put in. The bank also engaged Kroll Incorporated, a security business based in New York, to supervise the relocation of the gold and silver, a process that began this week at the Daily News reported yesterday. Michael Cherkasky, the president of Kroll, declined to comment on his company's involvement. Anyone trying to make off with the gold would not be able to run very fast. Each ingot weighs 70 pounds. And then there's a correction on November 7th. An article on Thursday about property of the CIA and the Secret Service buried at the World Trade Center site misstated the nearby location of the two agencies' former offices. While the agencies stored vehicles beneath the Custom House at World Trade Center 6, their offices were in number 7. All right. His, um, so there's another article published by Hudson News that kind of goes with this that I have in my mind. I don't know if it was by the same author, but in one of the articles at the bottom, it talked about Silverstream. Do, do a control find I am. there. Yeah, but I'm doing yeah. control. Oh, we all in here. Yeah, Silver. Yeah, and see if it's the article. Otherwise, I have to look for the other one. Let's see. No, Silverstream. So there's gold under them there, World Trade Centers, just like in Die Hard uh, New York version, which is also alluded to in the trust game. She said in one point in that episode five, or you could just make this the scene out of Die Hard, you know, but years earlier, right? Or maybe years afterwards. Um, yeah, I'll have to look up to that other reference. So that's an example yeah, of burying I'm the lead, putting the it. interesting evidentiary kind of stuff you're not supposed to know about. Vaults below, Customs House, World Trade Center four, five, six. What were those they places? Silver Stream, right? Because they got release, everybody looking but... up here the whole time. Yes. What's going on at ground? What's going on below the ground? Slight of and, hand. Uh, yeah. Put that together with some lone gunmen from March of 2000 or 2001, where they like show you something that I guess influenced those terrorists to stop being drug runners in Cessnas, getting trained and step their way up to 
high-speed maneuvers at 11 Gs and 500 mile an hour circus turns to hit targets that you can't hit in a simulator like that. But they did it on the first try, and they were suicide bombers. So that's pretty gutsy. Perfect. Uh, like it's, Allah it's didn't nearly... call them at the last minute and be like, hey, my son, maybe you shouldn't do that. Like, you know, there was no, they just did. Well, so that's fanaticism, I guess, right? That's what we're supposed to believe. The power of fanaticism they had trained by. Oh, well, I mean, that's that's using logic to n- denote the contradictions in the official story is that it was pretty much impossible to make it at that. Um, that's why I'm actually really interested on from a pilot's perspective on the type of forces that are involved to make at that velocity to be coming in at that angle and making the maneuvers that they were making. That's that's because like right there, you could dismiss. I'm not saying dismiss the plane. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just dis- dismissing the official narrative that it was a hijacking of some sort. That or there was these hijackers that were trained um, who couldn't. Here, I got I got something for you because you're right. And um, I don't go so far as to say there weren't planes that you've not seen all that. Right here. Stuff. I'm going to show you a document coming up on screen. This is June 1st, 2001. Aircraft piracy, hijacking, destruction of derelict airborne objects. So we had a policy. The United States had a policy in place for a Flight 77 scenario. Because what I was thinking when you're saying that is not only did they pull off the end maneuver, allegedly, but they didn't get shot down the whole way. Right. There was those NORAD games going on. So they they changed. They changed aircraft piracy, hijacking. This whole document gets changed right before 9-11. And it gives all powers instead of the official infrastructure that they had. They changed it to. Dick Cheney has to approve the shoot down, which leads serious? to the Norman Mineta. Yeah. And here's the aircraft piracy protocols uh, changed. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff instruction. Here's the actual document. Let me bring it up because we can do that. I got a browser tab here. Let's see. Dun, 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 dun. I got you right there, maybe. Yep. Boom. Right. Wow. Not now, Adobe. It's not trying to get me. And if I control plus on this. These are the notes for the chapter. We have, we have some, some planes, planes, right? Yeah. Not only that, but there's a NORAD tape what where they're, the, they're yeah, tracking the a flight 11 yep. that's still flying around after the tower explodes. Right. So which is real, yeah. which is exercise. And they ask that, is this real world or exercise? They got like 20 war games running. Yep. How convenient. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. Uh, so it's just, it creates, I'm not trying to insinuate, you know, adding your anti fallacy that there were no planes. I'm just saying, I want to know the physics. Is it possible at that velocity to make the maneuvers that have been claimed? Well, that's what I'm curious about. Because what okay. was the what was the admission from the flight school instructor that he couldn't even fly a simple... Hani Hanjour. Yeah, yeah, Hani, yes. Yeah. All right, so... Um... Aside from investigating the general grammar of the hijackers and who were they and how did they get trained and how did they get access and where's the security tapes of them getting on the planes? Because when you look sure, at those, those, yeah, are, where's wow, all that those, are, those are awful, dude. Those, they, that's yeah. why they don't want you to look and, and do the general grammar of identify the Logic's things that exist easy. It's first. a general grammar that they have to fuck with. Yeah. And another thing they can obscure that whole day is all these war games. There's yes. Vigilant Guardian 1 and 2. There's Smoke Global Guardian, Northern Vigilance, Operation Tripod. Uh, White House Situation Room exercise, 9-11 hijacking simulation as part of NORAD exercise. They got E-4 doomsday planes with uh, 
Brent's Scowcroft in the plane mm. on the runway, yeah, powered yeah, yeah. up when the first tower explodes. <laughs> There's all these things that conveniently fall in place. Nothing really goes wrong for these guys. Eastern so you're telling me there's a smoke and mirrors and a sleight of hand going on Dude, at the I'm same time. Sleight of hand do. with the gold and the smoke and mirrors with uh, the the NORAD flight simulation or the uh, war game simulation going on that day. Yeah, I'm saying something like that. And then I'm saying, if you look at those alleged hijackers, come on, man. <laughs> come on. None of it makes any sense. But people, this is how trauma-based mind control works and how uh, mass formation psychosis works. If you control the information top down, it, people want an immediate narrative that they can latch on to that gives essential meaning to what they can't, what is just disparate pieces of information that they don't even have available to them. In other words, they don't understand what's happening and they want an immediate solution. So it was a perfect, perfect setup, thing, even, though, even though if you look at it, it wasn't that well orchestrated insofar as like how many anomalies exist within this the, book, uh, the Dope Inc. book, it just basically the gist is East India Company opium turns into Kissinger Associates yeah. opium. Who worked for Kissinger Associates that's involved with 9-11 and names Osama bin Laden as the hijacker leader? L. Paul Bremer. Oh, Bremer. So oh he works God, at yeah. Marsh and McLennan yeah. in charge of like risk management strategies good job there dude because that and that's an, that's up. like the largest insurance firm or one of instead the of being at the office or one of the offices he's on the tv studio saying osama bin laden that morning he then becomes governor of iraq and what do i know about iraq well there used to be this guy david sassoon who was the baghdad yes. opium warlord monopolist and he was the front for the east india company to do business with china and he married into the rothschild family so once in opium always in opium in these types of places like illicit narco terrorism is that not what the history of the east india company and that which we're talking about for the past 72 episodes is all about so the you know when you look into these things and start to do the grammar it's like who are these people what's their history what institutions empowered them who do they work for what ideologies do they carry forward it's a finite planet there's only so many people trying to mess us over in this particular way and they leave a paper trail to read all about it yeah they're an insurance broker 212 on the top 500. That's great. I'm just looking at Marsha McLeod. I was trying to think. I'm like, I know they deal with insurance, but they're bigger than insurance. They're like insurance so, brokerage, they're risk management, they're reinsurance service, reinsurance services. That's an interesting little. So at the end of that New York Times article, who was yeah. in charge of Kroll? Michael Cherkowski. Cherkowski, yeah. We talked, we talked, they mentioned him last week when we did the. Hank uh, Greenberg runs AIG. Yeah. Jeff Greenberg runs Marsha McLennan. Cherkowski worked with both of them. And when Spitzer investigated this, they put Cherkowski in as CEO at Kroll. Cherkowski brought Spitzer into the New York City District Attorney's Office where Giuliani and Louis, not Louis Free, but there's a whole Robert Morgenthau. Uh, there's a whole coterie of kind of like dirty mm -hmm. birds that came through there. Yeah. And so they called the guy that brought Spitzer in and mentored him for the guy that Spitzer have to investigate. And he got stonewalled. That right there is like power from on high to be like, fuck off. Yeah. You know, and then they deep sixed Spitzer right after that with the prostitute. Spitzer thing. just, yeah, they he was going to be governor. Right. He didn't become governor, I don't think. Did what he? was his first name? Elliot Spitzer or something? What was his first name? Elliot Spitzer. Elliot Spitzer is what I thought. I didn't, let me look. I didn't think Did he, he was governor. governor. I thought it was some other. It's like a, the, it's, it's like some the, other uh, government. Mandela office, effect. Oh, yeah. 54th governor in New York. And then they brought him down. 2008, they took him down. So he was With governor. Girl number nine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least Spitzer, American politician lawyer. They tried to use this the stuff I wrote about Spitzer in my, my court case. So like the, 
the other side was like, and didn't you say, and I was just like, yeah. And he did all those things. You just said, I said, <laughs> yeah, it says during the traditional midnight ceremony of January 1st, Spitzer is sworn in as governor of New York, public ceremony, blah, blah, blah. Then let's see. Uh, Dude, yeah, the reason they asked me prostitution that, sure. scandal on 2000, March 10th, 2008. So it's like up. when he was sworn in, um, his wife worked at the law firm 2007. that I was up against. Here it is. Skadden Arps. Skadden Arps. So yeah. I was up against Skadden Arps and his wife works there. So I had written that stuff and they, they tried <laughs> to grill me about it. Uh, but what I was irony. just like, everything you just said is true and factual. What's your problem? <laughs> Right. I mean, this this whole thing, you can see how such a, how incestuous or metaphorically oh, speaking, but, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. To 1993, Kroll got a contract to man security. World Trade Center's current CEO at the time is Michael Cherkasky. And former assistant district attorney is Robert Morgenthal. Morgenthal, excuse me. And then they sold Kroll in 2010. Former employees, William Bratton, Brian Jenkins, Jerome Hauer. Um, yeah, I mean, it was Jerome Howard's investigation of Mayor Giuliani constructed what became known as the federal bunker office. Jerome Howard is allegedly one of the people who identified John O'Neill's body, but also That's Bernard supposed, Carrick yeah. is in their story somehow, too. He's the one who got John O'Neill the job in the first place, Jerome Howard. Jerome Howard. And he's also yeah. the one that put the White House on Cipro before the MI6 Israeli Mossad anthrax letters were circulated in America saying death to Israel. And all these other things that were like anti-America. And, uh, yeah, and, and for those of you playing at home that say it came from Fort Detrick, let me tell you, you don't think they had copies of everything at Fort Detrick at Porton Down? And you don't think that maybe our enemy would use something that can be tracked back to our lab to make it look like Bruce Ivins did it? Is this your first day playing counter espionage? I don't know. That's but Fort they, Detrick, they got, isn't it? Right. Well, a- Fort Detrick is ours, but Porton, Fort Detrick. Porton Down, yeah, U.S. Amrid is here, yeah, but over there, they got Porton Down, and right. there's a lot of biological research that kind of happens over there, or they're like directing it, and we're just conducting it over here because we got a bigger space to do these things. They got a little tiny island. Yep. There's Securecom, too. I forgot about that. That's and then, now listener. that I've said all that, for any of the super nerds out there, go watch the Sherlock Holmes so- series with Benedict Cumberbatch. And there's an episode in there about porting down and like biological weapons. I'm pretty sure it's that series because I was learning about these things. And I think I was watching that series and then it went. Hmm. I think there was a werewolf in it. So they made it unrealistic. Like it was a shape-shifting type of aerosolized vaccine they were putting on them. But yeah, that whole series. I mean, I tried to of their method. I tried to uh, put it on many years ago. All right. So um, I couldn't get into intermission. Yeah, I'm gonna drop Stalin. Yeah, because he's just depressing, man. He's yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm not. It was First off, the only thing you need to know, Stalin was five foot four. He's about shorter this high. than even me. You know, he's about this tall, <laughs> and he wore heels like Bono, so he could be like Tom Cruise in it up Platform in the shooting. air. And um, his henchman was what they called a dwarf, but he was like four foot eleven. So the people who led the genocide democide of like tens of millions Small of people. man syndrome little man syndrome. so we shouldn't call it the napoleon complex because he couldn't have nearly killed what stalin in his right hand little renfield did right we should call it the stalin complex instead of yeah. a napoleon complex plus it's easier shorter you know to spell and stuff like that <laughs> joseph Steele. <laughs> that's 
crazy. I remember in seventh grade when I learned I had a great history teacher named Harold Holbein, and uh, he was teaching us about uh, the the communist leaders, uh, how they took over Ru- so and created Soviet Russia. Mm-hmm. So they're like, you know, here's uh, this guy oh, Vladimir Lenin, but that's not his real name. His real name's this. And then there's like Joseph <laughs> Jugashvili, and he called himself Joseph Stalin. So he was like, and then he told us like, this was 1987. He told us that the the wall was going to come down and that the, the Soviets were done. And I was like, oh, we'll wait and see what happens. And then I was like a junior. I went from seventh grade to be a junior. And that's when they're like, I think that's when the wall came down. The wall came down in yeah. 91 or whatever, 90, whatever, 89, 89, 89, I think. But then it opened up for trade maybe by 91. There was a it's, couple of years. It's there. like 89 to 91 like, was the. Yeah. David Hasselhoff was there. It's all that mattered, you know. The Hoff. The hall. Go watch the first episodes of Night Rider, and you'll be <laughs> be amused because the cars do that today. We have self-driving cars that talk. All the stuff that's in that episode, yeah, yeah. the cameras for the cars that self-drive, they're in the places they're blocked out back then. They didn't have the tech, but they're like, they'll go right here. We'll make it look like they're right here. So anyway, yeah, there's that's that. A good point. Predictive programming. That's been a, all right. So what I'd like to keep is. I didn't see this Corbett report, but we don't have an hour. So there's supposedly, yeah, the sample juxt- is there a mo- Trudeau. We're supposed to get Trudeau and Putin. There's some sort of juxtaposition that Josh was alluding to that would be good to get on the record. I don't know right, how because I need to get that is. under my belt at some point. But the whole thing in the intermission is probably not good. Yeah, way too would- long. I, right. probably, I probably should have gotten the next I mean- clip about Churchill that builds a little context. I'd like to keep that. Uh, the Ukraine on fire with Soros. That's a short clip. Um, I want to have a clip from the trust game episode five. We'll just pick a time code. And then I want to see a bit about uh, a boot um, speaking like Canadian now uh, world economic forum, CIA, CFR. Cause that's Burmese reviewing this Johnny Vedmore article. It's under these East India company books over here. Right. And uh, I only caught part of that analysis. So I'd like to see. And that's where I was. I first was made aware of what Yandel. Yendo House? Yeah. How, no. Oh, no. Sorry. No, no. no Mandel House. Yandel Elliott. Yeah. I was trying to it have it be on like the almost 3 a.m. or something. Because that's what Matthew this whole Era, book's about. Barrett was talking about, too. Yeah. This whole book's we, about Yandel Elliott. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize the connection with Pierre Trudeau. Now, I do know Bedmore mentioned that, but he, the, much of the article goes into Klaus uh, Schwab's just the new Yandel Elliott. So when Eric brought up the uh, Pierre Trudeau sort of like connection and how it was like sort of a, talent scouting if you will for someone like a Pierre Trudeau that was a fantastic uh, it's it's amazing how analogy. Justin Trudeau's hair looks just like his dad at that age yeah. anyway okay uh okay, right, so, so this is the, the flow will be what Corbett first or Corbett first okay then we bump back to Winnie Churchill and the dirty deeds he's it's just a short clip right I think so it starts at yeah. thirty-one seventeen. I think it, it goes should be a very minutes. short clip. The Ukraine on fire is like three or four minutes. Um, trust game. So, yeah. What was the most powerful part? Go to the part about nineteen ninety-three and how they like gave FDR special powers and he made gold worthless in this country. Because I was like, I knew about this, but they make such a good showing of it. I thought that was good. And then, um, yeah, I want to see just a a clip from the, the Burmese review of Vedmore's because this is going to foreshadow. I think Johnny Vedmore is booked for March 27th, which if my mind is working is next Sunday. 
And then we got guests coming up. We got hopefully Lee Camp in the near future. We were working awesome. on getting them on the calendar. We have communication and interest. So, and That's maybe perfect. even getting Lee to do like a regular segment because he's like got talent and consistency and isn't with RT right now for some reason. I guess there's something going on in politics that, you know, people are getting canceled or something like that. I don't know. But so the- I don't know. Trying to keep up with these Biden people is hard, what they're doing. It is very hard. So the connection begins around 17 minutes for the uh, Corbett report. We either can play the first 20 minutes that'll give the whole Trudeau-Putin juxtaposition, or we can just play starting from 17 minutes. It gets more into Putin, um, depending on how long you want to go. Let's play 10 minutes of the Corbett. Okay. Because so I then, want people to actually be interested enough that they'll go to his site and watch yeah. it on his site and like get connected to him. Gotcha. And, uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, and we'll so keep let's start around like seventeen thirty, LD for the. I'll put it in here for the true, um, the Corbett. Yeah, All right. we'll get about this ten. Play about ten minutes of that, and then we'll go to Churchill. Thirty-one minutes, seventeen seconds. Or do you want to go to which one after that? No, do the Churchill. Just, uh, Churchill. There'll, there'll be a couple clips that fits into the meta contextual history of the situation. And then play like five or five or seven minutes of that, and then on the Ukraine on fire, starting at forty-two minutes, forty-one minutes. I'll say, sorry. Yeah, that's the Soros connection yep. to the uh, twenty fourteen revolution, which was ten years after their Orange Revolution, which he also helped to fund. Yes, and then uh, which we talked about earlier with that whole right, yeah, because that's connected the the OTPOR, which just means resistance or whatever. Yeah. That that fist that we showed. My earlier. point I wanted to say back when you showed that at the, the beginning Canvas of the show, Orange Revolution. That's the same that, fist. It's the same that fist that Canvas on. Yeah. Is a communist symbol. It from is the time of World War II it was used sure. by Antifa and all these other groups. So what you see today, yeah, I mean, there it is on screen. Let's see. That right. means resistance, and this was symbols part mean of the, things. Yeah, they do, and they're used for a reason because there's continuity symbols of ideas the behind those groups. Symbols are very complex ways of communicating. Symbols um, conceal and symbols reveal. I think I heard from Manly Palmer Hall one time. Indeed. And then uh, after that, trust game. By the way, we brought up James Billington earlier, a Rhodes Scholar, librarian of Congress. The entire library of Congress, I've never been in there, even though I lived down near there for a little bit. It has Rosicrucian symbols all throughout it. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're the keepers of the wisdom and the information amongst these myriad secret societies and kind of have fingers into all of them because that's what's in the Library of Congress. And I know that because that's what's in Fire of, in the Minds of Men, Origins mm-hmm. of the Revolutionary Faith by Billington. Yeah, it's almost as if Rosicrucianism uh, popped up as a reactionary to other secret societies that were maybe doing things a little different. And that's sort of what it has the alchemical illusion, aspects to the alchem- Well, they, there are so many different systems and alchemical ideas, but there were, but the idea of like, lead into gold is just taking your base brain and actually know, educating it. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the many, many metaphors for what that means. So, but yeah, or you could go to the trust game and see how the Rothschilds used mercury mines from Spain, the Quicksilver to process the gold, to make the gold bars at the Royal mint in England. That's also Hermes. Well, there's that very famous thrice was great it, on those caduceuses. Like when Descartes the was part, when Descartes was a soldier, he was part of a troop that ended up uh, taking he had down that dream. one of the great. Well, no, he did have the dream, but the dream occurred after yeah. he helped to pillage one of the last sanctuaries of alchemical thought that was just that was against much of the crowns of the time. 
the Rosicrucianism pops up afterwards. So I think the allusions to what Matthew was saying is that there were like positive elements, what the secret societies were doing back then. Then there was like all of a sudden this emergence of Rosicrucianism and other elements out of, out of that that seemed to be taking a lot of the positive elements and rebranding them or controlling the narrative that was emerging from them. And that's a brilliant observation because people too often just say a secret society bad. And I'm like, that's, that's a hasty generalization. It's not that simple because there was, it was very much more complex. There's a bit really challenging milieu between the Holy Roman empire, the Catholic church, the Vatican, in other words, uh, and heresy, as well as trying to get these enlightenment ideas pushed forward. But then there was also people want to control that name, like kingships that were associated with anyways. It's a very, it was, a, that itself could be a really fascinating uh, aspect of history to get into and do, do research on. But anyways, and then uh trust game, you wanted to play what the gold portion. Yeah. He who has the gold makes the rules is the concept of that. And uh, it was about FDR uh, making those rules around 19, 1933 okay. to uh, take America and separate the gold. And then it's like, America's not thinking about gold. And during that time, a whole bunch of gold might go over across the ocean to fund Hitler to make industrial things so they can get us into world war two. I mean, it's a progressive collapse of America and like, as an example, so hundreds of years, yeah, Bretton like Woods, over a hundred years, 1972 72. disconnects American dollars from gold. 40 years after FDR did this thing, we're going to learn about. Uh, the American dollar becomes a petrodollar because the Saudis will trade only trade their oil in the dollar. That's and then right. other big countries, formerly our enemy Russia, recently big adopter of the dollar in America and everything over there. Well, now, it's the peg for the world now. And that's tied to the idea of petrochemicals, right? Right. Petro so itself, I should say, not petro. They're undoing. Oil. If you wanted to crush America's economy, what better way than to like get the Saudis all riled up about something and get Russia off our stuff? Then it's like now people are going to look. Oh, you guys just printed sixteen trillion last year. Whatever, whatever they're doing this year, you got it. They're going to crush our credit in the future. They're going to make the dollar worthless, and that goes into their CBDC. global cryptocurrency that it. they projected on the cover of the Economist in nineteen eighty eight. And there's the phoenix rising from the ashes, and it's like global crypto, oh, global Rich digital Owens. currency. And that's the Rothschilds economist that's saying that in their collective voice. Here we are, and they said, uh, but it was supposed to be like by twenty eighteen. So it was nineteen eighty eight to twenty eighteen. There's. Oh, the cover's got the Look phoenix. at this. this That's is a different, different one. This is the Economist different. from 19, that, the August 3rd, 1991. Uh, BCCI. BCCIA. BCCIA yeah. from the Economist. Hmm, I wonder what they're you know, trying to misdirect from in that capacity. Incredible, right? Um, the Senate sent this to me earlier. I meant to get it on your, or on your radar, but we were talking, I think you mentioned BCCI. We were talking with Matthew and she'd sent this to me. And I think she said Sugar 3, which is a, a moniker in the GTW Discord. So I don't think there's a good movie on BCCI yet. And no. that's like a, a huge talk. I got like four or five or six books on that topic behind me. I forget me. that there's a pseudo illusion. And I don't think so. I think that's the Vatican Bank only. But there might be a pseudo illusion in the Godfather 3, but I forget. Well, there was Robert going. Altman, not the guy who makes movies like Godfather 3, like coppola but the other robert altman he was in bcci and that was the guy that wonder woman linda, linda carter married mm. so her husband was involved in bcci as was clark clifford who created the national security act in 1947 as are a whole bunch of the other iran contra uh Gubanifar, khashoggi all these other people 
Unknown, that were involved sure. in that. Yeah. They're involved in, and it's all British intelligence being run out of the, like their old territories and Cayman Islands type style system. So yeah, there's a lot, man. I know. So you're not going to get it all from the intermission, but the intermission provides you some solid little pieces that you can put into the puzzle of understanding you're trying to formulate for yourself. Uh, and we do that uh, one clip at a time. Let's go ahead. We'll go to the first clip since we're skipping over Stalin. Let's go to James Corbett. And let's check out some of the fantastic editing that Brock West has helped him uh, do to bring this story to life. On Trudeau's a shocking document reveals Trudeau's real plan. Let's try that again. Sorry. Welcome to the podcast, guys. This is episode 416 of the Corbett Report podcast on shocking document reveals Putin's real plan. Well, there you go. Okay, sorry. Now that that's been corrected, you guys can, as I said before, I'll, obviously I'll include the link to this document so you can go and read it, but most 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 people don't. So anyway, go, go, go take and send this video out to everyone you know, right? As, I hope that's you already did that. Wait. What? Are there... You know, I get the sense there are people in the crowd there who are a little bit upset about this, who feel a little bit personally threatened or upset or emotionally involved in the idea that Putin and Xi Jinping are 1,000% on board with the UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and all of the globalist buzzwords and all of their plans, and that's exactly what they are attempting to implement, that that is the BRICS saviors that so many in the alternative media seem to hold up as some sort of great, wonderful, crusading white helmets who are going to come in on their horses and save the day at the end of uh, this horrible nightmare we're living through. But I know my audience is much better informed about things than that. You wouldn't have fallen for that. So there's no reason you would feel personally upset about the fact that actually, oh no, everything that was wrong and that I saw demonstrably was wrong when I thought Trudeau was saying it, is still demonstrably wrong when Putin is saying it, right? Right, exactly. Because we know the same documentable facts, facts on the public record that we can say about Putin, just like we said about Trudeau. I mean, for one obvious example, one documentable fact, Vladimir Putin is a World Economic Forum stooge. When I mention our names, like Mrs. Merkel, um, even uh, Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin. Fact number two, Vladimir Putin is a warmonger. незамедлительным. И приведет вас к таким последствиям, с которыми вы в своей истории еще никогда не сталкивались. Fact number three. Vladimir Putin is seeking to, to shut down all media dissent in his country and control the dissemination of information in Russia. Putin signs fake news, internet insults bill into law. This coming from the Moscow Times, Putin has signed a controversial set of bills that make it a crime to disrespect the state and spread fake news online. The legislation will establish punishments for spreading information that, quote, exhibits blatant disrespect for the society, government, official government symbols, constitution or governmental bodies of Russia, end quote. 
This is what an information war looks like when it hits the streets. Police in Moscow's Lubyanka Square, wrapped in body armor, seizing the phones of citizens, searching for evidence of resistance. Telltale social media content about the war in Ukraine that can land people in prison. It's doom scrolling, Russian style. Fact number four. Putin was pushing all of the same COVID biosecurity tyranny nonsense uh, during the scandemic as Canada and the US and basically every other country for the past two years. Putin spoke with newly elected lawmakers and urged them to actively support efforts to get more people vaccinated. The Kremlin says the number of COVID-19 cases is rising due to an insufficient amount of people getting inoculated. Russia was the fastest country to develop and launch the Sputnik V vaccine last year. However, the vaccination drive has been slow as Russians do not entirely trust the authorities and fear new medical projects. Fact number five. Putin is pushing the AI-driven transhumanist fourth industrial revolution nightmare. AI-enabled solutions have indeed become part and parcel of our life. Today it's the point of gravity for talented, creative people ready to dream and achieve their goals. It's the front edge of scientific engineering thought. It's important that such breakthrough solutions that open up truly infinite opportunities be beneficial for the humanity, not detrimental. They should help save our planet, provide for its sustainable development. I count that all these issues we will discuss during the Zbers International Conference that has already become, as Mr. Greff has mentioned, one of the main global platforms to talk AI. And, of course, Putin also loves China and its dictatorship. Вас поздравить, уважаемые коллеги, уважаемые господин председатель, всех наших китайских друзей с тем, как была выстроена работа по борьбе с пандемией. Результат действительно существенный, ясный, понятный. И хочу еще раз повторить, это хороший пример для других. Right? I mean, all of these are documentable, verifiable facts, so there's no reason that anyone in the conspiracy realist crowd who has done their research on these matters should be in any way offended, upset, emotionally involved in the idea that 
Surprise, surprise, another politician is doing what politicians do, trying to control their citizenry. That's what they're all interested in. And in this case, just as in Trudeau's case, it is in the service of a greater agenda, a great reset agenda. Oh, but I, I hear the would-be fact-checkers in the crowd rubbing their hands with glee. Oh, uh, we've got James now. He cited Schwab's statement that Putin was a young global leader. But Putin wasn't a young global leader. He was in his early 40s at that time when the Young Global Leader program started and the age cap was 38. So it's not true. Now, there are more substantive ways that I could qu quibble with that argument, but I would say just on the flat basis of was there a relationship between Putin and the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab dating back to that time in the early 1990s, as far back as 1992, when Putin was an absolute nobody working as an assistant in the mayor's office of St. Petersburg and absolutely completely unknown on the international stage that was a demonstrable tie and a friendship going with, with Klaus Schwab going back to that time, when, in Putin's own story, at any rate, if it is to be believed, he was moonlighting as a taxi driver to make ends meet. Does, does that relationship exist? Documentably and verifiably, yes, it does. Uh, dear colleagues, uh, dear Klaus, I've visited Davos many times, assisting uh, meetings starting from the 90s. Mr. Uh, Schwab just mentioned that we met each other first in back in 1992 uh, in St. Pete. And when I worked in St. Pete, I visited uh, this forum many times. I'd like to thank you uh, for this opportunity today uh, for me to uh, make my statement vis-a-vis -vis the expert community which is participating in this forum thanks to your efforts, Mr. Schwab. Well, yeah, but but he he wasn't a young global leader, and um, you know he has to say things like that. That's just how international politics works, James. <laughs> you will note how the the people who tend to crop up in the comment sections of pieces like these will operate, which is to uh, take some some claim or some link some embedded somewhere in a podcast like this and try to quibble with the factual distinction of uh, that it's making, and thereby, ah, the whole piece is debunked, and we don't have to really look at the awful truth that's being exposed here, which you will note, as listeners of the Corporate Report, you will remember from episode 381 of this podcast on who will fact-check the fact-checkers, that is the exact modus operandi of the establishment mainstream fact-checkers. Oh, look, you know... ...responsibilities of power whether this is statesmanship or whether it's failing the test of statesmanship is debatable, is what economists call the allocation of scarce resources. Um, and resources were very scarce at the time of the Bengal family. LD, would you uh, bump up the audio a little bit? And it's the next gen, so this guy's almost done that I'm looking to hear from. There good reasons don't accept that. Uh, but that's, there's no, as it were, agreed conclusion to reach about that. I think his perspective is that he finds himself Empire in forty two liquidation to wash it dressed the whole but work and in towards Mr. President, have you been there are under limiting and about North America? But uh, this depiction of him uh, choice. 
to be with doing india is you know i i must confess i am a little fascinated by the repeated use of the word complicated i find that that is actually one of the great pillars of revisionist history to kind of create a situation where even with objective evaluation without prejudice you can come to a conclusion that somebody any historical figure who played such a pivotal role was motivated more by prejudice motivated more by lack of concern for priorities he or she considered to be less relevant or unimportant or avoidable or ignorable and to create around such decisions so many other extraneous factors which would make that decision almost palatable given the difficulty of making straightforward choices and i think in this case of this whole revisionist project people like winston churchill are the beneficiaries especially of uh, uh, historians who want to restore once again what appears now to be undoubtedly a person who had as i said earlier outlived his utility and was largely guided by the sentiments of an imperial era which had ceased to exist and i must confess that uh, very often uh, these attempts uh, are clearly transparent for what they are aiming at well you know you may not like revisionist history but thank god for revisionist history because that's what really keeps history going i mean it will be very boring and if in fact the revisionism as far as churchill is concerned is of very recent vintage so which is revisionism i'm not very sh- terribly sure whether you're talking about the view of churchill as an inspirational wartime leader which held right till about the 1980s or so or the figure of churchill as a genocidal maniac which has recently come into being no actually and, and far more they I, i would ask another question which is interesting from the point of view is when was it consciously recognized in the world that empire is obsolete and when did the british themselves recognize it when did the world recognize it or did world war 2 make it make empire merely unaffordable you see the question you are asking i keep going back to the original causes i think winston churchill's ability to be among the first if not the first at least in the positions he held and the influence he exercised his ability to be able to sense what is changing in terms of the historical narrative of what the future could be and what could be in the best interests of britain as one phase ended and another began i believe that ability was inherently stultified by the prejudices he held now of course when you say the use of the word complicated if i was a british historian writing about churchill's role in the second world war i would consider him in many ways to be a hero because he did provide the leadership and he's uncomplicated that wherever he saw the interests of the british or of the empire he pursued it but now the attempt that is dangerous is to show that beyond this for a variety of reasons which makes the scenario complicated he was also not as 
unconcerned or insensitive about issues which had a huge impact on millions of people. And Shravani just mentioned the Bengal famine. And of course you can point out a variety of reasons why. But the fact of the matter is that in his system of priorities influenced by his prejudices, this was not important. Yes, it would have. Um, you had by that stage Japanese forces inside India, inside Assam, at Kohima and Imphal. You работников-правоохранительных органов, на милицию, которая защищала и не давала захватить правительственные здания и здания администрации президента. Как президент мог такой неуправляемой толпе выйти и с кем говорить? Технологии, которые применялись в тот период времени, они были заранее спланированы. As veiled and masked as the color revolutions can be, an attentive viewer can see subtle patterns and similarities revealing their true nature. To make crowds act as one obedient group, they have to be united at the unconscious level. The masterminds of color revolutions know this well and have perfected the art. Symbolism is one of the most powerful tools to achieve this end. Revolutionary political organizations with surprisingly similar names and even more similar logos have appeared time and again, almost as omens marking the countries that would be hit by the colored plague next. They are often described as being aware and active when they're actually trained and radical. They are the ones who take the first shot literal and metaphorical, to transform the peaceful protests into full-blown coup d'etats. Their fingerprints can be found everywhere on the map of the color revolutions. Using all the experience of past generations, simple but effective tools like catchy sing-alongs and chanting are employed. Well known for exciting the crowd and creating a group identity, they depersonalize individuals and make them easier to manipulate. Конечно, без денег здесь не могло быть. Такое количество не государственных, различных общественных организаций, грантов Incidentally, one such organization, Hromadske TV, received generous donations from the Dutch and U.S. embassies, as well as from the Renaissance Foundation, an NGO founded by George Soros. I set up a foundation in Ukraine before Ukraine became independent of uh, Russia, um, and the foundation has been. Uh, functioning ever since, and it played a, an important part in events now. I like criticism, but it must be my way. Did you see any evidence of U.S. involvement? Did you feel their uh, presence from the U.S.? Очень частыми гостями были представители Соединенных Штатов, конгрессмены, были госпожа Нуланд приезжала очень часто у нас. Были с ней дискуссии, но после этих дискуссий она шла на Майдан, 
и поддерживала протестующих. И обвиняла правоохранительные органы, применялась чрезмерно сила. На самом деле эти все месседжи мы видели на Майдане. Well, members of Congress were visiting Ukraine during that period, most famously Congressman John McCain. So some of the people who were uh, challenging their government, their elected government at that point, were, were being told by the senior U.S. official, a person who ran for president and a top official in the U.S. Congress, that the U.S. was with them. I'm Senator John McCain, and it's always a pleasure to be back in Ukraine. Senator McCain was, uh, in, in a sense, giving the people in the Maiden a feeling that they had the, the backing of the most powerful country on earth. This is about the future you want for your country. This is about the future you deserve. Делегаций много приезжало. Я говорил, что нельзя вмеш нельзя говорить, во-первых, неправду. Нельзя становиться на сторону митингующих и отстаивать их права, создавая тем самым и углубляя конфликт. Когда митингующие захватывают правительственные здания и учреждения, скажите, допустимо ли это в любой другой стране, например, чтобы посол Украины пришел к митингующим в Фергюсоне и раздавал там пряники или пирожки и обвинял полицейских Соединенных Штатов Америки? Я считаю, что это недопустимо ни в одной европейской стране. А почему к Украине было такое отношение? Who was your highest level contact with the U.S. government in this period? Я постоянно имел контакт с Вадимом Байденом, вице-президентом. У меня были частые с ним телефонные переговоры. Но дело в том, что господин Байден говорил одно, а в Украине делали другое. And the U.S. ambassador? Посол Соединенных Штатов в Украине постоянно принимал представителей Майдана у себя в посольстве. Мы это очень хорошо знали, мы это отслеживали, и создавалось такое впечатление, что в посольстве Соединенных Штатов существует штаб, который управляет этим процессом. and given a mandate to implement his New Deal, conceptualized earlier that summer at the DNC convention. The following month, on December 13th, McFadden motioned to impeach President Hoover, but the motion failed. On January 30th, 1933, exactly 284 years to the day after Charles I was beheaded in England, Hitler was elected chancellor in Germany. Then a bunch of things happened really quickly, back to back. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. On March 4th, 1933, FDR's inauguration speech declared his intent to seize, quote, broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency. We require two safeguards against a return of the evils of the old order. There must be a strict supervision of all banking and credits and investments. 
There must be an end to speculation with other people's money. And there must be provision for an adequate but sound currency. I am prepared, under my constitutional duty, to recommend the measures that a stricken nation in the midst of a stricken world may require. I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis. Broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. This would be the rather dangerous one ring to rule them all power that is extremely hard to resist or destroy. Two days later, on March 6th, FDR declared the start of a four-day bank holiday nationwide to stave off bank runs and total collapse of the American banking system. All Federal Reserve transactions were suspended. After more than 9,000 banks had failed during the previous three years, the U.S. government had effectively gone bankrupt. Three days later, on March 9th, the Emergency Banking Act was rushed through, authorizing the Federal Reserve Banks to issue additional currency in order to reopen banks with deposit insurance guaranteed by the government. In effect, Americans then redeposited most of the currency that had been previously withdrawn in a fevered rush, restoring confidence. The following day, FDR issued Executive Order 6073, reopening banks and the Federal Reserve System, but preventing payment in gold. A week later, on March 17th, Hitler's new director of the Reich Bank took over, cutting deals with the Bank of England, who agreed to supply a steady stream of gold to the regime. According to economic historian Albrecht Richel, with the UK heavily exposed to the German debt crisis in 1931, such transfers were part of an economic appeasement plan on the part of Britain vis-a-vis Nazi Germany. In turn, British assets were unfrozen, and the Nazis, quote, had a reliable partner. Follow the Yellow Brick Road. On April 5, 1933, FDR issued Executive Order 6102, the so-called Gold Hoarder Law, requiring everyone to turn in their gold coins, gold bullion, and gold certificates to the Federal Reserve to be exchanged for other currency, or else they would face a $10,000 fine and or possible imprisonment. And I'm going to go ahead and take a shot in the dark that this is why two days later on April 7th, the production of beer in the United States officially became legal again. At that point, people were probably going to need a drink. Gold, 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 as good as gold. The reason people hold gold is as a protection against what we call tail risk, really, really bad outcomes. And to the extent that the last few years have made people more worried about potential of a major crisis, then they have gold as a protection. Do you, th- do you think gold is money? No. It's not money. It's Even a, it's if it has been metal. money for 6,000 years, somebody reversed that and eliminated that economic law. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's an asset. I mean, it's the same, would you say treasury bills are money? I don't think they're well, money either, do, but they're a financial do, why asset. Why do central banks hold it? Well, it's, it's the former money. reserves. Well, it's tradition. Long-term tradition. Gold, gold, gold. Some gold, gold still feels better with gold. 
On April 20th, EO6111 prohibited earmarked gold for foreign accounts as well as exports, except by the Treasury to foreign central banks and the Bank of International Settlements. People began to take notice. Like, really? You taking the gold? What's up? Broad executive power to fight the emergency. Very, very good. Have you anything else to say? On May 4, 1933, Rep. Louis T. McFadden charged President Roosevelt with violation of the Constitution over his handling of emergency banking maneuvers, charging that FDR confiscated the property of the people and repudiated the public debt, while also claiming international bankers have combined to set up a dictatorship over the U.S. with their own ends. On May 18th, Rep. McFadden published an op-ed in the papers, charging that over $30 billion that's a 1933 currency, mind you, had been injected into Germany via the Federal Reserve System, beyond the already sizable amount secured by U.S. bonds to bolster the German economy under the Dawes and Young plans. This was an amount so large the Fed board dare not divulge the total, he alleged. Now prescient in hindsight, in 1933, McFadden asked... Do you know that Germany is well-armed and that we paid for her rifles and uniforms, her commercial trucks, which can be converted for military uses, and she now leads the world in aviation? McFadden also mentioned $150 million that the Fed loaned to Soviet Russia, and even bigger loans that can't be repaid to the Soviets via the Reich Bank. And that was our money, too. I say that the Federal Reserve Banks have purchased and rediscounted false, worthless, fictitious, and uncollectible acceptances drawn in Germany. Those false papers are in the vaults of the Federal Reserve Banks as security for money taken from citizens of this country by taxation. Now dead losses. And then five days later, on May 23, 1933, in a hero move that has never been properly acknowledged in this country, Rep. McFadden brought impeachment charges against 24 financial officials, including the Treasury Secretary and the entire Federal Reserve Board, alleging, under 32 separate charges no less, that these individuals were guilty of having robbed the U.S. government and the people by their theft and sale of gold reserves in the U.S. These individuals are guilty of having robbed the U.S. government and the people by their theft and sale of gold reserves of the U.S. Mr. Speaker, I raise to a question of constitutional privilege. On my own responsibility, I impeach Eugene Meyer, Roy Young, Edmund Platt, Eugene Black, Adolph Casper Miller, Charles Hamlin, George James, Andrew W. Mellon, Ogden Mills, William Wooden, John Pohl, J.F.T. O'Connor, members of the Federal Reserve Board, jointly and severally, with high crimes and misdemeanors. Whereas I charge the aforesaid, jointly and severally, with having unlawfully issued Federal Reserve currency on false, worthless, and fictitious acceptance and other circulating evidences of debt, and with having made unlawful advancements of Federal Reserve currency. 
I charged them with having unlawfully taken over $80 billion from the United States government in the year 1928, and I charged them with similar thefts committed in 1929, 1930, 1931, 1932, and 1933. I charged them jointly and severally with swindling the United States Treasury and the people of the United States. I charged them jointly and severally with the crime of having treasonably conspired to destroy constitutional government in the United States. Magically, the Justice Department never pursued the matter further and no one was ever prosecuted. However, Rep. McFadden was mocked in the papers as the man with a five-year plan to impeach everyone in Washington, D.C. His opponents defeated his re-election, effectively ending his career, and then he died shortly afterwards of a heart attack at age 60. On June 16, 1933, the Banking Act of 1933, now better known as the Glass-Steagall Act, was passed supplementing the earlier 1932 Glass-Steagall Act. Hey everybody, Jason Burmis here, and we've got a really, really, really important show for you today. Because Unlimited Hangout via Whitney Webb and Johnny Vedmore do extremely detailed pieces that you actually have to pay attention to. And then, if you have any historical connotation about what they're writing about, you intertwine it with what you've learned over the years, or it sends you all over the place, in that these are must-reads, and these are not your normal, hey, I'm throwing together a blog, and it's going to take me, you know, four to eight hours. No, that's not what these are. And that's why... Their work really resonates with me, especially because it's almost like if I were to put this together as a mini documentary, it would probably end up taking me forever because, first of all, I'd want to put everything together for the narration and make it look slick. And this has taken me, you know, an hour to read and absorb, right? But then I'm going to want to put all these other clips in there to really examine and reiterate what is in this extremely well done article, uh, Dr. Klaus Schwab or how the CFR taught me to stop worrying and love the bomb. And this is a play, obviously, for those out there that are are Kubrick fans like myself, on Dr. Strangelove, which for me is probably still my favorite Stanley Kubrick movie. It's like, you don't think it's going to be because it's dated, it's Effects, for instance, are are not impressive, and it's hard even to suspend disbelief. But for at the time, they were revolutionary, right? You you would think that that wouldn't be the film, but Peter Sellers' performance on top of a very, very intelligent script and scenario makes it just one of these very lovable and rewatchable movies that makes you think, okay? And really, the importance of that comes along with a guy named Herman Kahn. Now, Herman Kahn, other than Henry Kissinger and another uh, uh, gentleman, John Galbraith, which we're all gonna, gonna show clips of all these guys, end up being major influences in what will become the World Economic Forum via Klaus Nutschwab. 
Okay? And I wish we could get Nut Schwab on the show. Klaus is going to be featured, you know, via some clips I have queued up so you can understand where this is all going. But out of all the people that we talk about, because we're talking about Kissinger, like you see in the thumbnail, Mr. New World Order himself, playing you clips of that as well. I mean, if there's if there's a guy that has been pro-globalism and promoted centralization via a new world order more than Henry Kissinger that is currently walking and breathing on this earth, I don't know of it. In fact, Kissinger's probably going to get uh, the least amount of attention. We're going to play a small clip of Invisible Empire. But, uh, you know, just to give you guys an idea, this is at the Bush Center, okay? <laughs> this is at the Bush Center. Do, do you see what it says in the bottom here, guys? Forum on Leadership 2019. Okay, so here you are basically uh, a little bit uh, a year before COVID-1984 pops off. And what's he talking about? The New World Order at the George W. Bush Presidential Center for a Forum on Leadership. Look at this ghoul. I mean, again, I'm not even going to do anybody the favor of, of having to listen to Kissinger. You're going to get to see some Kissinger stuff, like I said, in the clips we're playing. But these are the influences, and also via Harvard University. Okay, so there it is. The New World Order, the keynote conversation. And you can go through history. In fact, we're going to. We're going to show you Nixon talking about the New World Order. Because obviously, uh, Henry Kissinger not only was an infiltration, but a huge influence in that. And, you know, what's great about this Unlimited Hangout piece is, you know, it goes through these intellectuals talking about all of these issues, right? And at the end of the day, even Herman Kahn who seems to be the most reasonable out of the bunch, the most anti-Malthusian, still believes, what? Um, that, well, you know, there still needs to be a ruling class, and we need to raise them up. And he's very um, techno-fascistic. Even, even though he wants, out of all these people, he's probably the most honest in that we have an abundance of resources. There is no limit to growth on this planet if we play it right. I mean, we have such a long ways to go that that's not even an, uh, an issue. And he's not Malthusian like the others. Now, I would, I would encourage people, because this is going to go all over the place into that Malthusianism, because that's what the fourth industrial revolution is. Okay? And we're going to play a, a clip of Khan even talking about the top three to five percent of whatever's left. Okay? being in charge of robot slaves. And this is 1979. This is when Jason Burmis was born. Almost 40, man, it is, uh, it's almost 43 years ago. Now I'm starting to, no, it is, it's 43 plus years ago. I'm starting to lose, a tra is it 43? No, it's it's almost 43 years ago. Man, I see, I'm starting to lose track. I'm 42, I, I'm jumping ahead. You know, I guess the big 5-0 is gonna, is gonna be a time for me. But, Legitimately, this talks about it all. Roundtable groups, uh, infiltration through CIA money, the building of the World Economic Forum through these um, institutions via these minds. And so we're going to go to Herman Kahn here, okay? And, and I think that that's extremely important because you really have to get into, um, you know, what this guy... Because this, again... Vedmore does a great job in this, but out of all of them, he's the most honest. And 
I'm going to play you a clip hopefully later of Kurzweil, Mr. Transhumanism, Mr. Singularity, all about AI, right? Saying that the overpopulation stuff is a myth. And that, again, does not go along with their command and control program. Okay, so here we go. General, a good deal of this uh, red tape uh, is there for a good reason. Uh, it's to, to prevent mistakes. But you've got to be willing to live with the mistakes, fix results afterwards. Now, you want to get especially angry when you're wasting money that's been given to the welfare of the poor. That's always understood, that's special money. The $80,000 per unit is just crazy. Uh, you want to get angry uh, when the small businessman is proud of business, because he's kind of the yeoman of our society, uh, the upper peasantry, you know, the people who have a kind of a special reliance. Let's stop it right there. Did you just hear what he called the small businessman? Now, number one, he's not wrong about the welfare state. He says, you know, there's a certain money that's always kind of put away on the side for the poor, but we're starting to get out of control. And this is 1979. He says $80,000 uh, per unit. That, that That's insane, right? But then he talks about the small businessman and their importance. And he's speaking extremely candidly here. I want, I want people to understand that extremely candidly. And thumbs this up, subscribe and share if you're new to the, the broadcast. He says, upper peasantry. Let me repeat that for you. Upper peasantry. All right? They Literally, even if you've instituted success where you are somewhat outside of the system and autonomous, right, which is not encouraged, you're still just upper peasantry peasantry to these people. Uh, you want to get angry when the important values are flouted because the people are flouting and don't know what they're doing. Uh, many of the sex education courses in the school system uh, appear to the square middle-class family of straight pornography. Uh, the average American, for example, wants to have uh, his kid taught uh, about pregnancy, but not too much, about real disease, but not too much. Uh, the upper middle class board of education invariably goes to technique and orgasm. <laughs> uh, and it's crazy. They're trying to change the guy's values in a way which destroys his family system, actually. Incidentally, I don't believe that a social system which wants marriage based upon romance and love and wants the marriage to be for a lifetime can, in fact, work smoothly if you treat sex as uh, what people call uh, the glass of water theory. Uh, the concept there is that uh, uh, you're thirsty, you have a glass of water. Uh, you're tense, you have sex, but it should be a gourmet experience. <laughs> See, it's kind of funny there, but he's smart. Listen, there's no doubt this guy is intelligent. And, you know, when we talked about Stanley Kubrick and this guy possibly being the model for um, Dr. Strangelove himself, right, the, the, kind of the main character who is wargaming all these nightmare scenarios, you know? And, and this is the, the era of mutually uh, assured destruction, okay? This guy, you know, he's a very intelligent man. I mean, you think about it. He talks about how a society can't function if that's what is being taught to young children. And think about how far we've come. Again, this guy's speaking the year of my birth. And, and he's not wrong. They, they are purposely trying to destroy society. And I, I think, again, that was the naivety 
of people like this that they could ever be so anti-human. But don't worry, we're going to get there. Uh, uh, It just ain't going to work for society based on romance and uh, lifetime marriage. There are no worldly to say. There's nobody who you look at today for wisdom. Now, think about that right there. Is he really wrong? 1979. Were there any worldly... I mean, can you real? I, I know a lot of people want to ingratiate Reagan. Total bullshit. I'm never riding that train. I never have. There's no reason to. Okay? No, the guys that were shaping policy and the world were people like Kissinger at the time. Brzezinski, Rockefeller. Okay? They're the ones doing it. So, so this guy, again, very smart. Because, you know, this is after the, the major assassinations of people that tried to rise up against the power structure legitimately from within. It happened. There, He's right. There are no world leaders today in 79. Nobody. And I don't think it's a change of stance. I don't think it's an accident. I think for when I look at the people who uh, put together the American Constitution, the Constitutional Convention, there were dozens of people that had wisdom. If you ask how come, why, look at their background. Uh, at the ages of 12, 13, 14, they ran important uh, enterprises. I was at the age of 16, was master ship from New York to the Caribbean and back. And it wasn't my way because they were short-lived then. Many of them lived very long times, too. But they were just given serious responses when young. They also had read well. Uh, every man in that Constitutional Convention either read carefully and knew, or knew secondhand and knew well, the Bible, Shakespeare, Milton's Paradise and Lost, Gibbons' Decline and Fall of Rome, even though it was published in 1776, just 13 years earlier. Now think about that. He's talking about the structure of education, okay? And then also, you know, basically at a very young age, giving them responsibility and accountability. Think about how long we keep responsibility and accountability. Many people live well into their adult lives without responsibility and, and accountability. Yeah, the, the guy is extremely intelligent. The most astounding thing that probably illustrates the net, what's really going on, is the population story. Uh, let's take the United States first. Back in 1980, the average American woman had seven children. 1,800. 1,800. Right. Um, and um, uh, it went down steady for 145 years. So 1945 was 2.1, which would be stability of numbers eventually. Now, why did the spike happen? In other words, in all the world history, you have this single unique spike, as far as we can tell. We mean it. We think the future, too. No, we don't know the future. Spike right now. Yeah, the spike right now is unique. We don't think we'll ever see a spike like that again in world history. It would have such a spike again would mean a return to five, six uh, children families. Very unlikely, you see. Now, why did it occur? We, we know a good deal about it. It basically occurred p- partly because of capitalism, but really it was innate in Western culture. Well, again, it happened because you had a society where you could take care of a family and grow. And that, inf- listen, there is nothing more powerful in this world than the family unit, period. And there really isn't. And, you know, there is a bond, an infrastructure that is built into that family unit no matter what those problems are, you are way more highly likely to work something out with a family member, a blood family member, somebody you grew up with than anybody else. That's not hype, okay? That's reality. 
That's the structure of society. And we had strong family units at that time. In many ways, the post-national society looks to us like a primitive society at a very high level where the computers take over for the slaves and the hard labor, in effect. So think of, it, of the normal slave-type society, if you will, but think of everybody being in the top 3% or the top 5 See, and that's our picture of the future to some degree. You hear that? That's pretty important. A total slave society, but where the AI is running pretty much everything, and the computers and the robots are, t- are running everything, but only about 3 to 5% of what we have are there. Wow. You see, uh, the basic concept in the United States, to some degree, is, uh, and it's not meant in any way insulting, uh, but it's a little bit like the people claim the Navy was designed. Uh, designed by geniuses to be run by idiots. Now, that's not a good description of the world of American business, but mildly. Uh, but it is a point that, in many cases, rather average people turn out extremely good product. Uh, over and over again, we find overseas that the American company competing with a strange environment, with a strange group of people, makes a lot more money, and turns out a lot more stuff, a lot more efficiently. Now, we're losing, or have lost that edge in many places. And, of course, the Japanese company does even better. And this week, the South Korean company does even better. And then it gets moved to China during this era. We're actually going to show you some of that um, via Invisible Empire and Henry Kissinger next. But I really want you to think about what he just said there. Okay? He talks about the Navy being set up by geniuses. Now, the Office of Naval Intelligence still very underplayed today, but was huge, huge during the World War II era, right? And they say, look, you're taking all these average people, right? It's set up by geniuses, run by idiots, and they put out an amazing product. So, you know, that's why they test the level of these people's intelligence as they join the military and then put them into certain compartmentalized groups. Again, Khan's a very smart guy. Now, Now he's talking about basically what we're seeing via industrialization of what was the third and second world via slave labor. And now we're, everything's starting to even out. And we're going to play Go some clips it. of that in a bit. But that's the difference of culture there. That's, uh, that's just like the tip of the iceberg, right? Because like when Burmese was given like the, the history of the New World Order, he's like, oh, Nixon said it. I remember his Invisible Empire, uh, New World Order movie. The first 12 or 13 minutes, his whole, like the whole thing was just historical uses of that phrase by they, them, those who claim it doesn't, like it's a conspiracy theory. And then Kissinger, like I have his book back here. It's called, uh, I got several of them. This one's called World Order. Like it's, you know, he's got. That's why he calls him Mr. New World Order himself. That's what Burmese refers to him as, yeah. So I wanted to real quick. Cause I love those. Uh, I haven't seen that. Uh, I haven't seen that video yet. So I hadn't seen those con clips that he was playing, Neither but I am familiar with, I'm familiar with the characters. So he was referring to this article that came out uh, March 10th, 2022. It's a 30 minute read, but it's about three hours. If you're going to look up and figure out how this is all going on. And that's even like, I spent a good three hours with this article um, and put it in my brain model and looked stuff up. And I'm familiar with these topics, but I can still learn from just about any of my peers. So uh, I always like not being the smartest person in the room and learning. So 
Dr. Klaus Schwab, uh, the the love the bomb, that's Kubrick line. I could show you Kubrick and the history blueprint and these people that he was surrounded by, but that's not the point of this. The point is <clears throat> Klaus Schwab had three primary mentors. And so what Johnny does in this article is <clears throat> he breaks down Kissinger and he did a pretty good job. Let me make sure this is in focus. I'd like to get in some of the uh, operation Ashkin and dustbin and the other stuff that he was involved in. <clears throat> But he does a, a, a good job of like breaking out who Kissinger is. And uh, I haven't highlighted this version completely, but then he goes into Galbraith and Khan throughout the article. So it's like 20 pages. Anyway, um, he breaks out Galbraith, Khan, Kissinger, shows how Klaus Schwab attended Kissinger's uh, seminar at Harvard that the funded by the cia in fact instead of me drawn in the imaginary air let me take you to johnny vedmore in the history blueprint that's how you get yourself in there you write yourself kick-ass article that i gotta put my brain to work on here it is and that connects to the unlimited hangout post these over here on the left <clears throat> these are just some of the things that you would need to be familiar with to understand what you're writing or what you're reading uh in this article right so you need to have an idea, like what is Harvard University? Who was who is Henry Kissinger? Who is Herman Kahn? Who's John Kenneth Galbraith? Uh, who's Klaus Schwab? Who's the Rockefeller Foundation? What is system theory? What is thermonuclear warfare? Who's William Yandel Elliott? Uh, some of these other aspects, right? So it's interesting to get into where's uh, Klaus. Where did I put the like Global thermonuclear war. Sorry. Odd game. The only way to win is by not playing it. Haven't we learned that lesson yet? <laughs> All right. So Klaus had Kissinger, Herman Kahn, uh, and Galbraith that are named in this article, right? But Yando Elliott helped to formulate Kissinger, and I'm pretty sure had some influence on Galbraith. So there's interesting history of all these people. You got to get into like, who are they? You know, why is Prince Bernard of Lippi of the Netherlands, the former SS officer for Hitler? Why is he a big supporter of Klaus Schwab and helped to kick off his organization? What's the club of Rome? Who was Eugen Schwab? And if I, I bet if I go there, uh, oh, I don't have Vedmore's article in here on Eugen Schwab. Apparently I got to update the model. Sometimes I have like hundreds of tabs open and they don't get uh, organized because I don't have a time in my schedule to do that regularly. I'm kind of slacking on that. I need some accountability and responsibility. I think we just heard about that, right? So uh, the point of this, I wanted to get to uh, Herman Kahn because those are the clips that Burmis was playing. So let's go over here to Herman Kahn, 1922 to 1983. And uh, here we got a couple of things. So Edward Teller. And game theory and von Neumann, uh, doomsday equation by Heinz von Forrester. Uh, looks like he went to, uh, did he teach at Princeton and work at Rand Corporation? He wrote on thermonuclear war. That was one of his books. Influenced also by Werner von Braun. Uh, doomsday device, doomsday machine is a function in Dr. Strangelove, which I thought was interesting, right? Because that's, that's that. Um, had an association with the Hudson Institute. We'll click that in a second. Uh, let's see. These two books. That's what I wanted to point to. The Next 200 Years, Scenario for America and the World by Herman Kahn. 
And then he also wrote the year 2000, 2000, a framework for the speculation of the next 33 years. Why do they use 33 in these things? Is that the length of the chain that they used to measure and survey land with? And it's like a, 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 a like a symbol of the builders of our society. <laughs> maybe, maybe a metaphor. future tech, autonomous killer robots. That's recent news, but it's like kind of inspired by Herman Kahn's legacy. <laughs> Let's click this Hudson Institute, see what's up over here. Oh my goodness. Rand Corporation, Herman Kahn, Hudson. Didn't we talk about the Kagan family past couple of weeks? Yeah. Something to do with Ukraine and neocons. Anyway. Yeah, it says Sid and Victoria yeah. Newland's and all connected or something. Yeah, her father or something. Yeah, Robert Kagan's are uh, sure there's yeah, so that's it. That's it. Yeah. Sure, there's nothing to see. Anyway, Herman Kahn, interesting cat. Um, I also, when I went to put them in the history blueprint, I was like, do I have Herman Khan? And it's interesting because I have Otto Herman Khan and I have Otto Khan and they don't seem to be related. So on the Pecora commission, there was a guy named Otto Herman Khan. And this guy's name is Herman Khan. And I, you know, I didn't do enough research to be like, is there a cousin? It's like, is it a you know, is there some sort of relationship? But the Pecora Commission, I think that was the commission that investigated the Smedley Butler stuff in 1934, the business plot, which was the next section in uh, Aaron and Melissa Dykes' film uh, from earlier in the, the intermission. It was right after that they were going to get to Smedley Butler and how he yeah. tried to call out, the, and then they made fun of him too because she's like, they gave him a ticker tape parade. And I was like, really? And then she's like, no. Or is it right? <laughs> so like, she's like, they made fun of him in the newspapers and crushed his reputation. <laughs> I was like, of course they did. I forgot about that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I wasn't sure. Anyway, Herman Kahn, very interesting. And Jason's right. That dude's immensely smart. Oh, yeah. And oh, then, yeah. you know, but he doesn't he doesn't see uh, what he's in the middle of. He's just a worker bee who they're like, you know, he's like, uh, was Norbert Wiener malevolent? I mean, he did write books on command and control of the human being. But no, you're it's right. There's like, a lot of these individuals are there. I sort of use the will um, hunting. Yeah, like Goodwill Sidus, William Sidus. They're was, so interested in manifesting like the potential for a scientific dictatorship that they're so interested in the possibility of the science. They forget about the ethics component of it and they ignore the ethical component and the ideological persuasions of people who are using it for power. And so that's why so many of these people were sort of like, we can draw connections to them, but they're not all in on it insofar as like uh, being perpetrators of the 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 entire enslavement of the of the global system insofar as like having a direct influence in that hierarchical framework. In other words, they're, they're, they're sort of useful. I don't want to say useful idiots because they're not idiots, but they, they sort of fall into a sort of ideological persuasion. They're like ideologically possessed. That's what I'm really looking for. They're people possessed by this ideology that we've made a certain sort of linear progress in society in the form of technology and that we should embody the full manifestation of what that means and sort of a Hegelian, you know, waltz towards whatever sort of manifested future out of these um, dialectical uh, contraries result from or op oppositions result from. And so they sort of like go along this... thinking it's actually a good thing, which is really sad. I'm going to try to make this point, even though I've been standing here for almost like it's like 12, 13 hours at this point. So here, here it goes. There was this guy named Boris Sidus. Now, that doesn't mean you had an inflamed Boris. His name was Boris 
situs. And uh, I'm going to put my glasses on and read you something because you're going to get to a point where there might be a story you relate to. Uh, Boris Sidus was a Russian-born American psychologist noted uh, in psychodynamics for development and testing uh, with William James of the 1890s reserve energy theory of accelerated mental development. In the 1890s, Boris Sidus began to develop reserve energy theory uh, for the accelerated mental development with his mentor, William James. In 1898, he's considered, son, by the way, the modern, the father of modern psychology. Just right. Sort of yes. Reference Thank you. Just for context, like William James is like the, the sort of key psychologist here. Yeah. So Go Boris Sidus is this Russian dude. He's over here in America. He's working with William James. It's a great spot. Right. So in 1898, his, he has a son and he names his son after William James. So the dude's name is William James Sidus, S-I-D-I-S even though it's not written out like that here. That's how it works. All right. So then uh, he puts his kid in with William James to get accelerated mental development. And then his son becomes the model for goodwill hunting. But this is the reality. They don't tell you about the movie. And uh, there's, you know, a couple different articles I have here saved, but for sake of, a brevity true, way, true life story of iq 225 i didn't even know anyone dude this dude he was cited that high before the high the highest we know yeah. about today is 200 196 or something like that which we had on the show the other day we were talking about the warburg not the other day but a couple months ago talking about the warburgs that guy my point's going to come around to that herman khan is a goodwill citus who never got out of the establishment yeah right he just kept learning yeah. and learning and learning and learning he just served them right yeah so here's the overview Sidus, William James Sidus was a forced prodigy because William James had that accelerated learning system for kids. So it takes away their uh, like childhood to make them super smart. Yeah, you got it. He was yeah. a forced prodigy who became a mathematician, astrophysicist, lawyer with an eidetic memory. That means like a photographic memory. Recall, yep. Who at age eight had scored 100% on the MIT entrance exam, graduated from Harvard at age 16, was in Harvard Law School by age 17, and at the age of 21 was sentenced to 18 months in jail for assaulting an officer. But release on bail was on the condition that he see a therapist who happened to be his father, Harvard psychologist Boris Sidus. What do you think happened then? In the film, character will hunting was played by matt damon who went to harvard and he heard these rumors and he kind of like made up the story and they got an academy award right um so both sidus uh sidus scored perfect on mit at age eight both hunting and sidus were born in southeast i don't think that's necessarily true because i checked out some of the claims um so there's similarities between the characters right and then when you get down to what actually happened to sidus well, that's the archetype for the movie it does not have to be perfectly Congruent. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's this other one here. But basically, what they say is, oh, he wrote this book, The Animate and the Inanimate. You should check this out, dude. Like 1920, yeah. almost yeah, 25. He wrote it in 1920. Like yeah. So, what happened was he gets arrested for like socking the officer, right? We see that yeah. in the Goodwill Hunting movie. Yeah. What they don't show you is like in the movie, they, he goes and hangs out with um, Robin Williams, mm -hmm. right? In reality, he's subjected to his dad's care and basically what they do is they they put him in like an asylum i was gonna so say his dad this reminds like, me of monarch institutionalizes his yeah. kid 
And from there, as soon as he gets out, he's like, fuck off. And he like, they, he, he moved off. They tried to track him down. Like it was a whole thing, just like they show in Goodwill hunting. Like, so for Matt Damon and, and Ben Affleck to write that screenplay and get an Academy award for best original picture or whatever, and not like point to the reality from which they stole the story. And everyone's like, those guys are brilliant. I mean, I think somebody else had that script and said, can you guys be the front men for this? Cause we'd really like to get this story out in public. I think Every, there's everything's a remix. So are I they mean, the Zuckerberg for the, the Weinstein crew, Weinstein crew over there? <laughs> sorry, Brett, Heather, sorry Peter Thiel. I didn't no. mean to mix those. Eric Stein Weinstein. Or Harvey. Eric. I was talking about Harvey. Oh, Harvey. The Miramax Harvey. crew. That's what oh, I was talking yeah. about. Oh, yeah. Harvey still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that. that's who brought that's uh, Goodwill Hunting to America, 1996. Anyway, Herman Kahn is like a Goodwill Citus who actually didn't get out or didn't get the foreshadowing or like the bigger picture of on thermonuclear war what's that used for is that really keeping us safe in the soviet union didn't we fund and arm those enemies like what's going on with the bankers no we talked you know? i talked about this a couple uh back when when you were in florida um the idea of limited war which is popularized by i think a, a talk that was given by henry kissinger and the idea of limited war is the fact that we now live in a nuclear age but we still need warfare essentially because he doesn't say it like this but i'm just gonna Say it's probably for the sort of military industrial complex, the grand chessboard, the great game that Brzezinski then devises later on. But the idea is that we still need some type of warfare and it still is going to exist. So we need to like set up, you know, arm proxy groups. We need to do it through essentially a form of proxy um, where there's, you know, sort of using the roundtable groups will manage these these conflicts. And of course, NATO as well. We'll go figure. Um, but I thought that was interesting because we're talking about Kissinger and Kissinger is talking about the need for how the issues with uh, living well, in and the other age. thing is like Dr. Strange Love, Herman Kahn, thermonuclear war is only made possible because these guys came up with the atomic bomb in the first place. All and right. I remember that I had a book on the shelf over here. I've never shown this book on any of the shows that we've been on. Uh, this is Tuxedo Park by Jeanette Conant, granddaughter of yeah, James actually. Bryant Conant, who also wrote, Jeanette Conant did, The Irregulars about the MI6 infiltration of America's intelligence. This story happened slightly before that. And it's basically Tuxedo Park, uh, a, a Wall Street tycoon in the secret palace of science that changed the course of World War II. Oh, I didn't know about that. And by the way, Tuxedo Park is where they invented the tuxedo. A bunch of robber barons living outside. and They don't want the tie and tails and this whole sort of thing. They invent the tuxedo in this place. This guy, Edward Loomis, was like this eccentric uh, science type dude. And, uh, I know it's in part of at least the back jacket without having to go into like where and when, but, uh, Loomis was a public spirited citizen. Let me show it in the book cam. This is from the back cover, uh, public spirited citizen with the brilliance and ability to galvanize the scientific community to invent the first potent weapon that came to be called radar to spare London from bombs and to destroy U-boats and later contributed to the making of the atom bomb. So some of the concepts for the atom bomb are developed like in the late 20s, early 30s, well before World War II gives the justification for building such a bomb. And the people who were funding this type of thing might have also funded Hitler. He might have also been working on something similar. And, uh, you know, when one group's working on it, the other group has to work to do the same thing. 
Let's see if I have Oh, that's that. right. He was the president of Harvard. I'm like, why does that name so Brian, James Bryant? Yeah, because Gatto talks all about him in his yeah, books. Yeah, he talks Oh, look, about Lord him, Rothschild's yeah. in here. He's also a dun, major... Dun, dun. He's a chemist, too. A very, new, a very sensational new development in nuclear physics and predicted that fission might be uh, make it possible to produce power by means of nuclear energy. This was in 1939. Well, that's 39 uh at the beginning of that but uh it's talking about, talk about fermi having d- drinks yeah, in fermi. strauss's apartment asked strauss to invite him to his wealthy acquaintance lord rothschild but the two physicists could not persuade the english financier to underrate their chain reaction research they went through they they offered hey rothschild you want to fund this chain reaction research that we're doing with no really good reason yet but we're going to make one because it's only 1939 you know anyway it's only 1930 right the Fed doesn't say everything right there. They were going to do it anyways. So, yeah. She's a good source. You know, Quigley can be put into the... the. I mean, it's different for Quigley, and I understand that. We sort of alluded to that a little bit when we are talking with Matthew Arrett, but um, kind of someone who's also very intelligent, maybe not of Khan's level, but is and very intelligent. He's a historiographer. He's, he's capturing the history of this, these individuals. And he, you know, he admits at least in tragedy and hope, he has he just feels as though it should be made conspicuous. It shouldn't be held withheld from the public eye in regards to the foundations of the roundtable groups and their purpose and their their ideology. And so, you know, Quigley sort of was a useful idiot as well. Although I shouldn't say useful idiot because I, at one point it seems like, especially with the publishing in 1981, as you mentioned earlier, with the, the Anglo-American establishment, that he was definitely honing in to there is something more nefarious going on maybe he wasn't between because there's a lot of good people that work for these individuals but i hadn't thought about this so i was just thinking out loud real quick Mm -hmm. and interrupting sorry what's the what's the thing with quigley like it's an irish catholic university that georgetown place georgetown georgetown's isn't that like jesuit university type place yeah it's a jesuit university and cecil rhodes said his secret society should be based on like the jesuits jesuits and and replace roman catholic church with where was it out of the all souls college at all souls college all souls saint anthony's also yeah there's a there's a bunch of different colleges yeah there's saint anthony's fire saint anthony's fire is a Secret Society type Oxford topic for that conversation, but we don't have time to do that. LG, who do we have to thank for this episode besides our fine members who are now enjoying even more, more, more benefits inside of all this value we're stuffing into uh, the the storehouse for the memberships? Like the members area is just getting bigger and juicier, all this new value going in there. So thank you, members. It's a very interesting connection to the Jesuits and also. That's very interesting. British history. Yeah. So I, mean, I knew there was. So I go ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, thanks to the Rockfin tippers tonight. Uh, Paul Mazina, Jim Garrison came up in discussion earlier. Thank you, Mr. Garrison. Well, Emmanuel, uh, Dave's not here, man. Unfortunately, but he was somehow. Tcan Thomas Hutchinson, Calamoni, Ch- Chalamoni, Fear and Loafing, Tommy Riley, Rob Nunyas, who had a question uh, I dropped in the chat. Maybe you guys can address it later. Uh, Denver. I looked into it, and uh, oh, yeah. I'll have to do more Dr. research because yeah, yeah, it's it seems very dubious because um, there's not much general grammar you can dig up except from what is claimed in his own book. So I'm going to have to do more research to see where someone's going to have to find out if we can find records of his actual 
service with the U.S. Navy as a medical doctor. I think it was the Navy. So, right and the fact that whether or not he's con- actually connected to Peter Dazak or not, right now I can't find this. A quick search doesn't dun, dun, dun. make those more to learn. All right, and, and, uh, next week, Denver Attaway, who apparently is uh, just an absolute pimp, um, just a man of <laughs> a man of many talents. <laughs> Uh, chef and musician and uh, anyway <laughs> yes I, I get distracted by the chat but I learn things about no people, no so. I, I need to I'm, <laughs> I'm the I'm liaison like, between chat and uh, and you guys so this is fantastic <laughs> uh, Fabrizio <laughs> Thomas and Bent Reg thank you guys so much yeah thank you guys yeah, and, uh, thank you. special shout back to Paul Mozina who was uh, one of the associate producers on the Ultimate History Lesson with John yes. Taylor Gannon once upon a time he's yes. the Buckthorn man he's out there Mazzina's hoping to a, preserve nature while learning about the New World Order it's been a part of the community going back way to the old old trashy and hope days I remember that's him. what I'm glad about like yeah. people who knew my work 15 16 years ago can still get value out of it today because I'm saying something similar with new value added to the this i got new spices with it you know no they've sent they've made their plans as conspicuous as they can be in regards to what they're doing right now um that's about as obvious as it could be made so i I just was indignant about so many people using conspiracy theory instead of their ability to be literate so i keep pushing back on that like that's not a good enough excuse anymore and you had to find out why uh people were so it looks like james jordan's blogs on screen that's correct uh so this is uh James Jordan, um, manufacturingreality.org. He also has Liberty Radio. And Maddie, uh, a.k.a. Space Jelly, she did another follow-up for what I presented last week from her work. Uh, this is the COVID Collaborators Shock and All. So it gets into... I wanted to get this on the show earlier and have a little bit of a discussion around this, do some deep dives. We just didn't get a chance. It goes into Dr. Rajiv Shaw, um, who, you know, the connection to Philip Selikow, the Rockefeller funded uh, foundation commission into the COVID narrative and origins of blah, 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 and all that stuff. And gets into all these very ominous connections with Dr. Shaw being the trilateral commission, the Atlantic council, the one global leadership circle, blah, blah. So she did incredible research to sort of build out what she was did last week, which if I could bring that up, I'll have to go back. But anyways, the, I, w- I just want to give a shout out because she's been doing fantastic work and uh, following sort of in the footsteps of, I think, uh, you know, pioneers such as Johnny Vedmore, obviously, and Whitney, Whitney Webb, uh, trying to sort of emulate the best elements of those, and, but make it their own and help to add to this, uh, you know, all the information yeah, that's available in the investigative research. Let's have our so raising of it. awareness be like that rising tide that lifts yeah. all the ships. JFK so, talked about that once time, once upon so a time. Is, uh, yeah, this is a fantastic article. There's an, anyways, talking about DARPA, McClellan. Really want to get into some of the stuff where we didn't have a chance. Maybe next week I'll bring it up. But uh, excellent work, Maddie and James, and continue doing the, the great work. And hopefully uh, we'll get into this a bit more uh, next week. The nice thing about these articles, much like Whitney Webb's and so forth, and Johnny Vedmore's unlimited the people, the contributors, and investigative journalists at Unlimited Hangout, that I constantly refer back to them. So it's not like it's just going to be. Uh, just one episode and we we forget about it i've referred back to their articles a number of times and that'll be sort of the same way for uh, manufacturing reality and what they're trying to do so well said and when does uh liberty radio and uh when's the town hall and when's your logic class (laughs) liberty radio is seven o'clock i think they film it 
it's Monday evenings, but then it's made available Tuesdays. So, um, so that's uh, beginning of the week. That's James Jordan and Phoenix. They do a fantastic job. They feature original sort of freedom oriented music and liberty oriented music, as well as going over narratives that we don't get a chance to cover on this show and doing deep dives into some elements that we didn't, uh, we oftentimes don't get a chance to, but is in tandem with what we're trying to present on the show. Tuesday night town hall, that's every other week. And this week is the off week, but next week, so next see it'll be tuesday the 29th with the next town hall they usually go on for anywhere from three to five hours you have a chance to stop in and we make those replays available so if people don't get a chance to stop in you can see what the quality of the conversation is like and there it's always fantastic and shout out to everyone that attends the town hall it's just been a uh it's been a greater success than i could have imagined and then thursday night uh, Thursday, starting at seven o'clock PM is my logic course. People can still sign up for it. That should still be available. And if you sign up for it, you'll get access to the replay from last week's episode or I should say episode presentation. And I have another five presentations to go. The next three will be just on the fallacies. Now that I've laid the theoretical and conceptual foundations of logic itself in an Aristotelian, uh, context. Now we're just going to get into the fallacies should be much more actionable and shouldn't take nearly as long because I think the last lecture went too long. I should have split it up. And uh, then the last two lectures will be on definition. So we're going to continue moving. It'll always be seven o'clock on Thursdays uh, until we finish that, until I finish that presentation series. It's made available for GTW and autonomy participants. So all you have to do is go to sign up for a membership in GTW, or if you're already an autonomy uh, student, yeah, I mean, graduate. Well. I don't let the students get distracted with your logic. Oh, I'm sorry. The they can graduate first, then they yeah, can get fine. in. My bad. Graduates. Yeah. That's, yeah. So, and that's that. Cool. Uh, we're, we started autonomy last week. We did, we did week one. We'll do enrollments through week eight. If, uh, if you think that, uh, you know, the skills of critical thinking, creative problem solving, active literacies, rhetoric skills, coupled with high value entrepreneur and executive skills might be for you. You can go to getautonomy.info forward slash ignite, click the call to action buttons, complete the obstacle course, and you're halfway there. If you can make it through the obstacle course, you could probably thrive and survive in the course and make it pay for itself readily. So with that, I mentioned earlier, Stalin was five foot four. We also mentioned John Kenneth Galbraith, even though we focused on Herman Kahn. Galbraith was like the original Herman Munster. Dude was like six foot nine, six foot nine. Fred Gwynn was a big dude, but he wasn't. I don't think he was six foot nine. He had to wear platform shoes to be Herman. But uh, yeah, we'll so learn more about Galbraith forward. next week with Johnny Vedmore. And we're going to break open. Uh, and I want to watch the rest of what Burmis did as far as the analysis and the clips he pulled together so that we can really get get deep into the dive with Vedmore next week. Yeah. I'm going to make sure to finish reading the rest of that article. <sighs> deep it's breath, hot. long day over. Thank you guys all for tuning in and not dropping out. And uh, who do we have to play us out? We have three options where we have more, if there's anything else, but we have possibly Jimmy door ending daylight savings time <laughs> introduced by Bernie. That's one of those phone calls. Kind of funny. We have a congratulations to the woman of the year, JP Sears. And where has Dr. Fauci gone? JP Sears. So any one of those, you know, when I was growing up, there was this movie series. It's awful. Uh, weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> yeah. But they should do like weekend at Biden's because with the Hunter laptop story, that would be like a funny movie. And the Ashley point. Biden diary. I mean, and, Bi and Biden and Bernie kind of do have a couple 
almost things in common these days how they shuffle them around and present them uh, as like hey <laughs> bernie's running stuff oh you know and they, they you know a lot of similarities not disparaging the former vice president involved with ukrainian skullduggery at all trying to bring on world war three to cover his family's ass not saying anything about that and maybe i should just yeah let's let's end this show before the gestapo shows up <laughs> i'm sure we're very much targeted at this point so they're triggered don't be triggered relax it's a long game they're playing <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. all right uh, uh which put, one of those three would you like you uh let's flip a coin uh, here i'll put it on there yeah, you can flip a coin they're all good so ending daylight savings time woman of the year or has dr fauci gone where is dr fauci gone seems like a legit question that's a good, good way question. to end this episode with that more thinking question okay there we go that's that one have a great night, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Peace. Good evening. Tonight, we'll answer the most pressing questions going on in your manipulated mind. Like, what's going on with the pandemic? Did it accidentally end? What's the latest? And where is Anthony Fauci? It seems like he disappeared. We'll answer all these questions while making you less of a person tonight. Let's get into it. After two years of appearing weekly in major mainstream media mind manipulation outlets, Dr. Fauci has seemingly disappeared altogether from the public spotlight. Why? I mean, he is a man altruistically informing the nation about the science on a very serious topic. They couldn't just remove him and his great contributions from the equation. That would put hundreds of millions of lives at risk. Well, it turns out the tyrants use their useful idiots until such idiot no longer furthers their cause. They'll then dispose of them, as these people do not function on loyalty, honesty, and love. They function on manipulation, deception, and control. And as Fauci now replaces Where's Waldo as the most hidden person in the world, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan has called for an investigation into Fauci if the Republicans regain the majority in November's elections. And I'm sure they will, as we have such fair elections that the side that keeps winning has all but outlawed free speech that questions election integrity. So you know it'll be a fair election. But what would they investigate Anthony Fauci about? Like, are they accusing him of protecting the public too well? Well, believe it or not, no. In Jim Jordan's words, they would investigate all the lies, the misinformation, and the disinformation from Dr. Anthony Fauci and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention with regards to the 19 pandemic. Translated, I think that means they'd investigate him for putting the public's interest ahead of his own best interest. Because the guy is so selfless. I just hope he sold all his Moderna stock last week before it crashed. When someone commits a crime, have you ever heard the authorities tell them, you have the right to remain silent because anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law? So... I think we can expect Dr. Anthony Fauci to remain real quiet. On with the bigger picture. Unfortunately, at this point in time, people are no longer tolerating the lies after two years of fear-mongering. So what have we learned? Well, the primary lesson is that the circadian rhythm of sheep are such that they fall asleep for two years 
and then they wake up. What remains to be seen is, how long will they stay awake for? We don't know yet, but we're doing our best to sedate you back to sleep. Just think about Ukraine and Russia, and a cyber attack is coming. And I think we're going to do another pandemic. Right, Bill? Well, we'll have another pandemic. Can't wait. In other useless news, the useless Biden administration is focusing on a test-to-treat campaign, which involves giving people an antiviral pill when they test positive for the virus. I didn't know they could deliver nanotechnology through pill form now. I guess so. Beautiful advances in human control technology. I mean, medical technology. The pill is made by criminal organization Pfizer, and due to a rather nasty case of mass formation psychosis, 30% of the population blindly trusts the company with their lives. Good for business and good for the bottom line. But is it good for your health? Well, we censor all information that suggests not. So, yes! It is good for your health. After refusing to release safety and effectiveness data on, you know what, a court has ordered the FDA to release the first 10,000 pages of a total of 400,000 pages on Pfizer's product. What's it reveal? Well, for obvious reasons, we're not gonna tell you. But in other news, click the link in the description of this video for our full report on the safety and effectiveness data from the flotation device administration on life jackets your risk of drowning has never been more irrelevant click the link for everything we don't want you to know as i shuffle these papers around you can get excited about what i'm gonna say next a recent poll has alerted the democrats that after two years people are fed up with hysteria. And with the 2022 midterms coming up, they know that the right thing to do is to pretend the science has changed. The firm that ran the poll, Impact Research, wrote a letter to the Democrats explaining how to improve their polling. In it, they said, declare victory over COVID and move on. They also instructed the Democrats to do the following strategies to win the 2022 midterms. I mean, serve the public better. Declare the crisis phase of COVID over and push for feeling and acting more normal. Recognize that people are worn out and feeling real harm from the years-long restrictions and take their side. The poll pointed out that twice as many people are concerned with the Democrats' COVID policies negatively affecting the economy than they are with someone in their family getting infected with the virus. Let's not think about what the real pandemic is. People being concerned with reality rather than being concerned with the narrative is not successful fear-mongering. We need to do better, guys. Their letter to the Democrats based on the poll and how to win the midterms goes on. The more we talk about the threat of and onerously restrict people's lives because of it, the more we turn them against us and show them we're out of touch with their daily realities. It's fascinating that the authoritarians are so oblivious to reality that they needed to be told this. <laughs> and speaking of the inevitability of getting the virus, they said, most Americans are no longer fearful. And that's disappointing because controlling people with fear-mongering works so much better when people are afraid. The firm also instructed the Democrats, stop talking about restrictions and the unknown future ahead. If we focus on how bad things still are and how much worse they could get, we set Democrats up as failures unable to navigate us through this. Now let's get this straight. Democrats aren't failures. 
They're losers. So let's mentally manipulate the public so no one gets confused. And finally, the polling firm instructed the Democrats that the science has changed as follows. If Democrats continue to hold a posture that prioritizes COVID precautions over learning how to live in a world where COVID exists, but does not dominate, they risk paying dearly for it in November. Ha ha ha, that's great. But what does the pandemic's chief extermination officer have to say about it all? What is the downside of wearing a mask? I mean, it's gotta be tough. You know, you have to wear pants. Uh, I mean, this is tough stuff. These societies are so cruel. Why do they make you wear pants? I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, <laughs> We're very glad you have yours on. Belittling people for not wearing a mask while he's not wearing a mask? Perfect. And I can't figure out why people don't trust him. And what a witty analogy for a man known for his sense of humor. Wearing pants? You're right, Bill. That's not very tough. But according to allegations from your former employees, Bill, you had a tough time keeping your pants on. So maybe wearing masks and pants isn't as easy as you say. That's it for today's pandemic update. We're gonna claim victory over the wolf we cried about for two years. Fauci's gonna social distance himself from the public until the Clinton body count goes up by one more, and we're gonna start prepping our narrative for Bill's next pandemic. And in the meantime, Enjoy believing that the evil plot has been defeated, as it was just our opening move. We're just getting started, if you know what I mean. And you willingly giving up your freedoms is the only way terror can win. So you should start getting ready to learn new ways how you can protect yourself by giving up more of your freedoms. Tune in tomorrow night as we burn the Bill of Rights and get you to cheer for it. Please go back to sleep. Good night. If you want to continue... Conspiracy is the story of history. It's the story of plunderers taking care of people who produce. They claim to take care of them through government, which doesn't give you anything. It doesn't take away first. So it's not creating something out of nothing. It's very real what they're doing. They're taking your rights or taking some people's rights and adding more to someone else's rights. If you haven't heard about our Grand Theft World community membership, here are a few of the things you've been missing. A mobile app where you can access replays of the Grand Theft World podcast and show notes. Access to the Grand Theft World community on Discord, where we crowdsource news and resources, and you can contribute to the show. The opportunity to participate in the Grand Theft World bi-weekly town hall. Exclusive content from Richard Grove, including behind-the-scenes footage and future access to unpublished material. 93 episodes of the Peace Revolution podcast, and the Grand Theft World newsletter delivered straight to your inbox each week. If you want to stay ahead of the great game, visit us at GrandTheftWorld.com, click or tap the button in the top right-hand corner, and join a vibrant community of researchers blazing a new path to truth. We'll see you there.